Good morning, and we are in day two of our general session, or general assembly session, I should say, of the 2016 World Blind Union. Uh, in the next few days, uh, ICEVI will be getting involved in the joint sessions. They're going to get things underway here in a little less than two minutes at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 13 GMT. And we will be bringing the coverage live to you. I'm going to go ahead and bring up the house feed because they could get going at any time here. Aren't you from Guatemala? Yes, I'm here. Where do you want me to sit? Uh, on, on your right? On, on my right, yes. On your right side, okay. Also, just to let you know, we do have uh, the email up if you want to send any questions to us here at the ACB Radio table. Send them to wbu at acbradio.org. Also, I'm monitoring the ACB Radio Twitter account, and you can send a tweet at ACB Radio.
Brune. Hello, could you please find your seats? We are starting in a short time. So please take your seats. Yeah. 
media are sharing, like... Uh, no, no, I you, have, you, have, you have my own file. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Okay, good morning, everyone. We are going to have a, another day with interesting discussions, and we are going to have some... Uh, Maybe some uh, challenges, challenging discussions too. Uh, the first we are going to start with today is uh, the constitutional amendments. They have been sent out. They have been sent out and circulated. Uh, they have been approved by the officers and also by the exco. Uh, so I hope this will be. Uh, going well. Um, there are no kind of big issues as far as I have seen in the material and my hope is that we can come through this uh, in, a, in, a, in a proper way and uh, in time. My name is Antolte and with me here I have uh, Wolfgang Angemann who is the president of uh, European Blind Union but he is also the chair of the Constitutional Committee. Uh, and uh, Wolfgang is going to present uh, the material and the proposals and uh, do the work with the Constitution. So I uh, leave the floor for you, uh, Wolfgang, and uh, you can start with the work. Thank you, Arndt. Uh, oh yeah, that's loud and clear, that's nice. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Wolfgang Angermann, as Arndt said. I have the honor and the pleasure to be the chairman of the Constitutional Committee who dealt with the amendments that we're going to put forward to this assembly. As Arndt has already said, these uh, amendments were proposed to address several issues of importance. First one, are matters that needed clear language. Second, amendments to deal with issues that either have arisen or that could arise and which are not dealt with in the present Constitution. And thirdly, amendments that recognize the existence of the WBU office and that ensure compliance and consistency with the corporate bylaws. These are needed and required for Canadian registration. And fourthly, amendments that reflect philosophical principles of the WBU, such as the amendment that deals and requires all table officers to be blind or partially sighted. The chart you have received with our report summarizes the proposed constitutional amendments that reflect on the work of this Constitution Committee. Now, Arendt has already uh, giving you the procedure that we had pursued. We had put these amendments forward to the officers and then to the executive committee. They have been accepted and so here we are 
to present to, to, these, to, you, to this assembly. I'd like to explain to you the procedure which I intend to pursue. We will have an introduction for each of the ten amendments. Then we'll, I will open the floor for debate, for any reservations or comments. Then I close the debate and there will be no more possibility for the floor then. And then we'll have the voting procedure. And after that we will immediately carry on to the next amendment. So that's the procedure and I really urge everybody, when you take the floor, please refer to the amendment that is in question at that moment only. That's very important. We are short of time and uh, we really need to observe this strict procedure. Thank you. Now the First Amendment. This amendment deals with the presence of the WBU office and provides the authority to establish an office as well as a corporate structure in the location where the office is located. This amendment also ensures the linkage between any such cooperation of the WBU entity and the WBU elected officer, um, officials. Um, as you have all read the report, I will not uh, quote the present wording, but I will quote the proposed wording so that everybody knows what he or she is uh, voting on. So the proposed wording is as follows. Um, sorry, I just have to go through my notes here. So the proposed wording is, oh, I'm sorry, lost this. So here it is. It's Article 1, Section 2, The Location. A, the headquarters of the organization shall be located in a place to be determined from time to time by the executive. Such headquarters will be located in the permanent office of the WBU as determined by the executive from time to time. Then letter B, as appropriate, the executive may establish a corporate entity within the country where the WBU office is located from time to time. In so doing, in order to ensure the clear linkages between the WBU and any such corporate entity, the executive will ensure that the elected officers of the WBU also serve as the directors of and officers of any such corporation. You see, this is the amendment which is dealing 
with the linkage between the WBU international constitution and the corporate we need to install in, with respect to the Canadian legislation. So, I declare the floor open for any debate. Are there any reservations or comments? And if, please stand up and show your country card. So I take it there is no debate needed. I close the debate and now open the voting process. Everybody in favor of this amendment, please loud and clear say aye. Aye. Anybody against? So this is unanimously accepted. Thank you. The third amendment... The second, I'm sorry, the second amendment uh, proposed provides their ability to deal with new member applications in situations where the current member is non-financial and is blocking the potential participation of new members. It provides for the ability to advocate for the sharing of membership, particularly in the case when current members are inactive or non-financial. A paragraph has been added dealing with situations of new applications for national membership in countries where a national member already exists. There is also a modification to the paragraph dealing with applications for associate membership. So I again uh, skip the present wording and quote the proposed wording. This is Article 3, Section 2 about the procedure of application. Application for membership of the union shall be made through the appropriate regional president to the secretary general and approved by the executive. Applications for national membership in countries where there already is a national member organization must be approved by the current national member who agrees to share the membership and delegates with the new organization. However, if the current member organization is not meeting their financial obligations through the payment of their annual membership fees to the WBU, then such current member for fights, forfeits their right to refuse the new applicant and the regional union has the right to consider the application for recommend and recommend that the membership be carried for the new applicant organization. Furthermore, if membership is shared among more than one organization in a member country and if one or more of the organizations 
does not pay their share of the membership fees. The other organizations may pay fees on behalf of the other organization in order to maintain good financial standing of the member country. And in so doing, is entitled to exercise the delegate votes that would normally be exercised by that non-paying organization. Application for associate membership shall be made through the appropriate regional president to the secretary general and approved by the president of the prior approval of the national member concerned before being submitted to the executive. A lack, <clears throat> a lack of response to the national member to the request within a six-month period will be deemed to be agreement with the received application. National members who are not financial with the WBU forfeit the right to block the applications from potential associate members who wish to join the WBU and who are deemed appropriate by the regional union. Honorary life members shall be elected by the assembly. So this is the amendment. There is no quoting in this point. Another quoting. So I open up the debate for any reservations or comments. Thank you. No such comments are wished. I close the debate and open up the voting process. Anybody in favor of this amendment, please, loud and clear, say aye. aye. Anybody against, say no. This is unanimously passed. Thank you very much. The third amendment just take a sip of water. The third amendment uh, deals with the voice voting process and puts the onus on the session chair to ensure there is no potential ambiguity in the voice vote, in which case an alternate voting method is to be <coughs> employed. I skip the present wording again. And here is the proposed wording. It's Article 6, Section 4, Letter I. Voting may be by acclamation, in brackets, viva voce, roll call, by show of hands, or if 20% or more of the delegates present so demand, by secret ballot. When using a voice vote, the session chair must be completely satisfied that 
there is no ambiguity in the voice vote, in the voice vote results. Any ambiguous vote is to be discarded and an alternate voting method employed. At elections, when there is more than one candidate, voting shall always be by secret ballot. Debate is open. Any reservations? Uh -huh. There is a question from the international member. Thanks. It's uh, yeah, the mic is working. That's the first good news. So uh, it's Lars from from CBM. I have a, just a quick question, not necessarily to the new proposed wording, but more to the practice. I already uh, realized that there's never a question about abstentions when we come to vote. Is that actually not foreseen by the constitution as a as a voting right, I think it's sort of abstention against and in favor. Those are the three, but they are never asked actually for in no, any of our votes. <laughs> no, no, that's, well, in, in, in most of the countries of this world, abstentions are taken as no. And the other, in other countries, abstentions are taken as none having taken part in the voting process. So it's rather unnecessary to count the abstentions. So if somebody doesn't want to vote, he just or she just stays away from taking part in the voting process. Does this satisfy your question? Thank you. So I declare the debate closed, and here's the voting process now. All those in favor, please say aye, loud and clear. Oh, I was just from the right. Please again, please say aye. Aye. Thank you. Anybody against, please say no. Thank you. Also, this one has been unanimously passed. Fourth Amendment. This amendment sets out the requirements that all table officers must be blind or partially sighted persons. The proposed wording here is as follows. Article 4, Section 6. Letter A, to be eligible for nomination for the post of WBU table officer, the candidates must be blind or partially sighted as defined in this constitution. So that's it. Any debate? Let's open up the voting process. Everybody in favor, please say aye. Everybody against? No? Also, this one unanimously passed. Thank you. You make it really easy on me. <laughs> Thank you. And here's the fifth one. This amendment clarifies that other members in good financial standing may submit nominations for the position of table officers. Here is the Proposed wording for that, Article 4, Section 6, Letter B. To be valid, a nomination of a candidate must be supported in writing by a majority of the 
delegation of the, from the country in which the candidate resides. Such support being confirmed in writing by the chair of the nominations committee when the nomination is submitted. Only member countries in good financial standing with the WBU are eligible to submit nominations and that's the end of this amendment. Missing the period here. <laughs> okay, I open up the debate right now. So let's come to the voting process. Anybody, um, all those in favor, please say aye loud and clear. All those against, no. This also has unanimously been passed. Thank you. Yeah, we're halfway through, that's right. <laughs> that's great. By the way, we have all members of this committee up here. Uh, I forgot to introduce in the beginning, and I like to do that right now, as we are halfway through. On my right, there's Penny, who has really taken a wonderful job in providing all this very, very good drafted amendments. Thank you very much, Penny, on this occasion. And on my left, there is our president, Arndt Heute, who has also been a member of this Constitution Committee. So I was really well uh, embedded in this committee as a chairperson. Thank you very much. So this is number six. This proposed amendment amends the powers of the executive to include the engagement of the CEO. And the proposed wording for that is as follows. Article 5, Section 2, Letter B. The executive shall have power of decision and be directly responsible to the assembly for interpreting and carrying out in detail the general policies agreed upon by the assembly and for the administration, management, and control of the affairs and property of the union. In so doing, it shall have authority to take all necessary action not specifically reserved to the assembly. This includes the authority through the officers to recruit a CEO and delegate certain responsibilities as deemed necessary and appropriate. So this is the amendment number six. Debate is open. Coming to the voting process, anybody in favor, please say aye. Aye. Anybody against, say no. You're not, did you say no? Anybody against, please say no. Okay, this has unanimously been passed. Thank you. Number seven, this proposed amendment deals with a potential situation of absence or inability 
to act by an officer. It rests the authority with the executive to delegate duties or responsibilities of officers in such situations to other officers. This is Article 5, Section 2, and this will have a new paragraph, letter D. In case of absence or inability to act of any officer or of any other reason that the executive may deem sufficient, the executive may delegate all or any of the powers of any such officer to any other, other officer for the time being. And that's it. And that's to ensure the continuity of tasks being performed, of course. Debate, open. Debate closed. So anybody in favor of this amendment, please say aye. aye. Anybody against, please say no. This is unanimously being passed. Did, did you hear no? Anybody? Okay, let's repeat. Anybody against, please say no. Okay, no, it's silent. <laughs> this has unanimously been passed. Thank you. Number eight. This is a new paragraph referring to the requirement of officers to adhere to WBU Code of Ethics and or Conflict of Interest policies. Um, please note that this refers to the policy statement we uh, have accepted this statement yesterday in our executive meeting, um, on Thursday, of course. Thank you. And we felt it best to handle this, uh, because we handled, felt it best to handle this in a, in, the gen in a general way, as policies may change over time. So this article is Article 6, Section 2. There is currently no paragraph F, and here's the proposed wording. It is Article 6, Section 2, new paragraph F. There is a, maybe uh, you can explain this, um, Penny. There is a letter E right here. Ah, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's F. It's not E as written in our report. It's F. Please take a note on that. So it's F. All officers shall adhere to the WBU policies in effect from time to time. Um, pertaining to ethical conduct and conflict of interests. Failure to adhere to the provisions of such policies may result in disciplinary, in disciplinary action. 
This is a new section. Um, this, this was the, the section which we want to insert into our constitution. Any debate on that? Yes, okay. Uh, oh, yes. I, thank you, thank you. Uh, let me re remind yes. you that this section is, always, uh, is also yes. demanded by Canadian legislation in terms of meeting the requirements of uh, Canada. Uh, Rwanda, question. You have, you have the floor, please. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering about the statement from time to time which seems to imply that they have a choice of adhering to them or not. Uh, and I, I don't know why we don't remove that particular phrase from time to time. Thank you. Yeah, from time to time means that, of course, a policy can be changed as deemed necessary. Uh, so in order not to be in the situation that you would have to amend the whole con the constitution again, with all the procedure connected with that, uh, we have laid down this in policies. And from time to time, I mean, it, it may change sometimes. So you just, this, is, this is all which we have to say for that. So anybody in favor, please say aye. aye. Everybody against, say no. And this is the... Amendment number eight. Here we come to the amendment number nine. This is a new section dealing with disciplinary matters with respect to officers and how such matters would be dealt with. This section is required in our Canadian cooperation bylaws and was inserted for consistency purposes. Furthermore, although these situations occur extremely rarely, it is best for the Constitution to not be silent on this matter as it is presently, and to have provisions in place to deal with such an eventuality. So here's Article New Article uh, 6, New Section 3. And this is proposed with present Section 3, and that will become Section 4 then. And here's the proposed wording, Article 6, New Section 3. Disciplinary matters. The resolution of Disciplinary matters regarding a regional president is at the discretion of the regional union. Such regional union is required to investigate matters of concern brought forward by the WBU officers or the president. A table officer may be subject to disciplinary action up to the including termination by the resolution passed 
by the executive upon recommendation by the WBU officers or the president that the table officer has A. Breached any of the provisions of the articles, bylaws, or any written policies of the World Blind Union, or B. Carried out any conduct which the officers determine is detrimental to the World Blind Union, or C. Significantly neglected the performance of the duties for which the table officer was elected or by which the table officer was assigned and to which he or she agreed. A table officer may be subject to disciplinary action for any other reason that the officers in their sole discretion determine is reasonable having regard to the purposes of the World Blind Union provided that the table officer whose membership is subject to such disciplinary action or termination shall be granted and opportunity to be heard at such meeting. So this is amendment number nine. Debate open. So everybody in favor, please say aye. aye. Oh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I was too, I was too, too quick. <laughs> There's a question, please. Who is it? The Philippines, please. You have the yeah, floor. Yeah, clarification. Teddy Cahill here from the Philippines. Um, I just would like to ask, uh, if, is there any, in terms of like termination of regional president, is there any number from the board that would do the endorsement for a specific case? Uh, I, have, I was listening to the provisions that you have laid down before us, but uh, I'm looking at uh, certain numbers because, you know, in the Philippines, when we terminate the members of the board, there has to be a number that would vo vote in favor of a certain decision. So, is there any number that we require for such an act? Thank you. It's a normal majority, I guess. I guess it's a majority of the, of the members of the executive and the member... Uh, as, as it is in, in the region, for example. So you have, you need the uh, majority, that means over 50%, 51% of the votes cast. Sorry? Wait, wait a minute, please, we, we cannot hear you. We have someone from the UK. So, okay. Oh, okay. So first someone from the UK, please, you have the floor. And then India and then Cameroon. UK. Would you? Kevin Carey, United Kingdom. I believe that the first sentence of this amendment should be amended to say 
uh, to be ratified by the executive committee. Otherwise, you end up with a situation where a regional union investigates itself uh, or one of the, its president and by a majority vote can remove the president and that can get too political. And I think that there should be um, a small defense of that, which is that if a regional union removes its president, then that has to be ratified by the executive committee. Okay, that would read as follows, just to make it clear. Or, or let's first hear um, India and then Cameroon. Please, India, you Sir, have the floor. this is Manjula from India. Uh, I think we should write sim simple majority of the present executive members. Simple majority of the present yeah, I, okay. executive members. Thank you. It means the members who are present. Okay, thank you. And Cameroon. Thank you, Chair. Um, two things. Um, what could you could you mention? Few disciplinary measures to be taken if table officers of WBU fails to perform the duty of which he she was elected. Uh, because um, we all remember our Secretary General elected in Bangkok didn't perform the duty till the end. And there was no provisional disciplinary measures to uh, cater to that situation. And Paul Tezanu from Cameroon. Thank you. Um, if, I, if I got that right, um, your question was, what kind of disciplinary measure are you thinking of? Is it, is it like that? Yeah. Yeah, this is, you know, yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're writing this down in this constitution to, to give warning to, to all the officers that they have to perform their duty, and if not, they were deprived of their, of their, of their uh, office in the WBU. Do you wish to comment on that, Penny? Would you like to add something to that? Um, may, may I? Well, maybe Art, because he was dealing with it. I would say, let's give it to Art. To well, uh, I think one, uh, the only way to, to, to react would be to say that the person is not able to, to continue as the table officers. I, I really hope this will not come into action. Uh, the the um, example you are, uh, uh, are, are um, talking about, Paul, was um, more like that a person wasn't able to continue uh, uh, herself. But, but uh, if uh, a table officer, are never, uh, uh, he or she is never showing up in the meetings, not doing what, what it is expected from, from uh, that uh, table officers, I think this will be a chance to say that uh, these table officers will not be, uh, have the right to be a table officer anymore. That's the way I, I read it. According to what you are saying, Kevin, to have a ratification from the EXCO, well, it seems logical in a way, but my thinking is that uh, 
regional presidents, they are not elected by EXCO, they are not uh, elected by the General Assembly, they are elected by their own region. And therefore this um, decision might also be taken by their uh, region. I, I can see, th this is theory, but if a region will um, react to its own president and the EXCO is saying no, then we will have a kind of a political situation that the EXCO is, uh, is not willing to take the decision which the region has taken. And that might create some problems between reg the region and World Bank Union. So I'm not sure that it should stay in, in, in the paragraph that it should be ratified by the EXCO. Then we have another remark by India. Uh, this is SK Rungta. Uh, I will endorse what uh, Aunt has just said on Kevin's uh, proposal. I mean, this is also a question of we have all the regions have their own constitution. So uh, we should not propose anything which is in conflict with WBU constitution and, and the constitution of a given region. So that's one point. The second point that uh, Manjula just made, you know, uh, in our regional constitutions, I, I know for sure for my regional constitution, and maybe the same, same case with other regional constitutions, where there are many ways of, the, uh, of conducting meetings of the executive. There may be even email meetings. So if we add the word present and voting, as she is suggesting, I think uh, we would uh, definitely be uh, landing up in a situation where the entire executive will not be having the opportunity to take part in such an important decision of re removing an elected uh, president. So I don't think that uh, the, 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 there should be any amendment to the amendment as proposed. And uh, both the proposals I would like uh, to be rejected, in fact. Thank you so far. Um, then we have another intervention by, who was it? Kenya Kenya Kutoya. Oh, is it? Si, buenos dias. Juan Rocoso, resident of the Organization of Guinea Equatorial. I am. Estoy de acuerdo con muchas de las. I agree with what my predecessors have been seeing. However, we should have a conduct of a code of conduct or an internal uh, code for regional uh, members and for the World uh, Association of Blind. So we are going to destitute an officer or a director. We're going to remove him. It should not be bar for a simple cause because we heard that he had done this, this or the other. There should be a minimum of, uh, of events that would lead to... Uh, 
considering removing that member. In other words, there must be a paragraph that states which which kinds of of of, uh, of wrongdoings or how many wrongdoings must that person commit uh, in order to be removed for just one thing it's not normal and i believe that instead of removing an officer uh, to submit him to a votation and see if really is it normal to continue in the position then we vote another one who's new and not uh, assign and I also think we should consider one more factor and that is that many times there are the rules of obligations that have to be followed there are obligations that in order for you to fulfill you need to have financing and backing many times we can blame an officer or a director who has not done his or her uh, duties. Maybe it's not his or her fault. Maybe it's because of external factors. So we have to be extremely cautious when it comes to proposing these uh, these amendments as far as uh, withdrawing officers from their position. Thank you very much. Intervention. I'd like to refer this to our president because it's, it's of uh, basic interest. But I, what I can say is what I have uh, experienced myself uh, that the executive and the officers really are doing a lot of inquiries before taking any such decisions or measures into account. Arndt, would you like to comment this? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. As I said, I, I hope this will never happen. This is only if, uh, if we need... I, I can think of uh, examples like, uh, the, 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 for example... Um, the president is not representing Verbrand Union in 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 a good way, and are not uh, listening to the decision take uh, which is uh, taken, and also try to to do something uh, on just on behalf of the president, not not the rest of the officers, and and so on. It I, I don't know if if people are feeling that this is too early. It should be more concrete and so on. I, I don't think it's it's hundred uh, percent uh, needed to, to take it through the general assembly today. But my, it is uh, saying it is. Then I then I will suggest that we 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 can live with this uh, wording. Uh, try to uh, live with this wording. I, I feel it will uh, hopefully never happen, and if it's going to happen, uh, and, and uh, people are uh, disagree that it should be uh, come in, uh, should be uh, affected, uh, used. I, I, I think we, we have so many people, good people in the in the organization, that no one will be. Uh, treated uh, and, and well, everyone will be a fair chance. And if it's needed, I think it's, it is really needed. So my proposal, uh, Wolfgang, will be that we take this into the uh, into the constitution now, and we will be very, very careful to um, to use it. So, um, as we are running out of time, there's just one more intervention I would like to take, and then I would like to close the debate, and we'll come to the voting process. Uh, the only thing I would like to ask, uh, Kevin, would you take your um, intervention as an official motion? Would you move it so that we have to vote on that first? 
in terms of uh, this question of ratification, of ratifying the decision by the region, by the executive? No, uh, I, I'm prepared to withdraw the amendment as long as the wording of the amendment is in the record of the meeting. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, there was one more intervention from, I think, from Guinea. Was it Guinea? Gambia, from Gambia, thank you. Yes. Uh, you get the microphone, please. I am Mohammed from the Gambia. I just have an observation. Um, as I understand that uh, the Constitution um, is always a supreme document or a supreme law um, that governs a country or an organization, um, I have uh, made an observation here which is, um, I think, the constitution of WBU as well as uh, the constitution of uh, other regional unions do not need to have conflict against one another. And I believe if there is a conflict of any of these regional constitutions um, with that of WBU, then that of WBU shall prevail. Um, looking at uh, the disi disciplinary matters, um, regarding where it says the disciplinary matters regarding a regional um, regarding a regional president is at the discretion of the regional union. Um, I am thinking that uh, instead of being the discretion of the re regional union, it should be at the discretion of um, WBU. My reason for backing um, this is that if any of the um, regional president or sorry table officers happen to breach any of the laws or the written policies of WBU, um, if WBU is able to take re such recommendation to the um, regional union, uh, I think that is going to be a conflict because if the discretion is solely vested on that of the regional union and not WBU, then what is going to be uh, the purpose of a particular clause in the section where WBU itself may take an action against anyone that has breached any of the laws or written policies of WBU. So I'm thinking the discretion should be uh, on that of WBU who have actually forwarded the complaint to the regional um, union. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we've heard all the interventions to, um, through the debate. Now, I would like to open up the voting process right now. You've had heard the amendment, and all those in favor, please, please say aye. Aye. Anybody against, please say no. 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 Okay, the ayes have it then. Thank you very much. This is not unanimously passed, but the ayes have it. Thank you. That brings us to item number 10, to the amendment number 10. And this amendment clarifies how support may be provided for delegates attending the General Assembly. The Article 9, Section 2. Here's the new wording. Part of the union's income shall be set aside 
for offering financial assistance to delegates of national members in an effort to ensure that each national member is represented at the assembly. In countries which are where are national members, the assistance should be offered to delegates coming from organizations of blind people. Resources is restricted to low-level and low-mid-level national members who are in good financial standing and its allocation will reflect regional, gender and other WBU diversity priorities. And this brings us to the end of amendment number 10. The debate is open. Okay, so we come to the voting process. Anybody in favor of this amendment, please loud and clear say aye. aye. Anybody against, please say no. This is unanimously been passed. Thank you very much. So just for procedural reasons, reasons, thank you. For procedural reasons, I now declare the whole 10 points again for voting. So please, all those who are in favor of all these amendments, please say aye. Aye. Anybody against, please say no. One no, thank you. So, these amendments have been, with the vast majority, been accepted. Thank you very much for your cooperation. And thanking again our CEO for providing this draft, I'd like to refer this debate and this uh, session back to our president because there are other items to deal with right now. Thank you very much for your attention. Oops, the microphone is back. For your attention, and uh, so I can declare my task as coming to an end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wolfgang, and uh, thank you for your sharing of this uh, this uh, point uh, in the agenda. We know that it can be difficult, but you made it easy for us. So thank you very much. We have some more uh, we need to come through before the tea break. And uh, now we are going to have a report from the nominations uh, committee by uh, the chair of uh, the committee, William Rowland. Please, William. Thank you, President. Good morning. The Nominations Committee met again at 6 p.m. last evening to review the situation with nominations. Already yesterday, we elected Frederick Schroeder as the new president, and we congratulate him on that. And that was with acclamation. Um, we now proceed to the position of first vice president.
I can report that we have only one nomination. Fernando Riano of Spain. I now put a motion to the House that Fernando be uh, elected by acclaim. All those in favour, say aye. Excellent. Thank you very much. We proceed to the position of Secretary General. Here we have two nominations. First nomination, David Okon of Nigeria. Second nomination, Ajay Kumar Mittal, aka Mittal of India. Um, in due course, these candidates will be allowed to address you and uh, the election arrangements will be announced. We now proceed to the position of Treasurer. Yesterday we informed you that there were two nominations. Mr. Ahmad Alusi has, however, withdrawn, and the reason he is given is doing this to strengthen the representativity of women in the table offices. And so we have one nomination, Martine Abel Williamson. I now put a motion to the House that Martine be elected with acclamation. We now move on to the position of second vice president. Here we have had one withdrawal. The withdrawal is Fire Al. Azmi, the candidate from Kuwait. That leaves us with four candidates. First candidate, Mohamed Kubali from the Gambia. Second candidate, Mohamed Izawi from Morocco. Third candidate, Eli Macha from Tanzania. And the final candidate, Diane Bergeron from Canada. Uh, I draw your attention to the fact that we can receive additional nominations up to 6 p.m. today. And to do that, you will have to go to the WBU office, number 243, on the second level. President, that concludes my report for today. Thank you.
Yeah. Um, just the, uh, the number of the office where you must submit any further nominations is 247. Room 247 on the second floor. Thank you. Okay, um, the time uh, for nominating the second vice is uh, till six o'clock. So we will come back and give you the opportunity to speak uh, later. But now we will have, uh, give the, the candidates for the Secretary General a chance to present themselves. And then I give the floor to uh, A.K. Uh, Mittel as the first candidate. The procedure will be like this. You will have three minutes, and I will be sharp on three minutes and uh, to, to give a speech. And uh, then we will come back and give information of how we are going to proceed with the, with the election. A.K., are you ready? Mr. President, distinguished delegates and friends, I come to you in all humility to make a few submissions on how I could prove worthy of the trust and confidence you would repose in me by voting for me. As per the prescribed roles, the Secretary General has the onerous responsibilities of functioning as the standing reference in the administration of the operations of the Worldwide Union, in overseeing meetings, policies, position statements, communications, membership applications, etc. I submit that my experience of work at the national and international level, spanning a period of 45 years, starting at the national level in 1970, will stand me in good stead in performing these vital responsibilities. During these years, I have had the honor of holding or being assigned a number of important positions and responsibilities, including as treasurer at WBU since 2008. However, my purpose here is not to blow my own trumpet, but to give you, dear delegates, a solemn assurance of standing by you in all matters within the WBU constitutional framework and the prescribed roles of Secretary General. In particular, friends, I promise to A, 
respond to your communications promptly. B, work with you and the regional presidents to resolve all pending membership issues. C, pay special attention to the concerns as these would relate to the Secretary General's roles of all countries, whether from developing or developed regions. D, work with all sincerity and diligence as a cohesive member of the WBU team of officers in performing any tasks that may be assigned to me. In conclusion, friends, I commit myself in all sincerity and earnestness to working for the fulfillment of tasks prescribed for the Secretary General and for the support of members should you find me worthy of your valuable vote for the position. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. A.K. Middle. And the next person will be David Ducan from Nigeria. Are you ready? Okay. You come. May, may, may I ask you to come up, uh, David? Someone can uh, guide David up to the podium. You shall have the same chances as the others. Let me just take this time to also congratulate uh, Fernando as the first vice president of the World Bank Union and also Martin uh, being the treasurer, it will be a pleasure to work with you both, and I'm looking very much forward to that. Congratulations. Good morning, everybody. My name is David Okon from Nigeria. Um, from, I've been the president of Nigeria Son of the Blind for eight years. Prior to this, I worked at the charter level, advocating for the blind persons, blind partially sighted persons of Nigeria. I went from there to the uh, regional level. I was a member of the board of the African Union for four years, representing West Africa, Zone 1 then. In all of this, and many others, have had the passion to work with determination to see the inclusive inclusion of blind and partially sighted persons in the society. I have studied the work of the blind, uh, World Blind Union, and in truth, 
they've done so much work. I wish to join this group of able men and women, bringing a perspective of, the, of one of the most undeveloped countries to the board, giving our experience, our determination, our views to balance at the board, knowing that the world we live in may be developed or developing. Blind people want a share, a fair share, their place in the society. Sometimes, yes, we are so wonderfully blessed by the work of the World Blind Union projects. But our idea is to also bring our experience to improve whatever this work is, knowing that our perspectives sometimes differ. I promise to work with the rest of the team to see that the society is a more conducive place. Knowing that the bulk, the majority of persons with disabilities, blind and partially, live in developing countries, to work with the developing countries to see how the uh, SDGs will be oppressed. And in conclusion, I'm told my time is up, <laughs> that um, we will make the CRPD workable in our countries. Thank you, and I, I await your votes. Thank you, David. Uh, now I will ask uh, Tadia Iversen, the returning officer, to come and explain how we are going to vote. We are going to have uh, the first voting, and I will ask Tadia to explain the procedure before we get going on. Tadia, you are here. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tari Iversen from Norway, and uh, with me in the election committee, I have three more members. That is Javier and uh, Patricia and Marie Camille. Our plan is that when, uh, when you come back from the tea break, we shall start distributing the voting papers. The reason being that you are a lot of people and the voting place is not a very big room, so we want you to, to get the voting papers and prepare yourself before you come into the, the voting room. You are going to be given an uh, envelope. It's a kind of a brownish, yellow, orange kind of big envelope, A4 size, like the one I'm holding in my hand for those that can see. That envelope today will contain one small envelope, which has been cut a little bit. Uh, if you're wondering why that envelope has been cut a little bit, it means that we 
We don't want you to sneak inside an, another envelope, so our envelope is special. <laughs> and together with that small envelope, today we have two small voting cards for the vote of Secretary General. The card has both Braille and large print. So one of the cards say A.K. Mittal, and the other card says David Ocon. So then you pick the candidate that you want to vote for, and you put his card in the small envelope. So when you come up to the voting room, you will be putting the small envelope in the voting box. And if you bring the big envelope, we have a place to dispose of that in a, in a kind of a dustbin or garbage box so that we don't want extra voting materials to be floating around in the, in the hall. It will make it uh, yeah, more difficult. So we will appreciate if you bring also the big envelope and dispose of it in the, in the voting room. We will be two teams from the election committee. We are two and two, so we will start uh, going around. Maybe one team will start from down on this side, and the other team will start from the back. And then we will work going around, giving out uh, the voting papers. And we have been provided with a list of the delegates that have voting rights. We have also been provided with a list of proxies. So we will then hand out the voting paper plus the proxies to whoever is carrying proxies. I want you to, to, when you receive the envelope, I would like you to check inside, make sure there are two voting cards for two different persons and a small envelope. If there is any problem, you let us know immediately. We will not give out voting papers again, so if you lose them, then you basically lose your chance to vote. So take care that you don't lose your voting paper. The voting will take place in the hospitality suit number 244, which is, on, which is on second level. It is in the same corridor where the WBU has its office, and also the same corridor where there, I think there is a kind of a hospitality meeting place for the, for the volunteers. So you can either use the stairs up to second level or you can take the lift up to second level. And we have a lot of volunteers that will try to organize the queue and to make sure that you, you get into the voting room and are able to cast your vote. And you, so when you come back from the tea break, it's very important for us that you sit down on the correct place. You sit down with your country delegation where the sign is for the, for the country. And it's very important that you carry your badge because you are identified by your badge. And you, when you go to vote also, you need to carry your badge. And you need to come and put the vote yourself. Don't give your vote to somebody else to put it in the box. That will not be approved. So everybody that is voting will have to go to the voting room. Um. Yeah, I think, and the voting will then start uh, during the lunch hour. So I would encourage, not, not please don't come everybody in the last moment. We, let, we don't have a system for spreading it out, but I will encourage 
some to come immediately and some to come in the middle and some to come towards the end, but definitely there, there might be a queue because the, the corridor is a bit narrow and the room is not all that big, but please don't wait till the last moment to go and vote. That can bring a problem for us with the, with the movement of people. I think that is all for now. I, I hope I can get a chance maybe to, to remind people about this just before we go for, um, yes. for the lunch. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tarja. Very clear. And uh, we will make... Tarja will come back before lunch and make a repeat. But, so, so, so we, will, uh, we will hear this once more. But the voting is closing at 2.30, is it? 2.30 closing. The voting is closing 2.30. But we, it will be a reminder later on. Um, Mark Maurer. Now we are going to talk about food. Food? Food. We got dinner or something like that? Oh, 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 food. <laughs> food. Gala dinner. Good. Um, I have three announcements, in fact. The gala dinner is one of them. I have to make a guarantee to the hotel here soon about how many people are going to serve, and we have to f uh, establish the uh, set for the gala dinner, which will happen in this room, and uh, I need to do that soon. So what I want you to do, you have an invitation to the gala dinner in your packet of material. I think it's in your badge. But in any case, I would like you to go to the welcome desk and let the welcome desk know that you're coming, if you're coming. Your invitation you can turn in at the welcome desk for a ticket to the banquet which you will need. So please do that. The gala dinner is on the 24th at 7.30 and uh, you'll need your ticket in order to get into the gala dinner and also it tells me how many people to guarantee for the gala dinner. So please do that. Secondly, there are some spaces, the last I knew there were five spaces left for rides in the blind drivable automobile which happens on Monday afternoon. And if you want to ride in that automobile with a blind chauffeur, then you will need to uh, sign up also at the welcome desk, so please do that. And the third message that I have, Mr. President, is that the uh, exhibit hall opens tomorrow morning at 10, so those of you who want to have the opportunity to visit the exhibit hall, there is a schedule for it. It is open for three days, and uh, we have a number of very exciting exhibits, and I urge you to take a moment during the course of the General Assembly to visit the exhibits in the exhibit hall. Anything else, Mr. President? No. I have done my part. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> um, I, I can see that I have still some minutes left before the tea break. Is uh, Fernando and uh, Martin in the meeting hall? Fernando and Ma Martin, are you here? Could, could you, uh, I, I would just give you a chance to say some words to the General Assembly. We have uh, still five minutes left, so if you would like to come up and say, uh, give us a short message to the uh, main hall, uh, I will give the chance to do that now.
Well, uh, thank you very much, Mr. President. Muy buenos días, queridos amigos. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, members of this big family, the World Blind Union, Trolley is. My name is Fernando Riaño. I'm 40, partially sighted since birth, married, and father of three kids, and member of ONCE from Spain. I'm currently senior manager in our organization in charge of corporate social responsibility, communications, and corporate affairs of the ONCE Foundation, too, and I have extensive experience in small, medium, and large organizations and companies, especially at international level. ONCE, through my predecessors, thank you very much, especially Enrique Perez, thank you, has sought to have a strong presence in, in the highest level in the World Blind Union, thereby contributing to its success and, and achievements through all our support and engagement. I will continue to count on the full support of my organization. We have absolute commitment to keep pushing forward the World Bank Union as first Vice President, thank you very much again, at this very, very important moment when we are making the 10th anniversary of the United Nations CRPD, realizing the human rights and fundamental freedoms of visually impaired people. We live in a time of extraordinary change, very important changes that's affecting and reshaping our lives, our work, our, our future. And, well, no one said it will be easy, but no one thought we would come this far. Thank you to all that have worked so hard to bring the World Blind Union where we are now. I admire your work, I admire your effort, I admire your background to be here, and I will work to ensure that everybody will feel included in the World Blind Union, regardless of the region or the language, with your support, with the teamwork, with the new strategic plan, taking really on board and listening to our six World Blind Union regions for an even wider geographic and cultural diversity participation, we are here today getting a World Blind Union more inclusive, more self-sustainable, more efficient, and even closer to each and every one of its members. Chukra Grasilan, merci beaucoup. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Morning, everybody. I'm Martine Abel Williamson, and um, I live in New Zealand. Although I was born in Namibia, in Southwest Africa, and I grew up in South Africa, so I'm quite a global resident. I think I, I'd like to thank the people who encouraged me to to step up the leadership. And WBU is in a very interesting yet challenging position at the moment, financial-wise. So I think it will not be a boring time. I think it will be very challenging, and I think I will probably learn a lot and need a lot of support from, from colleagues around me, especially AK. I, I think um, inheriting 
a very tidy job after someone did it for eight years. That person then set themselves up to be the next person's mentor, whether they maybe want to or not. Um, I just want to um, express my, my appreciation to my colleague who stood initially as treasurer um, and um, I, I haven't even met you yet and it will be great to, to keep you involved because I think that this is not a one-person job. There's always committees and working groups and I hope that you standing aside for me doesn't mean that um, you're standing away but just to be involved in a, in a different way. So thank you again for that. Um, So thanks for, for people's support, and I look forward to working with you and um, to learn a lot from you and to give to this organization as it's giving a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. We are on time. The coffee break is uh, coming up now, and we will be starting... No, we, are, we, we, we will come back at 11 o'clock and we start at 11 o'clock. Thank you so much. Okay, sounds good. Okay, everybody, uh, we are on tea break. And I was say uh, that, that first session of today uh, dealt with a lot of uh, WBU business. Of course, the main thing this morning was the amendments to their constitution. And ten of those amendments, right, Larry? Yes, there that, were ten of them. Boy, and did they go through them quickly. Yes. We only had, I think, one amendment that had opposition. All others passed unanimously. Right. It, it was quite interesting, though, as we discussed the one that did have a number of delegates stand up to speak to it, how the chair dealt with having three different, as I counted them, three different proposals to alter it. What they call them? Interventions? Right. I think was the word? Yes. And uh, they did discuss it, and uh, as I counted anyway, two of the three were withdrawn by the makers with an understanding that they'd be reflected in the minutes. But I, I had a difficult time following the disposition of the third person's. But when they did go to vote, it was all but, as I counted it at least in the room, two no votes, and everybody else was a yes vote. So it did pass Actually, and I was think adopted. there was only one no vote. Uh, I heard one in the back that maybe you didn't hear. That's there was definitely possible. one in the front left and then one in the back right. It's okay. difficult here in this room because there are delegates that are seated at tables, and they all have the right to vote. But there are at least as many individuals sitting as observers in the back row of chairs. So a voice vote requires a personal commitment to fairness, not to shout out in one way or the other uh, when you are an observer and not a voter. There's an awful lot of trust involved in this process, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, again, uh, a great deal of it has to be taken on faith. And at least during the sessions and uh, quadrennials that I've attended, they've been pretty honorable group of people here making sure that they properly represent their nations, their organizations, etc. So 10 
constitutional amendments. I just think about how much time it would have taken us to do that at our national conferences. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, um, we had a question from uh, one of our listeners. Uh, Greg from Olympia, Washington, wrote in, and thanks for the compliment on the uh, broadcast, uh, Greg. And he wanted to know if the World Blind Union uses a parliamentarian. And the answer to that is no. Uh, they are an international organization, and the their constitution is the only governing document that guides them. And that constitution has to be flexible enough to adhere to the rules of many different countries as far as their procedures go. Exactly. And so instead of having things such as motions and amendments to to those motions and call for discussions and then uh, a voting process uh, that's perhaps more rigid than we're used to uh, in those countries who utilize Robert's Rules of Order as their standard. They have to build much more into their constitutions to deal with the nitty-gritty of that whole process. So again, no parliamentarian. However, they are very cautious to live within the procedures outlined within the Constitution. Uh, I have not, again, in the years that I've been here, heard anybody uh, intervene feeling that proper procedure was not being done within the hall relative to elections and and the handling of motions and those kinds of things. Good question, Larry. Good question. And we really appreciate individuals who are listening if they do have some questions they'd like us to either answer directly or or seek out an expert on that area and bring them to the microphone we'd love to hear from you and how can they email us wbu at acbradio.org and then of course we have if you're using twitter you can mention us at acb radio and we can respond there as well so Larry's monitoring those while he's monitoring levels. He is one busy man, let me tell you. And again, here we, in past years, had a single feed that would automatically switch from an English speaker to a translation from a non-English speaker. And this time Larry's got his hands on those faders on the mixer board to uh, make those adjustments. And I think he's doing a spectacular job. Speaking of spectacular, how about the improvement in the quality of the sound from our translator feed, Larry? Well, that was uh, thanks to PSAV, which is uh, a third-party service that many hotels use for their audio and video needs. Uh, And thanks to them, they uh, corrected that problem because that uh, popping and all that that was heard yesterday was happening in the headsets that many of the observers were using for their different... uh, language translations and so that was happening literally in the translation uh, yeah. process rather than uh, our equipment or right. for that matter our internet connectivity and we all also ha- seem to have improved on internet connectivity here so today far, yes knock on wood if there was some anywhere near me i'd be doing that yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah definitely an improvement over yesterday afternoon yeah. We started out well yesterday morning, too, though, did we not? Yes, we did. Yeah, yesterday so, morning was stellar. Um, this morning's acceptable, but yeah, as we, the day goes flipped, on, uh, things get more difficult. We a couple of times just before the proceedings started, but uh, I made some adjustments, and we were able to stabilize and 
hold true uh, for uh, this morning. And we'll hope that continues throughout the rest of the whole time that we're here until uh, all of this is said and done. Okay, I have somebody who's joined me here at Mike 2, Larry, for an interview. We have time for that? I think we do. Okay, so I'm going to ask Sandra to get a little closer to me here so we can share this microphone. Sure. So I have with me, and why don't you just introduce yourself rather than me trying to put words in your mouth. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, ACB Radio. How are you all? Um, my name is Sandra Sermons, and I am the chair of ACB's International Relations Committee. And I'm very happy to be here with everybody this morning. Now, although you're not a delegate, you're one of those people we refer to as, um, what was the word I used just a moment ago? An observer. Observers here in the back of the room, right? Yes. And what have you th observed so far today? <laughs> that, is this your first WBU? It is indeed. Yes, yes, yes. So, what did you observe that is different here than perhaps you expected? Um, here, uh, the I was expecting, th because the only framework that I have for comparison is an ACB convention. And when we have discussions about constitutional bylaws and things of that nature, it, c it can be kind of ruckus and, and definitely active and a very, you know, vocal discussion. And here... Um, it sort of just flowed. Everybody voted, and it was in favor, and they just went from one amendment to the other. There were very few questions. Um, the only thing that I thought was a bit interesting was that um, they did not read the actual old language so that you could have a, a framework of comparison. So I was sort of confused because I really didn't know what the uh, original um, amendments were. But other than that, I'd say very peaceful, very... Um, on track, everything. Good. So, again, as we look at things, there was another thing dealing with the whole process of amending the Constitution. Yesterday, we did have a member ask, how can I get a hold of a hard copy, a Braille copy of the Constitution so that I can best represent my organization? And they indicated that it was available on the web, but not available in hard copy. And Having just discussed the issue of access to the web while in this room, it is not an easy thing to do on that process. So the delegates here had to have done their homework before they came. I think that's one of probably the bigger differences between what we do uh, in ACB and what they do in WBU. That is, they expect members to do their homework before they come. A, a great deal of what's discussed here has been published leading up to this event. Uh, and again, we didn't have any motions or any process that they went through the whole process of amending something. That could have been quite curious. So other than that, have you met any of the other national delegates? Um, well, I have, of course, seen, you know, Kim, Mitch, um, but mostly I, I have really um, try to focus on the international folks. And what I will say is that there is a huge representation 
Um, lots, I, as I'm going through the halls, there is lots of, there are various different languages being spoken at any given time. Um, it's kind of as if we have converged on the Rosen Center. I'm not sure that it will ever be the same again, but that's a good thing. Um, and it just, it is one of those lifetime kind of experiences. It sort of reminds me of the UN, um, except for, for people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, and also even though in a lot of instances there is a huge language barrier, um, I for one only speak English. Sometimes I wonder if I can do that. Um, th- there's a great deal of patience and tolerance and attempts to communicate. Uh, I am very pleased to see the m- number of like iPhones and Androids, and you know, and very innovative, very willing to try various things to communicate regardless of of the difficulties just the whole camaraderie that okay this is a global village for blind people and for people who have low vision and the goal here is togetherness teamwork cooperation um which is very good so specifically which countries if any have you had a chance to interact with you mentioned a lot in the hallway did you get a chance to share any meals or anything like that with any of our uh, internationals Meals, yes. Um, coffee. We went to markets, uh, the supermarket. So, um, so far, Brazil, India, Tanzania, Kenya, um, Nigeria, Finland, the Czech Republic, Japan, and China. Now, there's not too many places you can say you've spoken with people from those countries all in the course of one and a half days. And that's where we are at this point within this conference. Um, And the majority of them had some English speaking skills, but those who didn't would work through others. Yes, um, they they had at least some uh, hello. If uh, I, my name is, you know, and I'm from, my name is Sean, and I'm from Tanzania. They could say that much, and they wanted to know where I was from, um, what sort of work I do, what sort of things people do, people who are blind or low vision do here in this country, um, and and the approach to getting their um, trying to communicate has been interesting because some people throw out words in an, in an attempt that, okay, I can figure it out. Um, some people pull out iPhones and, and come up with an app and try to communicate that way. Some people um, grab other people that they think may be able to speak English or whatever language is needed and um, try that. I know that like this yesterday, um, I met someone from, um, well, she spoke Portuguese and I the little bit of Spanish I knew I I was able to at least uh, convey the basics and when she wanted to say something to me we ended up she ended up um, getting assistance from like three or four different people all so that they could ask me what's your room number so that I can we can take you to your room so it, it was a fairly straightforward question but I was amazed at the um, willingness and the and just the whole willingness to go above and beyond to at least try to communicate, and that's a really good thing. Yeah, Excellent. Some have Excellent. interpreters with them, but not all of them. No. Yes, it's it's true. Although we are doing things in three official languages: English, French, and Spanish. There are a number of people here who do not speak any of those three languages, and therefore are working through interpreters. 
uh, again, maybe doing a three-way exchange to make that happen. They communicate in, let's say, Arabic to somebody who knows Spanish to somebody who knows English in order to get the job done. But again, it's the willingness to put, put up with the delays that are inherent with that kind of situation, all in the name of communications and cooperation in that whole process. Um, you know, basically having to, I guess we as, you know, blind folks, visually impaired folks are accustomed to being resourceful. So we're just taking it to the next level. Okay. You know, it may be Braille or to um, have something read or something to that effect in our own countries, but it's the same principle. Okay. So over the course of the balance of this, how much longer are you going to be with us? Um, I think until Thursday. Okay. So we'd ask that you stop by again during the course of the week with any other observations you can bring our listeners. Again, it's interesting to hear from the perspective of somebody who's out there within this activity uh, what your impressions are. Again, we've been speaking with Sandra Sermons, chair of the American Council of the Blind International Relations Committee, uh, does programs during our annual conference to uh, welcome our international visitors to our convention. And this is uh, about as deep an end of the pool of international relations as you can get. Welcome to uh, the conference, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Bob. Yeah, thank what, you for this opportunity. What would really be neat, and I got to experience this, of course Brian has too, is attending the WBU in another country. And we, I did the, that in Thailand in 2012, and that was a very interesting and eye-opening experience just to see how you know a lot of other people live around the world i bet it was thank you very much for this opportunity just saying hello to all of my committee members if you guys are out there listening i hope you are um and um thanks again brian and hopefully i'll be speaking with you all soon thanks again sandra all right larry let me double check to see if moses is here is moses here he is not. But I do and think there's a couple 12, of people standing around Yeah, we've got 12 minutes left before they're due to recommence. So other aspects that I found interesting in this morning's session um, include how the electoral process is going to be handled, the whole balloting process. Dramatically different than we experience. Uh, paper balloting process for voting for any contested office, a uh, whole process by which those ballots were created and distributed. Apparently, there is a large envelope provided to each voting delegate. In that envelope is a smaller envelope and a ballot for each candidate. You're to take the ballot of the candidate you wish to vote for, put it in the small envelope, and go to the voting room, at which time you're asked to deposit your small envelope in the ballot box and your large envelope with uh, the unused ballot into another container. And then there will be a group of individuals who were appointed by the president and the uh, table officers, I believe, to do the counting of ballots. And then we'll hear the announcements here in the hall as that whole process is concluded. Right. And the way for that to work 
is they take nominations ahead of time. They don't take them straight off the floor like we do at the ACB conference. They uh, take them ahead of time, and then they really have a uh, pretty good uh, voting system going here, especially with the secret ballots. Well, I'm telling you that uh, it's a more elaborate process, and I've seen two or three ways the WB has attempted to do the balloting process, including a raised-lined ballot where you were expected to take a ballot with multiple names on it in Braille and large tactile letters and then uh, use a uh, like a stylus or nail to poke a hole in a circle next to the name that you wanted to do. Uh, this was an attempt to try to speed up this process but i think they've come across a way that works pretty well uh not too many spoiled ballots we in the united states of course experienced the dangling chad situation uh, a couple of presidential cycles back so this ability to be very clear the only ballot we see is the ballot you cast no way it can be a spoiled ballot all right we had somebody join us here and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, this is Rebecca Sheffield. I work for the American Foundation for the Blind, senior policy researcher in Washington, D.C. And you discussed with the delegates the results of a survey conducted internationally, correct? Yes. So in 2015, working with the World Blind Union, the American Foundation for the Blind, um, and the WBU Rehabilitation Committee put together a survey that went out in English, French, and Spanish around the globe, and we received 47 responses. Each response represented an entire country, so we asked questions like um, how many people or what percentage of, of the people who wish to receive in-home services are you able to provide those services to, and we asked about you know, whether um, the funding for those services came from the state or the from private groups. And we asked a lot of open-ended questions and got some fantastic feedback. So are you in the process of compiling the results of that data, or has that whole review of that been completed? So what... What I would like to call this preliminary survey has, has been completed and analyzed. The report was made available to the um, World Blind Union, and I know that it's up on the World Blind Union website now. And I assume that any good report has a request for following up research. So where do you expect that to take us? Well, one thing that we would hope to do is figure out what were the barriers such that of a the over 170 member nations of the World Blind Union, why was it that we only got 47 responses coming from a statistics background? And I know that those 47 responses were not representative of the of the entire World Blind Union. So we were, um, were hoping that we can have a process that's more accessible, perhaps making sure that we reach out in Arabic and other languages, um, but also transcultural, because you know, what we talk about as rehabilitation in the United States may mean something totally different. So we need to have those translator-facilitated interviews to get at um, all the different experiences. There has always been a problem in a low-incident population in trying to do surveys to come up with something that those who understand the numbers of this world would call statistically significant. What would those numbers look like for this kind of a survey? When, when we're talking internationally, it, w it would be hard to put a number on it because um, I could 
accidentally sample all of the um, the most developed countries in the United States and not sample countries that had completely different experiences if I if I picked um, names out of a hat. So we need to look at what percentage of the countries in Latin America are responding, what percentage of the countries in Africa are responding, and are we getting countries from dif- that have um, different language backgrounds, different cultural traditions. To me, that's much more important than a single number. So of the 47, did you say, countries that responded, we had a respondent from each because, for example, and I'm just using what I know, the United States has, I believe, over 10 organizations that make up our national delegation. When you say you had one respondent from the 47 different countries, did you have multiple respondents from some and single from others? And was it, because the WBU is an organization of organizations for the blind and organizations of the blind, was there any kind of numbers you could share with us there? We asked each country to work collaboratively on that process. So, um, you know, most of the work that I do has been in the United States, so I'm not familiar with um, the diversity of structures within all the, all of the different countries. I know in the United States we have multiple organizations, and their CEOs talked to one another and agreed upon the numbers that would be and the, the different responses that would come from the United States. Um, there were only a couple instances where where the instructions weren't clear, and we got multiple responses from the from different organizations within a country, and we asked those organizations to go back and, and work with each other to come up with a single answer. So earlier when you described having the need for translators to assist and getting answers by way of interview, uh, especially for those open-ended questions, um, how would you do that kind of thing on a grander scale? seems to me a couple of things are true. If you were to interview uh, more than one service provider in a given nation. One of that, those service providers might be a uh, school for the blind. Mm-hmm. Another one might be a private not-for-profit rehabilitation agency. Another one might be a government agency, uh, all of whom could be providing similar but not the same services and be experiencing things from a different point of view as a result of that. And then you try to come up with a national profile associated with that. By the way, I, I meant to also ask, did you get any other data from other sources other than the respondents that, that influenced the end result of this? So I gave you two different questions there. One is, how do you deal with the interview process and how indicative that is of the entire nation? And the other is, do you draw data from any other location, you know, things like population data, et cetera, et cetera, that influenced... Uh, the results of the analysis of the data? So I'll answer the second question first because that that one is a little bit clearer. The only outside data I used in in compiling the report was I was interested in, in knowing how representative the 47 responses were. So I looked at some World Health Organization data on the numbers of people with vision loss to see if we were missing, and for example, um, some of the well, the largest countries in the world um, in terms of people with vision loss and, and in terms of total population did not c- respond to the survey. So it's important to know. So I used those data. Um, and then as the my, my suggestion as um, 
moving forward, if we were to be able to proceed with some interview-based surveys, would be that, well, first of all, um, clearly the American Foundation for the Blind is not the only only group that should be involved in a survey like this. We need a team of researchers that are, are representative of of researchers in the field of blindness around the world working with one another because those researchers will know the best way to approach an interview in that in that cultural context who have experience working on the ground in those contexts and I would what I would love to see is a network of researchers and um, in particular people researchers who are themselves people who are blind or visually impaired working together using the internet and using um, these the new technologies to to meet regularly and to develop research plans that are cultural Really responsive and, and appropriate. Uh, sounds like a number of people are coming back into the hall and we don't want to interfere with that but I want to thank you personally for taking the time to come and speak with us also to thank you professionally for engaging in this kind of work. So much of what we've struggled to do over the years is we only can use anecdotal data uh, and it's good to have somebody out there who really understands research to be able to ask the questions in a way that we can rely on the resulting answers to those questions. Hopefully, the organizations throughout the world will be more responsive next time around, though I'm delighted at what they do now and that you've got 47 buy-ins. Let's look to see that number at least double the next time we come asking our questions so that we can benefit all the peoples of the world who are blind or visually impaired. Again, thank you for, for being on our show today. Uh, thank you so much, Brian. And, and folks can easily reach me through the um, afb.org slash stats, and my contact information is there. So thanks. Slash stats. You're going to be one of those slash this, slash that, slash the other thing kind Hi. of person, are you? <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you again. So, Larry, it's back to you. All right. It's uh, about the top of the hour, so they should be resuming things up on the stage very soon. People are starting to file in back into uh, Grand Ballroom C. They were over in Grand Ballroom A for their coffee and tea break. I've talked to a couple of people about that coffee and tea break business, and boy, it's it's a mechanism they have going over there. You will take a muffin. You will take coffee or tea. You will have a stir stick and a creamer (laughs) and a sugar, and you will take the whole package. None of this a la carte business. (laughs) So I think there's it's all or nothing at all in order to get all those people through and out again. Yeah. and so far, the muffin I had yesterday was pretty good. Hopefully something will follow on that this morning. I wonder, you know, when it comes to dietary things, Larry, what do you remember about the food they provided at breaks when we were in Thailand? Um, actually, it was a lot of it was pretty good. They had a lot of sweets for sure. Um, it was quite regional, though, don't you think? I mean, yeah. I ate some things I've never eaten before in my life. Uh, and what... You know, here we're talking about a muffin. Right. There you would not have seen no, a muffin, would you? No, it was definitely not a muffin. Yeah, was, <laughs> I think they had some baklava at one time. Yeah, it looked like baklava. And it, we also had uh, sweetened rice cakes. Yep. A lot of rice involved in yes. things while we were in Thailand. Uh, and rice, I, who ever knew there were that many different ways to make a rice kernel? Right. Uh, it was sticky cakes. It yeah. was toasted it was uh spoonable you know fall apart type like you might see in a pilaf but all of this and called rice yeah 
And it wasn't just one single snack. They'd give you a tray, like a sample of different things. Yes, a little piece of this, a little piece of that. And some of it was savory and some of it was sweet. Uh, The savory stuff I had to pre-test for my wife because she does not eat fish. And there were some savories that were definitely, shall we say, fishy. A lot of seafood there. A lot of seafood there, yeah. And it it was quite interesting. I wonder what delegates are going to come away with thinking what American cuisine is like based on what they're getting. Hmm. The muffin as a break item. I suppose that's pretty good, you know. I don't think that that's, yeah. uh, anybody would say, well, no, no, that's only in New England. It's pretty much nationwide, nationwide that you'd expect that kind US, of thing. Yeah. But not seen much in the way of variety. And yet I always thought that one of the differences here is our access to variety, being the melting pot nation. A little of this, a little of that. They're seeing a muffin, a cup of coffee, a tea, (laughs) Uh, a different uh, look at things, I think. So what is on the program following here, Larry? I believe we're going to get into less of the logistics and governance of the WBU and now into more topical discussions. I believe we're going to be talking about emergency preparedness. In all of its forms, in all of its forms. And this is definitely going to be an international component. While there will be some USA components to it, I believe we have a speaker here from uh, Homeland Security, for example. But we will also be hearing from elsewhere in the world. Lord knows that when we hear about natural disasters of one kind or another... um, Well, what's really going to be interesting is the fact that in the rest of the world... Not only do they deal with natural disasters like we do, but war is, is some of these war countries an, right a, in their backyard. Exactly. And how they deal and with... None of us in the U.S. have really ever had to deal with that, you know, on the front lines. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And when we talk about a lot of immigrants uh, coming through, a lot of refugees coming through, when we say a lot, it's not a very big percentage. While some of these countries are seeing a million people cross their national borders in need of assistance. Larry, have you ever met anybody who's blind or visually impaired who was a displaced person? I did once uh, in Thailand, actually. They talked about um, being displaced and having to run from, you know, their country, you know, in fear of their life. Over the course of my many years teaching blind people to use access technology, I've come across two or three individuals who were children living in camps in Cambodia and in Thailand and elsewhere in the world. And they, that was part of their childhood, was being a blind child in a refugee camp, being a blind child moving from one country to the next without access to anything close to traditional education. Uh, particularly if I may share a personal story. Uh, I had a young lady who was um, a blind child in a Cambodian refugee camp, eventually uh, brought by her extended family into the United States. And she was sitting uh, at a party that I throw for blind youth at my home. I've got a swimming pool in the backyard. So she's sitting in a chair next to the pool, probably seeing a life of affluence that she had never experienced before. And she tells me about being uh, the only blind person she knew 
until she was 12 years of age, being, um, you know, if you will, kind of a street urchin kind of individual in those camps because they weren't providing them with education of any kind. So the kids pretty much roamed up and down the uh, makeshift roads between the rows of tents that they were living in, being picked on in that environment because in a world where there's very little available for anyone, people have to pick and choose what makes me feel better about myself than about than somebody else might feel about themselves. So she suffered for, through those experiences. And then she was brought to the United States. And again, talking about that inconsistency, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, whether or not you're going to be living, sleeping under the stars or in a tent or uh, in a uh, home. And she arrived in the United States, was taken in by her uh, extended family here, only to find that uh, the extended family thought that they were getting free labor, uh, and the the child was pretty much used as a domestic and not sent to school for an additional four years until our uh, agencies that deal with the needs of young people uh, found out that her situation and moved her out of that. So she really didn't start her high school education until she was 16 years old. Uh, but she was a delightful person, and I've heard that she's gone on and uh, received a college degree and is employed now. So good things can happen, but boy, I'll tell you, sometimes the things people go through on their way to, to that experience is, is pretty heartbreaking. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, you just wonder how that can still happen this day and age, but it does. But it does, and it does of that nature pretty much in two-thirds of the world. We are we in the United States feel blessed that we have what we have. We'd like to have things better because while I've been talking about a young lady coming from a camp, I can tell you other stories about people who were born and raised in this country who suffered similar or in some cases more horrific stories in growing up as a blind child. Uh, for now, though, we're talking about positive things, but we're going to have to deal with the realities of natural, i.e. not man-made disasters, and man-made disasters here in the next session of the World Blind Union Quadrennial Conference here in Orlando, Florida. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Again, the room is now probably two-thirds filled with delegates and observers, and we're just moments before starting the next session yeah, here. Yeah, they're actually a little bit late getting started, but I So we don't know exactly the when of it. Way here soon. Exactly, exactly. So Larry, what other countries other than Thailand have you been to? That's the only one I've been to outside of the U.S. Uh, I've been planning to do some more uh, soon. We'll have, to, we'll have to give you some free time off the uh, ACB radio broadcast management process to give you a chance to take a real vacation. <laughs> Yeah, um, my most recent trip outside the country was to Brazil. We went to Sao Paulo, Brazil, for the meetings of the International Council on uh, Braille. I don't, I'm so used to saying English Braille, but it was not by any means an English Braille conference. Uh, it dealt with Braille of all varieties for all languages. And while there, it was quite, quite an experience, both culinary 
found things I very much enjoyed, uh, things I didn't at all expect. Landing in a city, you know, we're so used to here in the United States thinking that, you know, we're this industrialized, you know, big city kind of uh, place. But Sao Paulo is somewhere over four times the size of New York City. That came as quite the surprise to me. Quite the surprise. Of course, Brazil is a Portuguese-speaking nation. uh, But it's also this mix of the big city-type person and the rural-type person. Uh, There were certainly... When you think Brazil, what what do you think Brazil? Well, I do know that Portuguese is the language there. And I, I do think of it as a big city that probably has uh, you know a lot more people than oh. some of our major cities do they, they certainly do but then you also think of the Amazon don't you um, Brazil the Amazon sometimes I do but I think it's a little south of the Amazon isn't it yeah Sao Paulo definitely is yeah also down south there is the um, a different kind of area in terms of the ecology it's much more a dry zone of the country. The country right. is so huge north to south that you get virtually every kind of uh, type of environment from the Amazon, humid, rainy, to the southern desert type area. Uh, it's all fairly warm, though. The, the only difference in terms of warmth is elevation. You get up into the Andes, of course, and we're talking about a serious cold up there. But down along the seaside it's, and pretty much inland, it's pretty uniformly warm compared to what we experience here variety-wise in the States. Though the other day out here in Florida, it was plenty warm, plenty wet. I could have swore I was in a rainforest. Well, that's typical Florida. Typical Florida, <laughs> yeah. right. There you go. So it was interesting because um, while we were in Sao Paulo, we got a chance to deal with the organization that brought special education and adult rehabilitation to the to that country. Uh, got to see their space where they worked, and it was quite modern in its nature. But it also acknowledged that not all Brazilians are close enough to services that they can really take advantage of them. Uh, there's an awful lot of Brazil that is absolutely very, very rural. So, as with many of the other countries here at the WBU, the issue is you can get some services, but you have to be in the metropolitan areas to get them. How do we take those services and help them get into the communities when the communities are so diverse in the nature of what resources are available to them? And when there's a limit as to the number of individuals who are capable of doing things like teaching, orientation, and mobility so that the blind person can get around independently, so they can get literacy skills, especially in those nations where literacy is the exception for all populations, not just for those who are blind or visually impaired, where they can have an opportunity to be employed. Again, in our nation, when we talk about employed, most of the time we're talking about going someplace for, for a particular number of hours a day, performing some service, and then on a regular basis getting a check that pays us for our time. But in many of these nations, employment is self-employment. It's uh, owning chickens. It's uh, 
some doing some kind of work in agricultural kind of environments, providing a home business where you provide, say, uh, a small restaurant type experience. So it's very, very different from what we describe in the West as employment. Right. And therefore, and, our mode. And a lot of, of them use the barter, percent. too. Big difference. They still use the barter system. Absolutely. Where they trade goods trade, back and forth trade goods of and services. Money. Certainly. And as a result, I mean, success is measured differently. If you're capable of putting a roof over your family's head, you're capable of keeping food on the table, you're capable of providing your children with an opportunity to be more educated than you are and move that forward through the generations, that's how you would describe success. Not necessarily in dollars and cents, not necessarily in degrees earned, but rather improving from generation to generation. And how this all applies to those who are blind and visually impaired, of course, is we have a, a second level we're trying to deal with. We're a, what I was referring to our statistician friend and interviewee just a few moments ago as a low incident population. There simply aren't enough of us in one space unless we collect in metropolitan areas to make it financially uh, feasible to provide some of the services that we take for granted. So it's interesting to see. Remember, we had a delegate who was complaining about the high cost of a white cane. And oh, yeah. then we had delegates who complained about the high cost of a screen reader. What a difference just between those two things in defining what is um, needed to become independent and needed to become self-sufficient uh, in this world. Well, I can't believe that they're not starting yet, Larry. I mean, this room is as crowded Rooms. as it has been since we've been here. Yeah, I think we're back to pretty close to full capacity again. So... And they seem to be well-fed. They're all milling about. I, I yeah. think that they've, they're getting close to their seats, and we should be starting any moment. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and bring up the house now and because I have a feeling they're going to want to get started here because they're getting pretty late now. And I know they'll want to try to move things along and get to that all-important lunch break. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything is based on the next meal. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. You yep. again are listening to Larry Turnbull and Brian Charlson broadcasting over ACB Radio. Live event. Live event. And uh, we're pleased to bring you the Quadrennial Conference and Convention of the World Blind Union.
Michiko? Yes. Uh, I can introduce uh, Gary. Yes. If you, if you feel that's okay for you. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yes. 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 yeah, this is the next to me. Next to right. Okay. And. Uh, yeah. Please, can you find your seats? We are soon going to start. Please, I'm happy. You should not hear me now because we are going to have a session, but I would like to introduce for you a guest uh, we have here in, uh, in uh, our assembly. Some years ago, I went to the Philippines to visit the General Assembly of uh, the World Congress for Deaf-Blind Persons. And uh, it was a very nice, uh, nice experience. Um, we are later today going to talk about um, risk reduction and uh, disasters and everything. Uh, I met a girl from Japan there. She was deaf-blind and she was, si she was sitting in a wheelchair. She was sitting in a wheelchair and she explained for me how it felt when the big catastrophe with the tsunami and everything hit Japan. It was very touched to, be, be, to, to hear about that. But um, 
I, I was also representing World Bank Union in that uh, Congress, and uh, I would like to introduce to you the president of uh, World, Deaf, uh, World Blind Deaf uh, Federation, Mr. Geir Jensen. He is a colleague, Norwegian, uh, and, and he is actually working in the same, same building that, that I do back in Oslo. Uh, he is coming before me in the morning, and I, I think he is leaving after me in the evening. He is a very hard-working person, and he has been always very active and very uh, eager to represent the deaf-blind persons, and he has uh, used all his capacity and life to, to fight for the rights of deaf-blind persons. So I would like to introduce to you Mr. Geir Jensen and give him a, a big hand, please. Kære delegater, kære venner. Dear delegates, dear friends. Mitt navn er Geir Jensen, Dublin fra Norge, president i Verdensforbundet av Dublin, WFDB. My name is Geir Jensen. I'm a deafblind person from Norway. I am the president of the World Federation of the Deafblind. Det er en glede for meg å være til stede her og overbringe med hilsen fra Verdensforbundet av Døvlin, WFDB. It's a true honor for me to be here and to join your meeting and to be able to further bring greetings from the WFDB. WBU og WFDB har hatt et godt samarbeid i mange år, spesielt i Ida. Og vi håper at, eller vi ser frem til å fortsette det gode samarbeidet videre. WBU og WFDB har for mange år joined a good collaboration and work together, especially through our membership in AIDA, and we look forward to many years of good cooperation yet to come. Dere har oppnådd mange gode resultater i årenes løp, som også langt på vei har kommet døblinde i verden til gode. You have received good results through many years and we in the world society of people with deaf blindness have learned a lot from you and also enjoyed following after you in that path vi vil gratulere dere med de gode resultater dere har oppnådd gratulere dere med et godt gjennomført generalforsamling så langt og vi ønsker dere lykke til i arbeidet videre. Vi vil gratulere dere med alt du har oppgitt så langt, og gratulere dere med en velkarret generalassembli, og vi vil gjøre alt det beste for de dagene som kommer. 
Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Well, I, I don't know if it's morning or afternoon. It's something between. Um, this is going to be the last session before your lunch, so I hope you s- keep your patience a little bit longer. And I'm sure you are hungry, but please wait for a few bit more time because this is going to be very serious and important uh, session, namely, of course, on emergencies and disasters. I remember four years ago in Bangkok, I was here in the, on the podium sharing we, with you the experiences of the huge earthquake on March 11, 2011. Four years passed, and a lot of tragedies continued to happen, one of them being countless lives lost or injured through all these conflicts in Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, Libya, you name it. And we have also been having many natural disasters, like the one in Ecuador, which you might remember, or the Nepal, or the the typhoons in the Philippines. Even back home in our country, we had a big earthquake in April in the western part that destroyed hundreds of thousands of houses and thrown blind people into that hard situation of evacuation. Today, we are actually faced with a little bit of an emergency because the program shows four speakers, and unfortunately, two of them are not here. So we are facing with our own disaster uh, response today. I hope you will support with us. Um, First, um, okay, so, Mr. Don, Ms. Donatila Kamimba from Rwanda was unable to come because of the visa issue and the last-minute funding issue. And I will also talk to you later about Ms. Marcy Roth from FEMA, stand, which stands for Federal Emergency Management Agency of the United States government, is also unable to come. But... Um, we will manage, and there are a lot of resources around this hall. So our hope is that you bring back all these impo- important issues and ideas back home because this is your issue wherever you live. So let's first welcome our first speaker from Jordan. I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, Mr. Ahmed Mohammed Munsi Alozi. He is going, he is, has some works with the uh, refugees from Syria with disabilities in the refugee camps in Jordan. This is going to be something that we all would really want to hear. So, Mr. Alozi, the floor is yours. Everybody. And I'm very pleased to be here and attending the General Assembly between all the blind people in the world 
I am standing with all of you sharing experience under the umbrella of World Blind Union. Is there English translation? Eleven million refugees since the crisis in Syria. 4.8 million Syrians are refugees and 6.5 million are displaced within Syria. Half of those affected are children. Most Syrian refugees remain in the Middle East, in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq and Egypt. Slightly about 10% of the refugees have fled to Europe. Concerning the Syrian refugees in Jordan, we had held different workshops and activities for disabled Syrian refugees in Jordan in cooperation with different agencies working on refugees issues in Jordan. The time when we start working with the refugees started in early 2013. It was very difficult for both of us and the refugees to identify the gaps and the miserable situations. At the beginning, there was no exact number of the persons with disabilities from Syrian refugees. Honestly, we tried in 2013 to calculate and search for the information from the agencies that are working inside the camps and outside. Even we tried seeking the information from the government and the UN agencies, but unfortunately there was no number of the persons with disabilities that time. And even now, this is because both the government and the agencies were and still dealing with the name and number of the refugees, despite the disability situation of him or her. So we had to find at the beginning a way to find how many disabled persons we have to work with at the beginning. On the first step, we have created committees and convents to find exactly how many persons with disabilities we have. In the first Zaatari camp for Syrian refugees, when finishing the six-month research, we have found exactly that inside the Zaatari camp, which is the big camp for Syrian refugees in Jordan, we have 1,232 persons with disability there. This is, of course, the exact number which no one knows that time. We have entered every tent and every room and every room and every street. Outside the camp, via our cooperation with the other NGOs, we have found that we have 2,981 persons with disability are there. Those people who had registered themselves to get financial assistance outside the camp. So we have, as a result, one. 1,332 plus 2,981 equal 
4,313 persons with disability in Jordan among Syrian refugees by the end of February 2015. Through the questionnaire and research that we have made 2013 and up to 2015, we found that 48 percent are being new disabled as a result of Syrian crisis, bomb or attacks, while 52 are of normal disability from birth. Of course, we have to consider the increase of persons with disabilities from 2015 till now. We think as our final results that there reach 5,873 persons with disabilities, new persons with disabilities among Syrian refugees in Jordan. The blind of them is 40 percent. The problem wa was with these people of disappointment because there were no special care services for them at all. As I mentioned at the beginning, the persons with disability who entered board were dealt as names but not as what services they need. They concern of the names only. In the camps the situation was very miserable and disappointed. There were no accessibility services at all. Most of them have to depend on others to get less of services. No roads, no special hospitals and only three normal unspecialized schools for UN. Of course, numbers of persons with disability were of mental disability, vision disability, mobility disability, and of multi-disabilities. We have met through the three years the following. We hold 12 activities. These activities focused on the basic education on right of persons with disabilities, and to highlight the gap and the challenges for persons with disabilities in accessing mainstream services and simple practical steps to overcome these barriers. We have focused on both the context of emergencies, relief situations, and development contests, and also to focus on teaching emergency skills and daily life skills. Unfortunately, what we found during the training and workshops that the persons with disabilities refugees need more efforts and we have set the priority of their needs as follow depending on the direct questionnaire with the persons with disabilities. Number one, because there are no accessible services provided in the camps, persons with disabilities need at the first priority some accessible supplies which help them accessing the camp services, roads, schools, and the clinics. Because most of people did not get, for example, white cans, wheelchairs, etc. Number two, medical services. As I mentioned to you, there is only some mini hospitals. I named it as a clinics, which is not performing any treatment for the persons with disabilities but only give small surgery
and normal medicine. Most of the persons there were in need to some surgeries, but it is, it is not available in the camps and there is no other option to go outside the camps. This, this of course, as mentioned by Ministry of Health and other resources, will need, because that, will need more funds. Number three, rehabilitation. Most of people there are even, even the agency staff does not know what disability means. This is, of course, made huge problems to classify the persons with disabilities and those of non-disabled. Rehabilitation also is very needed to make the persons with disabilities get more information about the CRBD and their needs, more training also for some skills will be of good results. And how we can get their own services and training in some skills. They need it. Also, however, as I mentioned before, this study and report was ended at the beginning of 2015. Now I think we have more to do and more numbers as we are today. As reported by government in Jordan, official total for Syrian refugees, including resident and refugees, as mentioned in 2016, the total number of Syrian refugees in Jordan reached 1.3 million Syrian refugees in Jordan, inside and outside the camps. And this means that the number is increasing and there will be more needed to do. Finally, I don't know if I have missed some points. Please feel free to ask for any clarifications that you feel it needs more. This is the information that I have for today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening again. Thank you for all present, for all the World Blind Union staff. Thank you very much, Mr. Alouzi. I, I will not comment too much into details because this, I'm sure we all understand from our hearts the challenges that the refugees with disabilities are facing in such war times. Let's move on to the next speaker, Mr. Gabriel Escobar from Guatemala. He's going to present to us the issue of natural disaster from the Latin American context, which I personally do not have many chances to listen to. Guatemala, uh, Gabriel? Yes. 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 Yes.
Buenos días, good morning, buen día. Respetable público de la Asamblea General de la Unión Mundial. public of the Assembly. For me, it is a true honor to be able to share with you this important subject. My name, as I told you before, is Mr. Gabriel Escobar, and I am representing Guatemala through the University of San Carlos of Guatemala. And to begin, I would like to tell you that this, uh, this stage moves a lot. I thought it was an earthquake many times to find ourselves in front of this kind of situation in this kind of events which catch us by surprise and off guard makes us reflect and ponder on the subject and here is where the professionals need to recognize these situations which are in all the world that the loss of work that this creates, loss of property, loss of goods, loss of family members, and all of these conditions which are so unfavorable to a society as a whole. In this way, it identity is affected, autonomy is affected, and so is human liberty. In the Convention on Rights for People, for Handicapped People, Article 11 reflects practically these situations of, these situations of risks and uh, emergencies, humanitarian emergencies. The states should generate responses to this problem under international right and especially humanitarian international rights offering protection safety and security to people who are disabled and this includes these conflicts such as wars in this whole situation where my friend who recently exposed and Something else at the international level, an instrument or a tool which we should know of and we should dwell upon in order to generate the necessary reactions from our entities in our countries of reducing risks. The S&A mark. This declaration or this statement, which in 2015 is evaluated in Japan. Therefore, the states or the countries take again this commitment of having a response in front of disaster risks. Here, there is something very interesting, and that is that as a co-worker said yesterday during her intervention about Ecuador, when we were talking about the silent vehicles, among the strategies, we should include all the people in general. For example, children and women, elderly, and 
people who are handicapped or disabled. And this highlights something even more important, and that is the poverty aspect situation, which aggravates the issue. And it is very complex to solve in poor countries. I would even venture to say poor countries because regularly between uh, saying in the process of development or subdeveloped is really a fallacy. Poor countries continue being poor countries and it is much more complex to solve the problem that represents certain necessities. It is important also to mention that during the last 10 years, disasters have generated human loss, and this is at the level of Latin America where it shows in a very important manner where 700,000 people have lost their lives, where 1,400 million are injured because of these disasters, and 23 million have, do not have household or property because of a series of natural and unfortunate events and others provoked by human beings. Likewise, in general terms, uh, 15 million or 15 billion, there is this reflection that, po that population is in a vulnerable position. In the Latin American region, we estimate 450 million people in in difficulty of this of this nature, which even families who have a disabled person amongst them is in in a much more vulnerable situation. The countries with low resources could find some strategy through the international cooperation or funds in World Banks or the World Bank or international monetary funds. So therefore, it is important to implement programs and plans in response to reducing risks before disasters or in the face of disasters. The statistics at some point reflect a weakness for people who are disabled or otherwise handicapped and particularly those who have a sight handicap. To make this commitment and getting information some countries may even contemplate certain advances as far as uh, handicap and statistics for the handicap. For example, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, Costa Rica have implemented already certain measures in, to help mitigate disasters specifically. Guatemala currently has 
is currently in the process of generating a second survey for handicapped people, which would allow us to have a better um, way of identifying where our our target population is. Even so, it continues being a debt of the country faced with this situation. The increase of vulnerability in the face of disasters is a progressive aspect which carries with itself poverty aspects, that deterioration of conditions, uh, of uh, being isolated, of not having a home, of lack uh, of uh, nutrition, um, so many factors, literacy among them, everything that becomes a vicious uh, cycle between vulnerability and poverty and which practically people who we find people who find ourselves in this handicap we know that there is a vicious cycle as far as uh, poverty and handicap being handicapped and being poor goes hand in hand this brings us to the fact that vulnerability equals poverty and the and the more poverty likewise the bigger the level of vulnerability when we refer to a humanitarian effort we are talking about population or populations at risk and the subject is transversal in nature and intersectional childhood, youth or adolescence, women, elderly people, people in a handicapped situation. Let us then take this condition of handicap, let's talk about women, about children, about the elderly. The situation now becomes much more grim. However, it should and it must be approached in the implementation of those programs that I mentioned so that these could become the response to the phenomenon, the natural phenomenon that we face. And in this sense, there are fundamental aspects that we should consider in reference to risk. Floodings, for example, uh, garbage thrown, litter thrown into the rivers, uh, volcanic eruptions which constantly throw into the air, uh, debris, uh, Earthquakes over six in the richer scale, earthquakes of big impact, and each of these elements where year after year we confront these natural phenomena and which lead us to understand that the level of disaster needs to be approached because it refers to an alteration which is generated due to the impact of a natural phenomenon or an action performed by the humankind. We should not forget this, that at some point 
we we mentioned the subject of natural disasters and it is us human beings who contribute to these disasters to say talking about climate change which translates into that adaptation of response to risk management there are micro disasters mid-sized disasters such as impacts and there is a data on the social media the social media and their networks in Latin America America Latin America represents approximately 5,440 events in the last 10 years of which we were talking about volcanic activity those slidings those mud slidings and seismic activity which generate several collapses in several aspects of our communities. Guatemala, particularly with a um, with its topography and with 37 volcanoes out of which three of them regularly are active also keeps us in that situation of vulnerability and risk and there is data that in those 10 years the losses the economic losses that uh, this situation conveys implicitly for not having preventive measures in place the seismic aspects and volcanic aspects are the ones which have presented or represented greater risks to our populations. To this, we may add the droughts, the freezings, tropical cyclones, which tie us to the element of floods whether it is partial or general those slidings those mud slidings as we say at some point they are bound to happen it is then of, of utmost importance to establish strategies, preventive strategies to prevent risks. That is, that situation, that response situation before uh, disaster is related to climate change. I would like to conclude with some aspects which are fundamental to consider them. That Plans should be, vulnerability plans ought to be developed, including evaluation 
of capacities and contingencies. We should design and enforce public policies specific to substantially addressing and inclusively addressing the subject of risk management before disasters and as I said already including women children the elderly and people who suffer from disabilities about rights rights for all and for everybody the budgets when we talk about financial aspects we do not invest in this aspect and I can even venture to say that our constitutions or the magna cartas of our countries call a response to the uh, state to guarantee the life and the disasters as we have seen in a very general way it is life attempt life. It is life in risk. Therefore, we should consider and we should strongly invest in this entire uh, plan of action for programs, activities, and policies before disasters or in the face of disasters. The international cooperation generates a substantial support before the subject but even so, it is necessary to strengthen the impact that our response should generate to help the poor countries. We know that this subject reference to the environment. Today, we have our objectives, which includes sustainable objectives. We call them we call, we call upon the disabled people to be actors who will promote in the measure in which we can get involved and we can empower ourselves the subject of risk management in our national councils regarding the subject. This is a civil responsibility and it is fundamental. We need to consider it. Because there is a concern, a world concern, when we do not know about these manuals or about this information in a practical manner in order to support people with uh, handicaps in situations of risk and disaster. When we're, when we're talking about evacuating people, one a a lack of knowledge of personnel protecting civilly people about the rights of people who are handicapped. And another thing is that very limited accessibility as we are evacuating nationally, regionally, evacuating people with disabilities. There is no access to the information services related to reducing or mitigating risks. And much less in reference to the handicapped population. I wish to thank for you having given me the space and the opportunity to share with you 
this important uh, opportunity to generate strategies of change so that today our world union of the blind and the sub-regional union for Latin America and locally in each and every country so that we can all join in the commitment before the subject of risk management. Thank you very much. Obrigado. Muchas gracias, Gabriel. Uh, I would like to convey our sincere um, regrets from Ms. Marcy Ross, who is the Director of Office of Disability Integration and uh, Coordination of the U.S. Department of hum um, Homeland Security, FEMA. I was hoping to have her to talk about the Sendai framework, which... Gabriel also mentioned, but instead, uh, Ms. Roth asked, uh, asked us to show a two-minute video announcing about the disasters and risk management. So please have a look at this video. It's sorry it's only in English, so translators, please. Dappled sunlight through trees and a wisteria-covered front porch. No two days are alike. An older woman sorts her medication. So every day, you prepare. A woman who is blind feeds her service dog. For yourself? She places the bowl on the floor and he eats. For those you love? A mother using a wheelchair packs a lunchbox. Her daughter takes it, kisses her, and runs off. For whatever the day may bring. A man who is deaf signs to a loved one and departs. Being prepared is a part of who you are. But in the case of a disaster, preparation isn't always front of mind. In an emergency when help and resources may not be available for days, being prepared is more important than ever. It's up to everyone to be informed about what types of emergencies might occur where you live or visit. Knowing the best responses for your personal circumstances is the key to maintaining your health, safety, and independence. Make a plan that covers where you'll go in an emergency and how a personal support network can assist you. Build a kit that contains the specific things you need to survive for several days. Food and water, medication and supplies. The older woman assembles her kit. As well as any important documents you may need. She includes a USB drive. Being prepared is a part of who you are, and disaster preparation is no different. The man who is deaf stores his kit in the closet. There's no one more capable of planning for your situation than you. The mother using a wheelchair closes her kit and hugs her daughter. Words on screen. Be informed, make a plan, build a kit, get involved. Ready.gov slash my plan. Thank you. That gave a kind of an idea on how to prepare ourselves. Well, before going into the next uh, speaker, we need to prepare ourselves for the election. So, yes, yes okay. Uh, uh, he wants, we have a short announcement before going to the next speaker. Okay. Thank you, Machiko. 
we have been distributing the voting papers, but we, we noticed that there are several people that were not on the places. So if you have not received your voting paper, can you just please put up your hand now? Then we, we will be able to find you and give you your voting paper. I can see two, three, four, that side. Or, yeah, and one, one at the high table here. We didn't want to disturb you, but you will, you will get. Uh, I will also use the opportunity to just to remind you about the process, because we also got some questions when we distributed the, the papers, that you get one big envelope, and inside that envelope is a small envelope and two voting cards. On the two voting cards, there are the names of the two candidates. One card reads... Mittel and the other one reads uh, David Ocon. So you just choose your candidate and you put the card with the name of your candidate inside the small envelope so that when you reach the voting room, you just put the small envelope where your voting card is inside, you put it in the ballot box. And the big envelope with the card that you did not use, you will then drop it in a in another box to avoid any confusion. So I think that we, uh, we must be asking for your, uh, your cooperation and your patience when you're going to vote in case there will be some cues and something, but please be patient. We will do our best and we have good cooperation from the hosts and the volunteers, so hopefully everything will go smooth. And uh, if you have any questions, we will be able to, to sort them out in the voting room, I think. But preferably, you, you prepare yourself, you come to the voting room, so that it's just to drop, drop the envelope, and then you go on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Then going back to the last speaker, uh, the, the last four years we have seen one positive move, and that is the Sendai framework. Uh, concluded after the World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction last year in March to, that took place in Sendai in Japan, as Gabri was mentioning. So we would like to make, make, give the microphone to Jose Maria Vieira, the Human Rights uh, Policy Advisor of WBU, to, to talk about the, some backgrounds and what it's all about Sendai Framework. Jose, the floor is yours. Okay, um, good morning, colleagues and friends. Um, I am very honored to participate in this such distinguished panel, and I would like to take this opportunity to give a special thanks to Ms. Michiko Tavakta for, for, for allowing me to share with you some of the thoughts and reflections about this crucial issue. However, I will uh, present in my mother tongue, Spanish, as a a uh, matter of promoting diversity, which is always uh, something that the WBU intends um, to do. So I will give uh, one, two minutes to those who don't speak Spanish to put uh, your headphones on. And um, I will be presenting in my mother tongue, as I said. So thank you. And please put your headphones on.
All right. Thanks. Bueno. Okay. So um, I would like to, first of all, I would like to invite uh, all of you to be able to do a, a um, an analysis of two, for, by, of two elemental questions. One of them is to think about the question of the disasters, the natural disasters and human disasters that are caused by man and from a perspective of rights, of human rights. And apart from that, let's think about together about what is the role of our organizations and in promoting or guaranteeing the effective implementation of these questions. And I would like, first of all, to put on the table some of the ideas from the DACA declaration from last year and what they, ha what they have left for us. And I think that they're important to be able to know where we are located. And the DACA declaration, first of all, says that clearly the people that have disabilities that we know that in general about 80% live in countries that are undeveloped and clearly they're, they're a lot more exposed to the negative effects of the natural disasters or things caused by men. And obviously we have to take into account that these people that have disabilities that live in these underdeveloped countries and uh, taking into account as a consequence the lack of education, jobs and accessibility, etc., etc., they have certain life conditions that are very limited and the effects are even greater under those conditions and the lack of accessibility to a, a nice home and other types of rights, they make them live in areas that are a lot more vulnerable to these disasters and particularly, and uh, added to all this, the declaration of DACA lets us know that sometimes the negative impacts are not just because caused by the disasters, but by the lack of good management of the response to those disasters. So you can see how we have a double negative effect because of the disaster and sometimes because of the lack of efficiency at the response for those disasters. So the declaration, of course, for example, uh, talks about a survey that was created by the United Nations where about 85% of the people that were studied, they mentioned that the response that the states were giving to these types of disasters were not efficient or at least they were not inclusive or accessible, right? So something else is mentioned and... Even though the information, the statistical information is not very precise, unfortunately, it says that the percentage of mortality, the mortality rate in these situations for people that have disabilities raises either twice or four times more if you compare them with other types of group, social groups. Okay? So finally, the DACA declaration, and I would like to add here the report that our WBU had prepared, Mr. Honored, in 2014 in relationship to which were some of the opinions of the blind people that were consulted in different situations related to disasters like New Zealand and Haiti in Japan. And a lot of them responded that, for example, the rehabilitation areas were not 
accessible and the medications or the access to the drinking water was not so easy for people who had disabilities. It was even much more complex and they had a lot more barriers. And the access, for example, to programs that would uh, respond or take care of uh, or give support for the guide dogs for people who are blind also affected them. And the alert systems were not accessible either. And the information programs or the training guides in order to know how to act, they were not accessible either. So these are some of the things that the report itself from the WBU from 2014 uh, calls our attention towards these aspects and about the things that we had to work on and how we had to work from our own organizations. Okay? So I would like to also talk about a lot of the things that we get from the Sendai framework. The Sendai framework is between... Uh, is one of the many tools that we get from the United Nations that has been able to focus on in a very more inclusive way in related to management of disasters. And you can see that it's really interesting that one of the first elements included within the Sendai framework is that it's almost like a redefinition of the concept of what a disaster is. And the people who spoke before me, they've given clear examples of what that is. Disasters are not just exclusively natural disasters. We also have things in it as well, and maybe even more important to disasters that are related or had been, that have been caused by men itself. And uh, the DACA declaration also makes a clear reference to this. And the, the World uh, Report from 2012 also says that, for example, like armed conflict, terrorism, violence, insurgencies, or refugees. All of these are clear examples of how the, in the last decade the question of the natural disasters has been expanding. But uh, the declaration or the, Friendi, the Sendai framework is, without a doubt, it is, it is a fundamental pillar and it's a really important point for our diagnosis of what the reality is and notice that it's really interesting that the within the priority number four we have a clear reference people that are blind of course they are present in every aspect of the framework for Sendai but there's there's a something that can we cannot oversee and one of them is the the strong tension from the framework of Sendai to the universal design. And universal design is going to allow us so for all these different testimonies or explanations that I was talking about from the report from the from the um, WBU from 2014 that hopefully they're not repeated. And uh, the, of course the Sendai framework in priority number four it makes a clear reference to the role of the people that have disabilities and the organizations that are representing them and I am emphasizing the organizations that represent them and to be permanently consulted by the governments. So if we continue seeing things transversely, this uh, framework, Sendai framework, we can also see that the, the, the Sendai framework uh, calls attention to the trans 
border cooperation, the necessity of doing something that is really, which is very proper of the World Line or Union, uh, the work from all the dimensions, all the different actors, all the different stakeholders, they have international cooperation in order to be able to get all the different support that we could get from multilateral organizations. And so this transporter cooperation is something that's really important. And But also, for example, the Sendai framework also calls the attention to the states reporting and having to report periodically the advancements that are being made, and, and that's an area where we, as an organization, we have the we have to be present in that situation, and particularly the national situations that are the ones that know firsthand what is happening in the terrain. And the Sendai framework clearly gives us a chapter and an accent that is a very strong accent related to women, children, boys and girls, who jointly with indigenous populations and immigrants and refugees are groups that we have to pay special attention to and that our organizations must work together strongly together to be able to take care of them or continue work working strongly to be able to take care of them. Now, more further than this, from all the different framework uh, from the Zendaya has shown us, and maybe I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting one or, or two, but it, it is fundamental to remember at least these ones that I'm mentioning right now. And it's also it's important to try to think about the question that uh, brings us here, which is the, the aspect of disaster sense. here from a much broader perspective. And I think that we have to go to two main crucial elements, one which is very specific that we know very well, which is our convention. Okay, Gabrielle clearly mentioned the reference to Article 11 and the specificity within that Article 11 about all the different things that have to do with disasters. But also we have to think about the possibility of uh, disasters, seeing it within our conventions from a perspective which is a lot more transversal and re regarding jobs, accessibility, the, the fact uh, related to education and pe making people conscious of this and also the women and men and also or children and women and also the mobility of people and also the integral security and safety of the person and their right for rehabilitation and also ability and training and all these are elements that are for our organizations and we have to take into account in order to be able to work on them. But taking into into account this very specific instrument of our family and that we, I, we have been able to find it with our effort on working doing political incidents, we have to also see what other innovator or other instrument that is recent that has been adopted, which is the 2003 agenda, the 2030 agenda. And this 2030 agenda has the interesting agenda, which is universal. It is not just that tendency uh, like we have the Millennium ob Objectives, it was basically an agenda for for countries that were underdeveloped or developed. The, the 2030 agenda has a universal scope, and it's for all states. And the question related to disasters, be it natural or man-made, these are clearly things that affect all the states. And this is a question that is universal in nature. And it's notice that it's very interesting that the 2030 agenda even though it has articles or objectives that are very specific, it does work in three dimensions that really coincide with the dimensions that 
are related to disasters, the dimension of the social aspects, the economic dimension, as well as the environmental dimension. And these are clearly dimensions that are taking into account disasters and that we as an organization have to work in order to be able to make to do the political incidents on. And objective number 13 of climate change, 14, is about the responsibility management, the principle management of the oceans. Also, we have an objective related to um, the obtaining information. Objective 16 is related to the construction of cities and societies that are that are peaceful and inclusive. Objective one, which is a reduction of poverty. So all of these are elements that clearly cooperate in order for the fact of the disasters or the things that are natural disasters or created by men or that are man-made, this be a work that is transversal and universal for all. And with this type of diagnosis of this reality, clearly the task of our organizations becomes a lot more fundamental because we have an international scenario which is very clear a Sendai framework that has taken into account an agenda 2030 that has taken into us into account but the challenge is to be able to implement it at the local level in each one of our states and our organization the the um, WBU is getting ready, and uh, we, we hope to have this ready for you. We're preparing documents saying how, how about how all of our organizations can work, but fundamentally the recommendation is to be able to identify who are the responsible stakeholders in each one of our countries and so that we can be able to put our input in order for the, for the legal modification so we can work and continue to see what is going to happen regarding the reporting of how the advantages, how the development is going, and to guarantee that the dimension of disaster management is something that is inclusive. Thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you very much, Jose. For those who do not know, the DACA declaration is the, uh, the outcome document of the disaster management conference that took place in Bangladesh in December 2015. I uh, hope you can wait for a few more minutes because you had a little long tea break in the morning, actually. Um, I would like to ask Mr. Ron McCallum and his wife uh, back there. Are you there? Okay, um, they have conducted some very interesting project on the research of refugees with disabilities in six countries. Thank you, Michiko. Hello, everyone. <laughs> My name is Ron McCallum. I'm from Australia, Vision Australia. I'm a law professor at the University of Sydney and a past member of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. I'm married to Professor Mary Crock and she's Professor of Immigration and Refugee Law, also at the University of Sydney. We decided to combine our work on refugees and disabilities by examining the plight and number of persons with disabilities who are refugees. Our research was funded by AusAid, the Australian Aid Organisation. We were also assisted by UNHCR, and by many friends in countries such as Mohammed Al Tirana in Jordan, Shafak Pavi in Turkey, etc., etc. We began our work at the end of 2011, and we are completing a book which will be out at the end of this year. We examined refugees with disabilities in Malaysia, 
in Indonesia, in Pakistan, in Uganda, in Jordan, and in Turkey. I was busy for part of the time with the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and Mary did more of the country work than I did, so I'm going to give her the bulk of the next couple of minutes to tell you about our work. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mary Crock, and I am married to Ron McCallum. It is a great honour for me to speak to the General Assembly of the World Blind Union. We began our research in 2012 uh, in our own region, in Indonesia and Malaysia. Our work was assisted greatly by the UN agency responsible for refugees, UNHCR, and by other IGOs and NGOs in each country. In all of the countries that we visited, we spoke with people with disabilities who were living as refugees, and we were assisted by UNHCR to find these people. When we began, the UN really was only just beginning to consider the situation of refugees in emergencies and displacement. And we found that people believed that people with disabilities did not travel. They said, oh, it is very sad, but refugees, if you have a disability, you cannot travel. We found that was very wrong and that everywhere, in emergencies but in refugee situations, people with disabilities are represented in the same way as in any population. The World Health Organization tells us that 15% of any population in the world are people with disabilities. When we went to Malaysia, in 100,000 refugees, UNHCR said, ah, we have 202 persons with disabilities. We were there for two weeks and we found 300 people. Um, the problem is that everywhere, people with disabilities were either not volunteering that they had disabilities, that there were cultural barriers, that were practical barriers, that UN bodies were relying on their uh, officers to visually identify people with disabilities. And that was no good. So what we did was we worked with experts in Washington, in this country, um, and with other experts around the world, and we devised a questionnaire or a tool that we are trying to persuade the uh, UNHCR to use when they first encounter people with disabilities. Instead of relying on the visual identification, uh, and you know, if you're completely blind, people will understand straight away that you're blind. But if you have a visual problem, then maybe they don't know that, yeah? Because you find a way to cope. So instead of asking 
people to visually identify or to volunteer, we asked a series of questions about functionality. Do you have difficulty seeing? Do you have the assistance that you need to see? And in that way, we went from a 0% to a much greater percent of people uh, being recognised with disabilities. So, in, in, in Malaysia and Indonesia, we found very few. By the time we get to Pakistan, UNHCR are using this tool that has been devised by the Washington Group and others, and they surveyed and shared with us their results of nearly one million refugees living in Pakistan. And there, they found a much closer to the percentage of the World Health Organization. So, we found in our research that people with disabilities do travel, that they are represented in every population. We found that the conditions in displacement, where they are, often contribute to the acquisition of disability. Uh, if you are living in a country where you are not legal under immigration law, the, the chances that you work in dirty, dangerous situations is much higher. Um, and accordingly, we found that the more precarious the situation of people, the more likely they are to acquire a disability, the more likely people with disability are to suffer terribly. And so by the time we got to Jordan and to Turkey, we also went to Zatari, to, um, to Azraq camp. In fact, when we were in Zatari camp, we found um, that there were many programs that they were starting to develop for people with disabilities. It, the situation was getting much better already. However, we were told that uh, at the beginning, Zatari was such a wild place that people with disabilities were advised not to stay there. And so we found in the community in Jordan uh, many people, but as our excellent speaker has told us, the situation there has been very, very difficult for people with disabilities. Um, if you're not identified, you're not looked after, you can fail to be given food, the necessaries to live, much less to progress in life. So, um, we have a, a blog where we have collected all the things that we have written so far. The address for that we will share with the World Blind Union. If you want to write it down, uh, the address is blogs, B-L-O-G-S dot U-S-Y-D dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash refugee hyphen disabilities forward slash and there you will see our work. May I uh, have one minute more, okay. Michiko? Okay. Yes? Um, may I just mention that the 
CRPD has played a very important role in advancing the interests of persons with disabilities in displacement. Um, the CRPD is the first human rights instrument in the world to actually create positive obligations for persons with disabilities in all of the emergency situations, armed conflict, uh, war and emergencies. Article 11 refers both to the international humanitarian law, IHL, and to emergency situations. The earlier human rights instruments traditionally, a long time ago now, uh, hopefully, they used to say, in emergencies, this does not apply. So we should take hope that finally the world is starting to recognise persons with disabilities. We have the Sendai framework, very important. In Istanbul in May this year, it, only 11 country, uh, 15 countries so far have signed this, but in in Istanbul this year, the Sendai framework was used as the beginning to create a charter for persons with disabilities in emergency situations. So we are beginning as a world to create a number of instruments to help every country everywhere to recognise that persons with disabilities are persons like everybody and we deserve to be front and centre in all planning and all situations of emergencies. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ron and Mary. I was actually planning to ask for a few more comments uh, comments from the floor already designated, but since we are cutting into your lunch break, I would just want to ask Marianne, who was uh, at the Sendai conference, to give a little bit of feedback. I do not mean to appoint to Australians because I'm from the Asia Pacific. <laughs> Australia dominates. Thank you, Michiko. Um, it was good to hear all of the presentations. And as you said, I was um, in Sendai at the Third World Disaster Risk Conference. And I think it's really important to note, it's been referred to a few times, important to note the persons with disabilities played a really important part in both the planning and conduct of that conference. As we all know, the UN does not recognise disability as a major group but we were treated as a major group during the planning and conduct of that conference. And that is a big step forward. We were visible in Sendai. We took part in many sessions. Um, and as we've heard, the, our, the outcomes framework makes good reference to persons with disabilities. And I would encourage World Blind Union, as we've heard from others, to take this um, Sendai framework and to, to use it in conjunction with CRPD and to become active. Because we have seen since Sendai at UN events disability not taking the, the stage as we would expect. A, a recent example being the Conference of States Parties to CRPD just held in June where we were not as actively involved as we had been previously in that program, and as everybody knows, the election outcomes for the CRPD committee 
had no women elected. So I think we have a lot of work to do, but Sendai is a great framework and a great example of inclusion by the UN and by the whole world of persons with disabilities. Thank you. Thank you, Marian. I'm wondering if I should call open to the floor because we are running into the lunch break. But is there anybody who wants to uh, ask a question? Saudi Arabia? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My name is Nasser Musa from Saudi Arabia. I don't hear the voice. I am thanking my friend, uh, Mr. Ahmed Al-Lozi. He is an expert and proudly my friend and he is very thankfully yani, made a special attention and concern for the Syrian refugees which is the most important issue uh, in our region at least uh, and in the world yani, Syrian refugees is a um, very important issue and we thank Jordan and all their efforts for what they are making for uh, serving the disabled persons in uh, Jordan uh, Saudi Arabia and Gulf countries supporting the Syrian refugees in everywhere and also we don't know uh, if those personal disabilities get benefits from the support uh, from Saudi Arabia the second thing is that we are talking about uh, many Syrian people they are living in Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia but Saudi Arabia uh, did not consider to make special camps and special cities for the Syrian, but they open the heart in government and the people, they open everywhere and every house for the Syrian refugees. They are there and they are living with others, they are working with us. With, with us. We have five associations of the blind in Saudi Arabia and they playing a big and important role uh, for supporting the Syrian refugees and they are considering them as friends and brothers. Uh, dear colleagues and sisters, when we talk about Syrian refugees and especially, they have suffered and they are yeah, under attacks from a person, president who is Bashar al-Assad who is suffering and killing the people. When we talk about these people uh, our hearts is getting more worse and we are our tears is there we can't talk anything we we have to defend them we have also i want all the world uh, to stand with syrian refugees we have to stand and support them and this is a human rights before it's political we are talking about human rights the second thing i wish that wbu also has to take decision and statement and announcement relating to Syrian refugees. We have to know that Syrian refugees is suffering and they are dying and they are need. And of course, we are talking about persons with disabilities among them, especially the vision environment. They are suffering. We have to support them. We have to send and thank you very much. Thank you very much.
we all agree that the world must work, do something, work harder to solve the refugees in Syria. International? Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Michael Delaney. I'm with Perkins International. Uh, first of all, I just would like to say thank you to the organizers um, for putting this um, agenda forward. I think it was a very enlightening um, presentation, and thank you to the speakers to uh, sharing these experiences and both as well as opportunities. I think it's uh, important that um, we're realizing that there are tremendous needs out there. We just heard the, the situation of the Syrian refugees. Um, and we also are looking at a world uh, in which climate change is playing a huge uh, uh, impact, uh, having a huge impact. And, and frankly, we are at a time when we are uh, seeing the most refugees in the history of the world uh, at this time. So it shouldn't take us by surprise uh, that we have tremendous need and it's growing because of climate change. So I think it's very important that we uh, started this conversation today and we also heard that there are opportunities and frameworks for us to use, particularly on the national level and at the country level where humanitarian response uh, is best done, where uh, local and national organizations have the knowledge and the capacity and uh, the um, knowledge of the culture and the vulnerabilities uh, better than uh, any other organization. So I think it's um, appropriate to be talked about here the World Blind Union, I think, can play a key role, and I encourage uh, more conversation and uh, work to be done. Uh, I hope this is a starting point. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very uh, con constructive summary. Nigeria? Hello. My name is Ishiaku Ademu from Nigeria. Um, I would like to thank the speakers for talking about one of the important issues affecting millions of people all over the world. I am so impressed with the speaker from Jordan and the two couple from Australia. And my question goes to two presenters. Um, that of Jordan, you are talking about when you discover that person with disability are not been well captured in the data collection of the refugee in Jordan. How did you start, although you explained a bit, how do you start collecting the data and what efforts have you made um, in collecting those data? So we want to share that as um, um, experience so that we are facing the same situation in Nigeria. Person with disability has not been adequately carried away. Our data are always missing. Nobody thought that we have been affected by all this um, crisis, but uh, it's happening daily and we have been affected, but we seem to be disappeared in the emergency, uh, emergency response and in almost every aspect of the 
uh, emergency response management at the national level. So we want to know how do you do it, and after collecting the data, what have you done with the data? What is next to do, and how did you get support from the organizations working in that field also? And for the couple, I want to know the outcome of their research and how can we get those materials to use it in our own country to promote our own advocacy uh, in our countries. Thank you. Uh, is that the question to Al Mr. Aluzi? Yeah. Okay. Then I, I will ask Mr. Aluzi to answer that question. And Romary, do you think you will be able to answer the question, although you are not on the panelist? Okay, then first, Mr. Aluzi. Allow me uh, to speak about this issue that in Jordan we start to make committees from our organization. We have nine committees and campaigns. They enter the camps of refugees and we enter every house, every room, and we have a questionnaire. We ask about the person's disabilities, and also we have some uh, basic uh, tools uh, to provide for them. We have cans, white cans. We have some wheelchairs, uh, because we are not working with only vision environment. We are working with all disabled persons. Yani one a person talk another person. So when we give services, uh, the, the, we, we, we knew how to deal with these persons disabilities because the agencies, UN agencies and other agencies at the beginning, we are talking about at the beginning, they did not know how to deal with these people. So also we make a training for the staff uh, some persons uh, from the agencies on mobility and orientation and we make training for many persons there to know exactly what they need and how they be, can be here be, can do best things uh, the outputs uh, we have uh, published it online and everything and and I will thank Joel, John Hilbron who received this information also and he distributed for all the persons who are interested in Syrian refugees. Uh, we have exact numbers and exact results. Uh, in Jordan, we give the numbers. We give uh, every details with our reports, which is online, already online, and you can find it on the website. Uh, I thank John Hilbron who helped us uh, to helping us distributing this information and uh, he provide us with many expert persons to, and we discuss with them many issues we cannot of course give all services but this is what we can do thank you very much can i can, can someone give the mic to Ma rona mary hello thank you very much it's mary again uh, our reports are also online yes, on the web um, I think maybe if I give the link to the organisers of the World Blind Union, we can make that available for everybody. I am also um, happy to talk to anybody who wants to come and share their information with me and I can give you our details. Um, we are quite easy to find, Ron McCallum and Mary Crock. So uh, the book... Our book is being published by Elgar Publishing and we will finish it this year. Probably it will be available next year. But again, if you give us your details, we can share uh, 
everything with you, no problem. Thank you very much. I'm sure you'll have more uh, things you want to say or questions, but we are running out of time. I mean, we are already way out of time. So I would like to conclude here. We all know that we are the we do have an important role to play. Of course, one is to participate in DRR. And another thing is, of course, to visualize and voice out these special needs that have been neglected for so many years. Let's go, when we go back, let's do our work so that the, these people will have, will be helped and we will have less risks from the emergencies. Thank you for your patience and enjoy your lunch. Well, good afternoon to all of you. I hope you had a refreshing lunch. One of the things that we do each four years when we meet together in General Assembly is to review the work of our regions. Each region has its own unique makeup of countries, cultures, economic conditions, and so on. And yet there are lessons that each of us can learn that would be of help in our individual countries and regions. So this is a time to hear the activities of the various regions. We're going to have the regional reports. Mr. Runta, are you here? Well, come on up. We're going to begin with the Asia Blind Union and our regional president, who was just reelected last month as the regional president of the Asia Blind Union, Mr. S.K. Runta, and as soon as you get to a seat, we'll be glad to hear your report. Or you can come to the podium, whichever you prefer. Mr. Runta? Okay. There you are. Yes. All right. Honorable Chair, distinguished office bearers of WBU, colleague regional presidents, and honorable delegates. I stand here to present the regional report for four years of Asian Blind Union. I would like to start the report by underlying the, the challenges that my region faces. We are a region with diverse culture, different languages, different geographical issues, and also our countries are at different levels of development. That makes our job as a regional union even more challenging in order to ensure that our work work reaches the, the, those countries which need our support more. We 
during last four years when we took over, it was a time when almost all support in terms of administrative expenses had gone away. And therefore, we had to establish a kind of administrative mechanism and procedures where we don't incur much cost or even preferably no cost, which would mean that more and more engagement of our officers and affiliates in the work of ABU. And I am happy to announce that the first task that we did was to frame a, a formulate a strategic plan for the four years in ABU with the support of NABP, who has been the only support available to us, both in terms of financial resources as well as in terms of technical support, and for which we are very grateful to NABP. Dear delegates, what we did as a part of putting in place an administrative mechanism. As you know, my region is divided into three sub-regions, South Asia, Middle East, and Central Asia. We appointed one focal point for each of the three sub-regions. And this focal point was responsible for the activities of ABU and for any support that any country from that respective sub-region needed on, from ABU. And that was the reporting point for the executive and officers. That focal point was also accountable to their own sub-region. The strategic plan broadly was formulated with the to achieve the following objectives. To empower our affiliates to undertake advocacy around UNCRPD. And when this strategic plan was being done, we did not have the we did not have Marques Treaty in place. However, later on, we also started working on Marques Treaty ratification and empowering our affiliates. The other objective was, and on which we have been working throughout, the, uh, our, throughout our term, previous term, was the increase of participation of our sisters in our work at the regional level, at the sub-regional level, and within the uh, national member organizations. And that again was in the, uh, as a result of the project which, was, which has been fully funded by NABP again, for which we are grateful to them. This was a project called Women in IT, 
And under this project, what we did, we tried to strengthen the skills of women leaders of our member organizations and by, by uh, imparting training in the workshops at the sub-regional levels. And thereafter, we followed it up with a small project being given to them in their respective country for being implemented in the, to empower women, other women leaders in the country. So that they are able to, on one hand, come closer and show their worth, their skills to the leaders of their respective organizations, male leaders, and increase their acceptability in the organizational structure. We also had the objective in the strategic planning to increase the coverage of our sisters in the programs and activities of our member organizations, in our sub-regional activities, as well as in our regional activities. We, as a part of this project, ultimately ended up with formulating a gender policy. And this gender policy broadly seeks to achieve greater leadership role, both in terms of quantity and quality, in the member organizations, in the regional, at regional level, etc. We also had another area of work of empowering our affiliates in advocacy around, as I said, UNCRPD and now Marquesh Treaty. In that, as a part of that activity, we had conducted a workshop of the leaders of our member organizations at regional level and tried to ascertain their priorities in advocacy area and also as an output of that workshop, we developed a advocacy policy for our region. And these two policies have been adopted by the General Assembly of ABU, which was held in Kuwait recently. And we hope that since the members of ABU had adopted them, both these policies, they will work and implement the same, which will have a real impact on the lives of our brothers and sisters in the member countries. We have also concentrated on trying to help and support least developed countries in our region. And our focus was on Central Asia. And we, in the present term also, wish to uh, work on that uh, priority area to support our Central Asian countries' friends in 
improving the lives of brothers and sisters of that uh, part of my region. I also would like to report that with the help of NABP again, we have been able to provide valuable uh, equipments in to, to our affiliates once in the quadrennium, which ranges from equipments for strengthening and modernizing the training, skill, training programs, existing training programs in Pakistan, also providing the braille printing machines, and also providing other equipment which the affiliates in their own discretion wanted them to be given in order to reach out to the least, uh, le uh, to, to the last common man and women who is partially blind or uh, blind or partially sighted. I would like to conclude by saying that our region faces a lot of challenge and the issue of sustainability is more relevant to us than any other region. But we believe that maybe that we don't have those financial resources which we want to have to do what we want to achieve, uh, to do what we want to do for the betterment of the lives of our brothers and sisters. But one thing is very sure, that my region has the commitment, has the determination to face all challenges and come out with victory to, to overcome and, and remove all impediments in the advancement of our human rights and, in, and those imp impediments which all will, will also be removed and we will have a society, a just society in our region which is accessible, affordable and which provides equal opportunities to all our blind brothers and sisters in the region. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Runta. Now from the African Union of the Blind uh, Regional President, Mr. Deborah, you can come to the podium or from the table. All right, there you are. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Chair. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this is a report from African Union of the Blind. For those of you who do not have a clear picture about what Africa, African continent is. The African continent is the second largest continent in the world, and it has more than 50 countries. The African Union of the Blind has been in existence um, since 1987, and it has been the rallying point for all 
national organizations on the continent. The objective of the organization is to empower blind and partially sighted people on the continent to fight for their social justice and also um, stand for their rights. Um, the quadrillion um, between the last quadrillion and today has been um, crisis-ridden period for the union. Um, the union has been dependent on donor support for its operations. And as you all know, um, now that um, Europe and other world economic powers have problems with uh, their economy in terms of uh, managing crisis, especially the refugee crisis and so forth, it has affected our, uh, uh, the donor ability of our, the ability of our donor partners to support AFOP in the way that they have been doing. As a result of that, it has led to staff attrition and for that matter, the efficiency of our delivery machinery has been negative. Again, we also have uh, problems with uh, our directors. Um, since the quadrillion, we have had a succession of resignations of our directors, and that has also affected the administrative machinery of AFO. Despite this crisis, the board has worked hard with the secretariat to ride the storm and put the organization on track. We had our board meeting in a year and a half ago in Congo Brazzaville during which, together with our partners, we were able to come out with a strategic plan that we call the 18-month strategic plan to help resuscitate or salvage the situation so that the African boat still keeps afloat. The 18-month strategic plan prescribes the regeneration of our secretariat and also improve the governance system. The, uh, the plan has it that um, we develop some policies, streamline the administration to have some policies that will guide the governance. So as a result of that, we have been able to come out with certain policies that makes our governance system more productive. For example, we have been able to develop human resource 
policy, financial policy, devolution policy, and membership policy. Currently, we are in the exercise of getting our communication policy in place. Again, we are also trying to um, strategize for fundraising. At the board meeting a year and a half ago, we were able to get support from World Blind Union and our partners to get um, our former WU president, William Roland, and Thomas Ngolo to support us, strategize for fundraising. So we are actually having the, uh, the policy of doing inward fundraising, which means that we believe that there are also resources within the soil of Africa, and we must also try and exploit, exploit that potential opportunities. Currently, we have put out about three fundraising proposals, but we have not been able to get the fruits that we look for. But we are still hopeful that something positive will come out of it. We are also concerned about the fact that gender has not received much attention since the quadrillion as a result of the economic streets in which we find ourselves. AFU advocates for women, and we want to put women on top of issues and capacitate them to speak for themselves and to also ensure that girls and women are given their pride of place. But because of the financial difficulties that has affected our operations, the, the African Women Committee has not been able to meet within the quadrennium. It is a challenge that we are still fighting to overcome. Another area of concern for us is how to grow the capacities of our youth so that they will take over the management and governance of AFO. And again, I am sorry to report negatively that even though we have put in place the youth committee, we have not been able to support them to operationalize. And for that matter, we can say that much has not been achieved in the area of youth development. Then, when it comes to appointment of an executive director to drive the 
agenda of AFOP, um, attempts have so far been made to find a solution to the appointment of the director. Actually, what is hindering the processes towards the appointment of a, an, a substantive director is how to get remuneration for the executive director. I'm happy to state here that our traditional partner, Dennis Association of the Blind, is so concerned and, uh, and is in dialogue with African Union of the Blind to find a solution to this daunting challenge. For this reason, we are almost uh, striking a deal that will enable DAP to support us to get the processes in place. DAP has given us the support of um, an expert to help develop um, an advert towards the appointment of the director and also ensuring that we are able to actualize the um, strategic, the 18 month strategic plan so that when the director is put in place, he will be able to come out with sustainable way of remunerating um, himself and other staff and also get uh, the machinery going uh, uh, at all times. So our appeal to all potential partners is that AFOP is crying out for support to keep the machinery in place. When it comes to um, issue of Marrakesh Treaty, we are happy to note that Afri uh, an African country, Mali, was one of the first countries to ratify the Marrakesh Treaty and, and for that matter, were one of the 20 countries to get the Marrakesh Treaty uh, functional. But it is regrettable to state that even though national organizations of the blind in Africa are doing so much to get their home governments to ratify the Convention, uh, the treaty, we have not yet achieved the end result that we have set ourselves. But we assure mem uh, member countries of WBU that Africa will not rest on its OS until we get the full benefit of the America's Treaty. And for that matter, we are still tightening the screws on our governments to ratify the treaty. Liberia, for example, has been able 
to um, get the parliamentary ratification, but are yet to deposit the instrument with the UN. That is why um, the UN has no record of Liberia um, ratifying. We are also very much concerned about human rights on the continent. So with the support from SRF, AFUP is undertaking a project on human rights. And so far, two countries are benefiting from this project. That is um, Ghana and Namibia. We are concentrating on the local people within the countries um, so that the, the blind and partially sighted people in deprived communities in those countries will be able to uh, stand for their rights and articulate their own issues. Then we have another project um, relating to the CRPD in the Portugal and Spanish-speaking um, countries of Africa. We realize that because of linguistic difficulties, those in the um, Lizophone countries has not benefited so much. That thanks to our um, partner, NAB, NABP, we have been able to get support to reach out to our friends in Lizophone and Spanish-speaking countries. Okay. So... Um, Africa um, is doing so much to ensure that the, the blind and partially sighted on the continent are not left out of the scheme. Um, lastly, I must say that um, together with IDP, that is Institu uh, um, IDP of uh, WBU and Institutional Development Program and AFUP were able to organize Africa Forum in Uganda, um, during which we had as many as 400 countries taking part, not only from Africa, but across all continents. And agreement has been um, struck between IDP and AFUP that um, African AFUB General Assembly and IDP will always be linked so that it will afford opportunities to as many African countries as possible to attend General Assembly meetings. On this note, ladies and gentlemen, this is the picture of Africa painted to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Deborah. Now for the report from the Asia-Pacific region, I will turn the podium to our regional president, Michiko Tapata. Right there. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I will be very brief because you had to wait for lunch this morning listening to my voice. For, for details, we... Uh, the. The report has been circulated, which is a product of 
all the leaders of the Asia Pacific region. So please enjoy going through that report. I am excited here to stand here to introduce the highlights from the activities of the Asia Pacific region. The region I really love because of the beauty of the people, rich and diverse culture, great cuisine, and wonderful nature. This diversity makes it an, so important for us to have participation from many, as many members as possible to the regional work. We were very happy to have more members in the, uh, more members in the board and policy council, uh, policy council from more organizations than before. Also, more members sending uh, participants to the regional committees as well as the sub-regional committees. We, sub-region, we have Northeast Asia, ASEAN, and Pacific Oceania. And we were also happy to welcome new organizations as introduced by Penny Hartman yesterday. One of the biggest challenges in terms of membership in our region is, of course, North Korea. And we are working with the German NGO, working for persons with disabilities over there. Asia-Pacific is diverse in religion, political structure, and development status. Unfortunately, we don't have anything like EU, AU, or OAU. OAS, I mean. But we are working with UNSCAP, as you might know, United Nations Economic and Social Committee for the Asia-Pacific, which covers the region of the AP and a large part of ABU presented by Mr. Runta. And they launched the new decade of disabled persons in the Asia-Pacific in 2012 with their goals and indicators set as ancient strategy to make the right real. WBU is among the CSO members of the working committee to monitor the implementation of the ancient strategy. And this working committee meets every year and the region is approaching the mid-term assessment of the strategy. Soon there will be questionnaire to DPOs to which CSOs, including all our members from AP and the relevant part of ABU, are expected to give inputs to the progress of the implementation of the decade. Another new regional partner for, is fortunately the UNDP Asia Pacific, with which the uh, WBUAP has a project on the implementation of Marrakesh Treaty, from which a report was released on December 3rd last year on the pilot legal studies. I hope you have read the uh, press release. We are now moving on to the implementation phase of this project based on the outcome of the study. The Asia-Pacific probably has the largest portion of people who do not speak the three official languages of WBU as their mother language. That is why we are struggling really hard 
to facilitate exchange of information with the help of our member organizations and also with the help of the Danida funded capacity building project through our websites and our regional newsletters. I hope you have a chance to visit our website, by the way. We are geographically so scattered, so traveling around is not easy. The last General Assembly, as you all remember, was held in Bangkok, which is very convenient for us because it only takes six hours from Tokyo to fly to Bangkok, which is much, much closer than many other parts of the region. But a friend of mine from Serbia told me that in six hours he will be at the end of Europe. Despite the challenge, we tried to combine events and meet face to face. The BPC met in Yangon in 2013 for the first time, which led to the inclusion of Myanmar into that uh, aforementioned uh, capacity building project after Mongolia and Lao PDR. Then we met in Bangkok in conjunction with the 12th Massage Seminar during the time of the political issue which was widely covered in the media. I, hope, I think you all remember that. And then we met in Hong Kong together with the Midterm Regional General Assembly, which is actually the biggest event in four years in the region, with so many friends and colleagues coming together and a number of key stakeholders present thanks to that wonderful job done by, uh, by our friends in Hong Kong. Then lastly, we met in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, which was followed by some horse riding. Ah, and then most recently, we met in Manila when there was the massage seminar hosted by our friends in the Philippines. Philippines is, of course, the home for well-known hospitality and thousands of blind masseurs. If you, if you read our report, you will find many other things that we undertook, such as project on the employment led, funded by the Seeing is Believing Fund of the Standard Chartered Bank, ASEAN Blind Community Forum hosted by Thailand, and the Regional Youth Summit just last year in August, attended by nearly 100 young blind people from around the region and beyond. Despite various challenges, the Asia-Pacific region of World Blind Union is working very hard to change what it means to be blind in our region. We thank in advice, no, we thank in advance the blind leaders around the world for your continuous support for our region. Lastly, I would like to welcome you once again to our beautiful Asia-Pacific region whenever you have a chance to meet our wonderful peoples and experience the richness of nature and culture. Thank you. Thank you for that very informative report. And now for a report on the activities of the European Blind Union, I present the president of the EBU, Mr. Wolfgang Angerman. Thank you. 
to lift it up a little bit here. <laughs> Honorable Mr. President, dear friends and colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, I take pleasure in presenting to you a summary of the quadrennial report of the European Blind Union. In the given time, I can, of course, only tackle the various working areas and activities of our organization. The board held 12 face-to-face -face meetings and five virtual meetings. Membership of the European Blind Union is globally stable. However, in early 2014, the Latvian Society of the Blind decided to discontinue its membership of EBU for financial reasons. So, since then, instead of 45, there are only 44 members. Throughout this working period, EBU continued to produce action sheets, for example, on the topics of low vision, shared spaces, and access to e-banking and related services. In order to help its members in their communication activities and thus continue to raise the profile of EBU at national level, EBU organized an online webinar training session on improving media relations. With the proactive support of our central office, the legislative database progressed much since 2012. In fulfilling the respective challenge of our strategic plan, with regard to the UNCRPD, the network of national champions has been established. 25 countries have now nominated their representative champions. Two instructive webinars were organized on the subject of UNCRPD. In February 2014, a working group on rehabilitation with participants from different commissions and networks met in Paris. This work aims to find a consensus on how minimum standards for rehabilitation should look like. EBU lobbied for accessible and standardized payment terminals jointly with the European Disability Forum and H-Platform Europe, while working with financial and technical support from the Dutch central bank to devise technical specifications. We worked with the European Central Bank on an accessible mobile application allowing identification of Eurobank notes via a smartphone. On the initiative of our national member from Austria, EBU issued a statement 
regarding the widely used touch-sensitive controls at elevators. VB Commission for Deaf-Blind People and its chairperson were instrumental in reactivating our cooperation with the European Deaf-Blind Union to promote equality and full participation of deaf-blind people in the society. The Commission prepared the seventh EBU conference on deaf-blindness, and for this conference, EBU presented a paper on the impact of the UNCRPD on people with deaf-blindness and the present reality in Europe. In addition, a forum for deaf-blind women was held immediately prior to this conference. The Development Commission started funding projects through the African Union of the Blind Solidarity Trust Fund, ASTF as abbreviation here. Three projects in Kenya, Lesotho, and Gambia were funded in 2014. The ASTF board resolved to support these projects with an overall amount of 15,000 US dollars. EBU, through its Low Vision Network, produced a brochure which recommends a set of 10 minimum standards and recommendations for low vision services in Europe. The Women's Network, consisting of about 60 women from 25 countries, served as a pool of experts when recruiting members for setting up small working groups for delivering projects and activities. A number of press releases was produced and distributed on the occasions of the International Women's Day with focus on the employment of women and girls with disabilities, the impact of the current Europe-wide economic crisis on women with visual impairment and on combating violence. Together with the European Guide Dog Federation and with the support of H Platform Europe, the Elderly Network organized three focus groups. Despite the absolutely impressive achievements in the work of our commissions and networks, the board was approached by the chairs with many obstacles they had been facing, very often caused by language problems. Therefore, implementing the respective resolution, the board decided to recommend the dissolution 
of all existing commissions and instead establish expert-based consortiums led by an interested national member that would deal with limited projects in the framework of the board's strategic plan. And this recommendation was put into a respective resolution by the General Assembly last October in 2015. And the board, of course, has installed the project groups during the last meetings. The Commission on Liaising with the EU consists of representatives of the national EBU members in the 28 EU member countries. It acts as a special link between EBU and the European institutions, that is, the EU Parliament, Commission, and Council. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, WNEBU are still waiting for the ratification of the Treaty of Marrakesh by the EU. The European Union, sadly enough, is still discussing. Yes, there is an ongoing discussion within the EU about the process for ratification, e.g. if the EU has an exclusive competence for the ratification or if a shared competence with the member states has to be observed. It's a useless discussion, we feel. Still, the whole thing has been taken to the European Court of Justice, and we expect a verdict on this question by the European Court of Justice within the forthcoming months. As a result of the EBU's lobby work on silent vehicles, which we are, of course, doing on the side of our friends from WBU and under the leadership of our distinguished president, Fred Schroeder, but with a, as a result of the lobby work on European level, some improvements on the text of the draft report could be secured. We made our voice heard in the EU debates on the proposed regulation on the sound level of motor vehicles and as one of the partners of the Evader project we also provided our specific expertise and advice in the field of visual impairment and road safety. EBU runs the European strand of the Ankyo World Braille Essay Contest, an international initiative to promote Braille literacy and to encourage the sharing of social and cultural information among blind and partially sighted people. On December 2nd, 2015, the European Commission proposed a European Accessibility Act, which is intended 
to set common accessibility requirements for certain key products and services that will help people with disabilities at EU level to participate fully in society. From the first reading of the text, there appears to be the big omissions to the scope of the European Accessibility Act proposal. It seems to fail to cover or include the inclusive design of all products, a broad right of access to all services, requirements on the design of the built environment, a broadly framed mobility requirement and important aspects of internet accessibility. Due to the global economic crisis in previous years, a considerable number of our national members have been increasingly struck by budgetary cuttings. This resulted in a reduction of the voluntary dis uh, contributions to the operating cost of our central office by national members. And that's why the board worked on a new and works on a new financial structure, which then was um, decided and taken forward to be in place by the last General Assembly, and this is meant to secure funds, sustainable funds, and maintain to develop the work, to maintain the work of EBU. And let me finally remind you as our, uh, to our website, of our website, www.euroblind.org, you find a lot of information and, of course, the full length of this report. I really thank you for your patience and attention. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Engerman. I should mention, in relation to the quiet car issue, our uh, WBU members in, in Germany hosted a meeting in Berlin and also in Austria, in Vienna. We had uh, regional representatives come together and plan for advocacy, and it has made an enormous difference in the outcome of the regulation. Now to hear from our Latin American colleagues from ULAC, I present to you our regional president, Volmir Remondi. Muy buenas tardes, eh, señor presidente de la sesión. Good afternoon. I am president of the delegates and participants to this important meeting of the uh, World Blind. First and foremost, I would like to tell you that when we talk about UNAC, 
uh, the Union of the Latin America Union of uh, Blind. We are talking about a region who is made up by 19 countries, and that OLAC has a structure and a technical office which is found in Uruguay. We have especializadas de los varios temas de interés de las personas ciegas. And this organization has over 30 years in existence working on behalf of the blind people of Latin America. And in this position as president of this organization, I would like to talk about some of the things that we do in our region and which I believe are important and are directly linked in uh, with all of the work that we do at VWU in the world. I would also like to first say that it has not, I have been in this since 2012, and it is based on a strategic plan where we position ourselves, which are the main executives, the main uh, objectives that we wanted to attain. We gave our, we made ourselves responsible. We named people in order to take the activities that we had planned out and also with a great concern of working in a team with our organizations in Latin America, which is approximately 100 uh, organizations. Through this work, based on the strategic planning the true president of UWAC is not myself, a CES, who did this plan, this plan, which we were able to conceive together with our executives and the people who work in OLAC and also with the countries that uh, listening to everything that we get through the channels of communication in order for it to be a very a directed plan, very uh, focused within the necessities that we have in the region. And this is something that has been prepared with much strength. We work in the last four years based on the strategic plan and until we get to June of this year and after our general assembly that happened in uh, April in Uruguay in July of this year, we gave ourselves the mission of reviewing the important aspects of this plan. We understand that this is something dynamic, something that we would always need to be updating the main uh, points so that we can attain the objectives that we desire. I also would like to share with you that ULAC has participated in great international venues such as in the case of uh, American states here in Washington, United States, and where we were able to have the acknowledgement of the civil society. And this is this position that the international uh, situation gives us was a great achievement. 
because it allows us to work our policies and our ideas, what we think about people with a handicap, and be one of those who could positively intervene in those international policies, which can so that we can be a voice that is heard. Another very important space that we are taking is in the United Nations, where we have been participating in a series of events for conferences such as the Treaty of Marrakesh and also the agent the agenda of 2005 we can take our latin american voice together with our colleagues and other organizations other regional organizations from latin america and make our voice be heard make our positions be seen and our perspectives and our way of working in a more interesting fashion and We also participate with a great group of people from Latin America, leaders, people who have representation in organizations in the Conference for AIDA International, International Alliance for Handicaps in Sao Paulo. And one of the great achievements that we made in this area was that of writing a letter requesting interest of several organizations so that everybody would co-sign and work together for the handicapped people in the region. We understand that this is incredibly important to be able to work in alliances in a network with other organizations of other uh, kinds of handicaps, which would allow us to push forward our work and allow us to expand our voice, our our voice and our commitment on behalf of people with limitations. Some of those organizations, such as the network of organizations that work with uh, with limitations and their families and other organizations, the indigenous network, young women and children, together with ULAC, all of them gathered at Sao Paulo, we're going to write this very important document, which we circulated on December the 13th, and uh, taking advantage of this very important date. Another important alliance that we had was with Leal, which is a... Um, is an educational network, a virtual educational network for Latin America, which deals with universities uh, and which is financed by the European Union. And it was a very important participation for us to take our vision on the subjects of education and labor affairs. Also, we need to work very close with all of the other projects that we have in Latin America. In case of the Agora project, which was has to do with preparing uh, people for the workforce, uh, people with physical limitations and other initiatives. So all of these alliances, participating in them, allowed, allowed us to take our voice, our documents, and build with our secretaries 
and allowed our voice to go to a place where they can be considered so that all of these areas that we want to work upon can be dealt with. And also, two big actions that had to do with our organizations in the region in the region, one of them is the work of Marrakesh through projects, through direct projects of ULAC and a, pro, and a joint project with uh, uh, blind societies and with our counterpart of the Latin American Union, with our allies, we were able to work on this subject, which concluded, as everybody knows, in out of the 19 countries of the region, 10 countries ratified this national convention and this treaty, and the another three are in a very advanced process to be able to complete the 13 countries in Latin America, we believe will be ratifying this treaty, and I believe that this is an important contribution in our region. Countries in our governments started doing all of this work so that we could attain to, uh, a treaty such as this, which benefits us in reference to obtaining accessible books for uh, non for people with disabilities. This project also allows us to get to a joint work with our international uh, and national leaders so that they could prepare to be uh, working on the Treaty of Marrakesh, with which, with, with, which is with us, so that we can continue, once that this treaty is in effect in September of this year, we can also prepare everything that has to do with its implementation, aside from working with the countries which did not ratify, so that they can do so at the, as, as quickly as possible in such a way that all of the countries in our region can be linked to the network. We understand that this has been a great opportunity, a great work of opportunity together with ENC. It has been a big opportunity for our countries and our organizations to be able to feel the hand of MC and OLAC closer and working within the countries and that they could understand the importance that it is to be part of an organization such as the Latin America Union for the Blind so that together with a great power we can be united and we can attain important results such as the one in Marrakesh and the ratification on behalf of the convention of the CRPL, the Convention for People with Disabilities, ONU, and so many other initiatives which we believe are possible if we work intelligently with unity with commitment with strength such as we are doing with some of the initiatives that we have undertaken at this moment the methodology developed by our scientific and technical committee which consists of five people who are experts in methodology and information in this area of planification and scientific knowledge has allowed us also to develop a methodology, a work methodology in order to be able to work with our countries, know our realities and be able to 
through uh, meetings, encounters, and other initiatives so that we are able to better understand how our region is with the different subjects that are of interest to us and also obtain information data so that we can utilize them for the uh, readiness of projects, for our own knowledge, to work with our leaders in courses and other situations which require effective data as to how we are, what is the situation, and how we can better know each other. That is why when we had our Congress in April and the main subject was knowing to... uh, knowing to improving we believed in this and we believe that this is incredibly important that from the basis of organizations of countries organizations the local organizations that this the work needs to be understood that people need to be committed so that we can then attain even bigger goals another alliance Another important alliance is the issue of an alliance with Latin America, which we believe we want to copy in another alliance with International Lycia, which we believe that we are going to try to cover which allows us also to work all of the educational subjects, mainly FABI campaign and education for all people with visual limitations in the region. Está con nosotros presente la recién imposada por un segundo. The person here for a second period, Cristina Sanz, uh, who is the president for, for the regional ECV and who we are actually very grateful for working with us in the Latin American Union for Blind and in this project working together with us. And we hope that uh, with this alliance, we can also improve the conditions for education in our region. And and in April, it happened in April during the assembly days for the Latin American Union of the Blind, uh, we had ECV, ICV, regional ACV, Latin America. We also had a meeting in another space in order to be able to formalize itself as a regional organization. And it's also going to allow us to have this organi- organization to gain a lot of uh, power, a lot of space in order to be able to work the different topics that we're interested in managing in our region. And another very important topic for us was the topic about Braille and uh and we are, where um, we invited the 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 World Braille Cons- Congress and also the Latin American Congress for Braille would uh, get together in Sao Paulo, and we wanted to be able to analyze, wanted them to analyze the three main different challenges for the dissemination and also the the use of Braille as an elect the elected use of Braille for people who would have visual impairment as making it the most important one or the main one, main tool that we have for this. And we believe that it's an initiative that uh, is really, we've been helping with, uh, we're helping our region in order to organize this in order to, in order to be able to use these uh, elements for the, the topics. And also in, in a Latin American area, this is something that is very important for us. And we really work these these topics and we have are really using it, our regional 
knowledge in order to be able to improve these conditions in order to be able to divulge information about Braille, to be able to recognize it as one of the main systems that we should be defending. And for this, we have invited the regions so that they can do their own initiatives like ours in order to be able to have this strengthening. And um, we also have a rehabilitation manual that we have been distributing freely to all the different countries that require it. And based on this rehabilitation manual, we have performed several trainings in Bolivia and Venezuela and in other types of initiatives. And, um, and this manual is an instrument which is extremely important and that we have the basic guidelines in order to be able to use the rehab in all of our regions. And there are many other things, but I just wanted to reserve some of my time to be able to thank the public uh, or publicly thank the Foundation for Latin America because all of this work that we performed, most of the financial resources that were necessary for this come from this foundation, from the Foundation uh, 11 for Latin America and ONSI. And I would like to thank Anna Belay, who's here, and all this support, all this work that we've done together. I think that you, you're doing a work that we always say that you, you cooperate. And uh, so basically we hold hands and basically we are always reporting and we always we give and we receive and I think that this type of working jointly like this cooperating is something that is very important for our region and that allows us to be able to do so many things and also we I want to thank the president uh, Art Holting for being always there sensitive and always listening to us and I would like to and our, our petitions, our recommendations, and our recommendations also. And we are all there. He's always present in our region, and he was always there with other presence from the WBU, Fred, and all the other people. And he was basically um, helping us in our work. And I think it's important to have this joint uh, operation with these organizations from the international level with the regional regulators to be able to understand a little bit more about our culture and to be able to know, well, everything that we do in a way that is more continuous. And so I would like to thank... Thank very much, you, all of you, for your attention. Thank you for having me here, listening to me in other languages because I'm talking in Spanish or Portuñols, like people say, which is a mixture of Spanish and Portuguese because I'm really from Brazil and I speak Portuguese. So and I hope that you have been able to follow up with what I have been saying and we're here available to you in the Latin American Union, all of our friends, the regional presidents, and we're here to be able to exchange information and experiences with you. And we hope that all of this helps to be able to strengthen this work for the WBU and also for the regional unions and, and all the different national organizations. So thank you very much. Thank you, Volmir. And now for our sixth and final region, the North America Caribbean region, I present to you the president of the region, Charles Massa. Thank you. Uh, I'm alive. Good. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, officers of the World Blind Union, President Holta, fellow delegates, 
guests, observers, guides, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It's a very great pleasure indeed for me to be able to present this report from the North America Caribbean region and to say on my own behalf what a privilege it has been to work with the region over the past quadrennium with the support of our delegates from the various organizations and to work with the uh, executive and the table officers of the World Blind Union. It has indeed been a great honor. The North America Caribbean region, as the name might suggest, comprises two very large countries and a series of smaller ones in the Caribbean. And it may be thought that we don't have a great deal of linguistic or cultural diversity, which is not the case. There is great cultural diversity in the North America Caribbean region and linguistic diversity as well. Although um, in Haiti, the uh, French is the common language. In the other countries, English is a common language. In Canada, the United States, and the other Caribbean countries. But having traveled throughout our region and listened to the way English is used in those three locations, I sometimes wonder if it's the same language at all. Um, perhaps, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, we are a region divided by a common language. Anyway, um, the Caribbean subregion is represented by the Caribbean Council of the Blind, um, which they often refer to themselves as Eye Care Caribbean. And it is one of the principal challenges of our region to engage with the Caribbean subregion, uh, a series of smaller, poorer countries, including Haiti, of course, um, because they are um, very short of funds. And the umbrella organization which represents those Caribbean countries, with the exception of Haiti, is not able to send delegates to this General Assembly this year because of uh, financial constraints. That's a challenge which our region is going to have to face squarely and try to deal with. We simply cannot uh, tolerate the possibility of part of the region not being able to interact and engage with the rest of us. So it is something we will have to, uh, we will have to consider carefully. The region has met uh, twice a year throughout the quadrennium. And um, once uh, it, we, uh, last year, we were able to meet in Antigua. Um, we had not met in the Caribbean for uh, quite a number of years. And that was because um, in the previous quadrennium, 2008-2012, uh, the region um, passed a resolution that uh, suggested that the region would not meet in countries that prohibited the entry of guide dogs. We thought... Uh, at the time that that might dramatize that inequity and that denial of human rights. Uh, it unfortunately did not. Uh, it did not assist the countries that were advocating uh, for the admission of guide dogs. So in May of 2013, we suspended uh, that resolution and 
began the process of establishing uh, an opportunity to meet in the Caribbean. And we met in Antigua, which um, when, um, when in negotiations we established Antigua as a location for our regional meeting, um, it was my understanding at that time that they did not admit guide dogs, uh, and that was true. And shortly before we got there, they announced that, in fact, the parliament had created new legislation, guide dogs were to be allowed, and so we used our presence there in Antigua to celebrate uh, their successful advocacy, and we congratulated the Antigua and Barbuda Society of and for the Blind for the excellent work that, uh, that they had done. There is still some work to be done in the Caribbean regarding guide dogs, but progress is being made. In the area of human rights, our region has been active. Many people from our region are involved in um, WBU committees and in work with the United Nations. And, of course, in the ongoing effort uh, to increase ratifications of the CRPD. Um, a number of Caribbean countries did very well in the quadrennium. Barbados ratified in 2013. Grenada in 2014, Trinidad and Tobago last year, and Antigua and Barbuda, uh, to mention them again, in January of this year. So we are very proud of that, and we congratulate the national organizations and the Caribbean Council of the Blind for the work that they have done in bringing that forward. Canada, in our region, has ratified the UNCRPD, the United States has not, uh, but we have established uh, a coordinator uh, who is working with American organizations uh, to um, coordinate and work with them in the effort to ratify the UNCRPD, although at this present time of uh, political festivity down here, um, it... Uh, it may not be possible just for the next little while. However, I do assure you all that the effort does continue and is very serious in its in eh? now I'm back again is very serious in its intent. In relation to capacity building of organizations uh, in in our own region and elsewhere. Um, we have um, continued our support through Perkins School for the Blind, the Canadian National uh, Institute for the Blind, uh, working with NAPB uh, and Sightsavers in support of the Institutional Development Program uh, of the World Blind Union, which is, of course, spearheaded and coordinated by the Perkins School. And in this quadrennium, there was the successful implementation of the Senior Management Institute, and also the Africa Forum in Uganda, and members of our region were very active uh, uh, in participation and presentation at the, uh, at the Africa Forum. Regarding accessibility, of course, we think immediately of the silent cars. We've heard a lot about that issue from Dr. Schroeder and uh, also from Wolfgang just now. Um, uh, so I won't go into that uh, a, a great deal anymore. But um, the region is committed to supporting our people uh, as they work 
towards a successful conclusion to this uh, so that we have access as blind and partially sighted people full access to all shared space and do not have to fear a silent menace uh, on, our, on our streets. Also, um, organizations in Canada and the United States are working hard uh, on issues of accessibility to technology with the goal in mind of what we might call out-of-the-box accessibility. Accessibility of all devices without the necessity for people such as ourselves to have to purchase extra software or extra hardware so that we can make use of these devices. We are not prepared to be an afterthought. Um, devices must be accessible to all when they are purchased, not at some future time after some further effort. That, too, we regard as a matter of human rights. Thank you. And, of course, you cannot talk about accessibility without thinking of print accessibility and the Marrakesh Treaty. And here we congratulate the Canadian Council of the Blind and the Canadian National Institute for the Blind for their cooperative effort that brought about Canada's ratification number 20, taking us over the top. Well done. It's worth pointing out that there was an additional challenge in that process because after the motion was initially presented to the Canadian Parliament, the government up and declared an election. So it was a matter of keeping the momentum going and wanting to make sure that the new government didn't simply lose track of it and disappear off the radar. Uh, they persevered. And uh, as we know, a couple of months ago, ratification um, was accomplished, paving the way for full entry into legal force at the end of, uh, at the end of September. And we, there's no need for me to go into the benefits of the Treaty of Marrakesh, just to congratulate again all those who helped to bring it into being and all those countries that have ratified and those that undoubtedly will. Our final priority uh, is not the least priority, but it's the one I want to deal with last, and that is the concept of information sharing. We are absolutely committed to the sharing of information because it is through the sharing of information that teamwork takes place. Without communication, there can be no teamwork. Without teamwork, you will never make the dream work. So we are committed to that to sharing the information that we have, to learning from others, and working as a region towards the dream that we all have, which will see a day that we know will come when blind and partially sighted people all over the world, no matter who they are or where they dwell, will have the opportunity to fully participate in the social, economic, political, and cultural lives of their communities independently, with all the dignity and self-worth that independence brings. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Charles. I think you would all agree that these reports show that the blind of the world 
are active, that we are focused on our goals, and that there is so much progress happening that we can share among one another, that we can use to, to inform our own advocacy in each of our countries. Before we break for our tea break, we have two announcements. First, we have a reminder that, the, that Canada is holding a reception from 6.30 to 8.30 tonight in Salon 3, Level 2. Just drop in, join friends and colleagues for food, drinks, door prizes, and good times. Again, that's 6.30 to 8.30 in Salon 3, Level 2. Another reminder is that there are two workshops this evening on the Marrakesh Treaty and CRPD. Um, refer to your program book for details on those. And uh, finally, our, our um, regional president, Mr. Deborah, asks that all of the African delegates, if you would meet here at the front of this room, not now, but immediately following the last session, so meet up here at 6 p.m. for a brief meeting. With that, we are adjourned, and enjoy your tea break. Okay, we've made it through yet another session. That was all of the regional reports. And then we'll end the tea break. And then for the last session of today, we're going to hear the results of the first vice president and the secretary general and the treasurer positions. And then there will be some... Uh, candidate uh, presentations. Exactly. So I'm hoping that we will get uh, Kirk Adams, the new CEO of AFB, over here to the table once the tea break gets properly started. Until then, Larry, what did you think of the uh, presentations there from the regions? Well, uh, it just reaffirms that, you know, even though a lot of work's been done over the years, there's still a lot to do, and unfortunately, um, there's always been, you know, there's setbacks that uh, can and often do occur. It continues to be the case that yeah. most problems have a financial partial solution to them. Yes. So most of the regions are struggling with what they can do with the financial resources available to them. But it's not always a financial no, issue. I Clearly, think financial and political are the two major yeah, issues. Yeah, political would be the other. And here in the United States, we have not passed uh, the Marrakesh Treaty as of yet for political reasons. I have reason to hope that that may change in the next couple of months, certainly before the general elections. Uh, that remains that a be, distinct possibility. I really hope it happens, but unfortunately I have my doubts. With you the have your doubts. Well, yeah. again, there's a potential for it to happen. I know yeah. that uh, activities are underway that could result in it, its passage before the general election. But it does require compromise, and compromise is a difficult thing to come by in our nation at this point. Uh, the other thing that we've yet to do in the United States is uh, pass the U.N. Um, I always get the letters all backwards. Larry, how are you with those? 
um, on rights of persons with disabilities convention on rights of persons with disabilities we've yet to right. adopt that in this country either yep somebody's on their way kurt is here oh good have a seat my is. friend right here at the end okay. and we're going to share this microphone So with us is Mr. Kirk Adams, the new CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind, an organization that I served on the Board of Trustees for a number of years and remain a Board Emeritus. And uh, Kirk so far hasn't found reason to rue that fact, but he hasn't been in the office long enough yet to, to know the truth 100 days. 100 days? Yeah, well, yeah, something. Wait a minute, so you're, days. Pat, you're our past then the... Uh, your standard, uh, what do they call my, it, the my, uh, my honeymoon? Ninth, yeah, the, yes, the honey, yeah. honeymoon is over. Honeymoon is over. All right, I started May 1st. And how are you finding the job so far? Well, it's, it's fascinating. I, I've known about AFB my whole life as far back as I can remember when I was a first grader at the Oregon State School for the Blind, and we would get stuff from AFB. My parents would order games and toys and things from AFB and then uh, there's an annual leadership conference held by the organization. I attended my first one in 2001 in Washington DC when I first went to work at the Lighthouse for the Blind in Seattle and I attended that leadership conference faithfully every year um, for the past 15 years. I was asked to join the program committee of AFB five or six years ago and then I too uh, as yourself was asked to join the board of trustees and I, I served on the board of trustees for oh two and a half years before I, I became CEO and of course Carl Augusto was in that position for 25 years and uh, I don't, he, he didn't make it a secret that he was not going to work forever and he would be retiring at some point so I began to think about the possibility of um, applying for the position when it became open and had uh, decided to do that went through a uh, extensive process. Uh, AFB conducted a nationwide search for qualified blind applicants for the position. And on January 1st this year, I got a phone call saying I'd, I, I was being offered the position. So put together a um, transition plan to uh, move into the role and move my household from Seattle to New York and all kinds of other transitions. Well, like you, you I had to move from Oregon uh, not quite as a big city as Seattle, but the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, out to Boston from a state of three million to a city of three million. Right. How have you found the transition from Seattle to your New York City? Well, I have been in New York five or six times, uh, once or twice on business for the Lighthouse, um, and then uh, three or four times as a board member uh, of AFB, and um, got a a taste enough of New York to understand that it has immense cultural <laughs> activities, um, extremely diverse um, citizenry, uh, visitors from all over the world, um, every language uh, spoken on the streets, um, fabulous dining, theater, music. Um, but to live there rather than visit there has um, really been an experience. We. We're provided with a, a furnished apartment 
in Manhattan for my first six weeks on the job, very near Times Square. And the, the offices of AFB are in Manhattan, right near Madison Square Garden and, and Penn Station. And so I was immersed in Manhattan for six weeks, and it was uh, more more stimulation than uh, this Seattle person needed. So um, at first we thought we'd just live in Manhattan within walking distance of the office, but um, after a week or so we really decided we needed uh, some place that had more of a neighborhood feel. And uh, my while I was fully occupied during the day at the office, um, my wife Roz would go visit different parts of the city. Um, we have learned that New Yorkers are not wanting for opinions, so everyone we asked uh, about where we should live had a very strong and very different opinion, um, but we wanted a place that had uh, neighborhood feel, walkability to get to the things we needed, and uh, good access to public transportation for me to get to work and back so we found an apartment in Brooklyn, neighborhood called Park Slope, which is near Prospect Park, which is a large park in Brooklyn, and uh, one block from the subway. So I have uh, been taking O&M uh, instruction. I am a totally blind person, a cane traveler, and I have not had experience traveling independently on the New York subways. So I'm learning that. And uh, they were certainly not designed with accessibility in mind. So it, it's been, uh, at first, intimidating. I think I've gotten past the intimidation factor. And now it's down to the technical aspects of understanding that each train is different and the models are different, so the layouts are a little bit different. And um, you know, the difference between a double-edged platform and a single-edged platform and all, all those things you need to master in order to use the subways. But I, I'm almost there. When I originally moved to the Boston area, I was unemployed and wanted to learn my way around. I turned to the state agency to give me some O&M, and they indicated they'd get to me in about six weeks. And I knew I had to be kind of independent day one, so I instantly went out and simply started riding buses and riding trains. And uh, like you, I didn't grow up with a, uh, a rail system as part of my life, um, so I had to get used to this idea of going underground and... Uh, again, an older transit system, so lots of different rolling stock involved, yep. no two of which seem to be alike. Right. Center platforms, the terror of my life. Uh, you know, all of those kinds of things like you've been experiencing. Yep. And you do get past it eventually, yep. though I hope that I never lose enough awe of the system right. that I start feeling cocky about my O&M yeah, I underground. Yeah, I got to Stay alert anyway, and uh, it's, it's not just uh, an assault on the senses in terms of sound, though rail underground is a noisy situation. It's also, uh, shall we say, the smell of the underground that is a new experience. <laughs> and then I've also found that uh, New Yorkers are um, a friendly, helpful bunch, and they like to kind of help hoist you or push you or pull you or maneuver you uh, onto the train, which is also something you have to learn to deal with. Yeah, how, how to keep a smile on your face in spite of how they think they're helping in the in the process. Right. But it happens. Yep. It happens. And, the other, and I have to uh, say that, that the area that AFB is located mm -hmm. in is one of the nicer, easier to get around it, areas on ground, it above is. ground. It is. Uh, Manhattan is a grid, and our part of Brooklyn is a grid. So the streets are numbered, the avenues are numbered, and 
my O&M instructor told me on my first day, she said, if you can count, you won't get lost in Manhattan. So exactly. that, is, that has proved to be true. I think that is very true. And um, It's amazing, however, as you're walking down the street, how the people walking towards you seem not to see you. Right. You, you, have, you have to expect to have to literally part the ways. I think a lot of people are looking at their phones. Yeah. That's what I think. Well, I think people I'm, I'm are walk, walking that's and the looking excuse. at their phones. <laughs> But nonetheless, it's it's a very interesting place to be. Yeah, it's been good. And I've taken the train, the Acela train. We uh, AFB has a public policy and research center in Washington D.C., so the AFB office is right in the same block as Penn Station. So I've been able to go down and get on the train, and a very civilized way to travel to Union Station in D.C. So I've done that a couple times. I've taken the train to Albany um, to speak at a gathering of the. New York State Commission for the Blind uh, Rehab Staff. So the rail transportation um, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Apparently, they're using the brake to figure out the audio for post brake. Right. And that, that's okay. So this is your first WBU event, correct? Yeah. Yes. And how are you finding it so far? You know, it, it, it's fascinating. I um, didn't really understand um, much about WBU. My professional career has not led me in this direction in the past, but when I became the president of AFB, I was told that AFB was a founding uh, member and was one of the organizations in the North America Caribbean region, and as such, I was be, would be a delegate, a delegate to uh, WBU, and the quadrennial meeting, this is the first time I understand that it's happened in the United States, and I'm... Uh, I'm actually glad throwing uh, international travel into the mix right now would have been uh, uh, a little overwhelming, I think, with the rest of my schedule. But the fact that it's here, and I've uh, met some wonderful, interesting people. I'm still, um, we just heard the regional reports of the six regions, so that's becoming clearer, clearer the way it's structured. But just the um, fact that blind people from, uh, you know, over well over 100 countries are here together to talk about common experiences and common issues and to look at sharing best practices, um, working on some global initiatives like the, uh, the CRPD and the Marrakesh Treaty that would benefit people with disabilities and blind people worldwide. The fact that there's a body uh, addressing um, initiatives at a global level is exciting and then there's um, just the incredibly wide variety of where people are at where organizations are at in their evolution and their capacity and their ability to deliver services you know, a gentleman from Senegal I, I believe was speaking yesterday about the fact that they don't have uh, the resources to put long white canes in the hands of blind people in their country that, that uh, his, his, his plea was that the Worldwide Union try to work on getting uh, affordable canes, you know, for the for the people that they're trying to serve. And you know, I'm am sitting here, you know, obviously with a cane in my hand and a spare cane in my bag and a braille sense and you know a brilliant braille display sitting back on my desk at the office and an iPhone in my pocket and the you know the types of tools that I. Um, hope I don't take for granted, but um, seem to be 
fairly readily available uh, to us uh, at a level that I think many people at this gathering um, don't experience, haven't experienced. So. Exactly. When we talk about affordable things, tools, uh, blindness, we're talking about affordable screen readers and, mm -hmm. and refreshable braille displays. And like you said, while we may not take for granted the existence of long white canes, we certainly don't think twice about their cost for the most part. No. Um, I know that organizations that I've worked with internationally, we kind of gather up uh, white canes mm -hmm. uh, that other people would consider, oh, that one looks a little beat up. Well, it's not necessarily beat up if you put a new uh, strip of, what do they call it, scotch light mm -hmm. tape on it to refurb it and send it away. Mm -hmm. We also raise money in the Northeast through um, a number of different organizations, and the Carroll Center sells white canes at cost to that organization so that they can take them into places. And you would be surprised when you think of Senegal. Maybe you can imagine Senegal having trouble. Mm -hmm. But it's true also that Russians, hmm. blind Russians, are having a similar kind of problem. Oh. It's not just a matter of the cost necessarily as the availability of mm -hmm. uh, getting your hands on those. So, and the other problem with doing things internationally is getting past shipping and receiving restrictions. We've recently sent a half a dozen Braille riders to, I believe it was Tanzania, mm -hmm. and they've been stuck in shipping and receiving mm -hmm. for six months because somebody didn't think to send the providence oh, of oh, the mm. used, donated mm. Braille riders with it. Mm. So they're going to sit there for mm. another six months or so. Mm. We hope to be able to get them out of there. But this is nothing new. Yeah. Nothing new, but it is uh, an international reality. Now, AFB is both the American Foundation for the Blind dealing with things within the United States, but your reach is beyond just the USA, is it not? It's become even more so as our presence on the, the web has increased. So we offer um, web resources, um, three kind of distinct tracks. One is called Family Connect. It's primarily for families with blind kids and to help families understand the particular eye condition that their child is living with and connect with resources and other families and career connect really focuses on working age blind folks primarily school to work transition and then um, vision aware is is really at the other end of the age spectrum for families with seniors who um, are experiencing visual impairment as part of the aging process and um, on family connect in the last report I saw there were more uh, as we, we can track where visitors come from, um, from their email domains, and we had more international visitors than domestic visitors in the last time period we measured. So we, um, Access World is a publication that many people at this conference has, have mentioned to me that they, they read. I, w I was talking to the folks from the Hong Kong Blind Union, and Access World is a free publication where blind authors are analyzing mainstream and assistive technologies um, for accessibility and I know um, there's a wide international audience for that and um, as well as the textbooks that AFP, AFB Press produces which are used in the university programs preparing pr 
professionals for the blindness field, O&M instructors and Braille teachers and Yes, exactly. You know, sometimes the title doesn't quite express the whole scope of an organization right. like AFB. I know that the Perkins School for the Blind, specifically Perkins Solutions, that are the manufacturers and distributors of Braille Riders, right. it's been a, at least a decade uh, that they have sold more Braille Riders internationally yes. than they have domestically. Right, and I know uh, the Hadley School... Um, or Institute for the Blind now um, has a um, very significant usership from uh, from China. So um, it's becoming the the global community. You know, the the world without borders. It's becoming more and more so. I've had uh, some visitors at the Carroll Center over the years. Most recently, well, we have annually probably ten different countries that stop by on fact-finding missions of one kind or another. Uh, we have a special relationship with Taiwan in particular and also uh, Colombia. Mm. Even though you might think of the Carroll Center for the Blind as being a Northeast regional right. resource, we become a world resource very, very rapidly. Yeah. Uh, we also have relationships on a case-by-case -case basis with individuals who come to learn about technology to learn about rehabilitation the American way mm -hmm. to take it back home and apply it to development in their own countries. Right. Well, on, the, on the flip side I had visitors from the Hong Kong Blind Union in Manhattan on Tuesday they're here now at this meeting in Florida but they were uh, they're wondering why every street crossing in Manhattan didn't have an audible, audible pedestrian signal like they are used to in, uh, in Hong Kong. So. Exactly. We learn from them as well as teach them, do right. we not? Exactly right. Uh, you, if you get a chance to go to Japan, uh, my wife Kim and I went to Osaka, Japan, and detectable warnings are used dramatically differently there than they are mm. here. Here, it's, this is a warning not to proceed without caution you know, from sidewalk into street, that kind of right. thing. And there, they are virtually a wayfinding device. Hmm. Find it and follow it hmm. uh, through places like subway stations okay. and even down uh, sidewalks and city streets. Hmm. So a different approach toward yeah. uh, the use of these kinds of tools. We like to think that at some point there'll be some form of unification so that as you move from one country to another for work or play or, or whatever circumstances allow, <laughs> that you don't have to have a cue card to figure out what right. the same thing means under these different circumstances. Exactly. So, what do you expect with AFB in the near future? Are we well, going to I be seeing any changes? You, we're doing a strategic planning process that has just begun this past week. Uh, created a strategic planning advisory committee on the board. and um, That was an expectation when I was hired that a strategic planning process would be undertaken uh, briskly and it's the number one uh, bullet point on my job description so we um, my second week on the job I worked with the board uh, chair and leadership to form a strategic planning advisory committee on the board we have identified a um, resource boost social sector consulting based in DC they will be uh, our external consultant and help us manage our process uh, we'll be gathering a lot of stakeholder input. We'll be doing in-depth interviews of all of our staff, um, many of our board members, and then 40 to 50 external uh, stakeholders from the field. We have a um, 
annual leadership conference I mentioned earlier this year. It's March 2nd through 4th in the Washington, D.C. area. We usually have about 400 attendees, and we'll have our uh, strategic questions firmed up enough to, to ask for some real-time input uh, from attendees of that conference. Then by next May or June, we should have a, a clear uh, set of strategic objectives that we can focus on. Uh, I would say that uh, we will be focusing on fewer things than we are now. Um, we're almost 100 years old and we've started a lot of things in the past and uh, some of them have greater impacts than others and we want to focus on putting our resources where we can have the greatest positive impact on the lives of blind people in the country. So we're going to try to get clear on, on what those things are, given our unique history and our brand and, uh, and the relationships that we have. Well, I certainly saw that uh, during the last few years that I served on the board in that AFB was, if not the inventor, was certainly a primary mover in the talking book, de right. development of the talking book program. Yep. But at some point uh, during history, it became very expensive to provide that product directly, even under contract to our federal government right. out of New York City than it was in other locations. Right. So they got out of the talking book business, yep. not because it wasn't important, but right. because others were in a position to continue it on, and AFB could change its focus yep. to things where it could be the primary player instead of a secondary player. Yeah, and I think uh, yesterday's example were uh, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, our senior policy research analyst. She, she presented findings of a survey that AFB conducted on behalf of the World Blind Union. So I think that type of activity you'll see more of, uh, where we can identify um, research areas where good data uh, concerning issues facing people who are blind can be used by organizations, federal agencies, educational institutions to make decisions. Um, I think um, for lack of a better term, thought leadership, bringing people from various sectors together. Um, we have created a, uh, facilitated a discussion around a national agenda on aging and vision loss. Um, AFB's led that effort. Four goal areas have been identified. Um, there's leaders from organizations throughout the field attached to each of these goal areas. Uh, Paul Sainer from the uh, Voc Rehab Agency in your state is one of the goal area leaders on that effort. Um, so I, I think that kind of effort, convening, uh, understanding what the systemic barriers to um, inclusion for people who are blind are, and trying to put some focus on those through good research and good policy work. I think you'll see more of that. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. I've always felt that when I'm asked, so what are the real numbers? How many blind people are there? What are they doing? Right. Those kinds of things, especially as I work with industry, yes. who always want to have some numbers to work with. Exactly. We've only been able to cite old numbers right. or numbers that were, I don't mean suspicious, meaning somebody right. wasn't doing their homework, but right. they... You know, more modern techniques for data gathering right. and a lot uh, of exist now. A lot of extrapolation, like you know, making an assumption of uh, one one point two people per hundred thousand, and you know, using a calculator is, is making <laughs> exactly. A, is, exactly. Uh, I was trying to explain to somebody the other day that 
that to the best of our knowledge, which is not very reliable, right. that we statistically 120,000 legally blind people are in Massachusetts, my home state. Yep. But we only know the names of about 20,000 of them. Right. So is that something we be, should be concerned about? Or in fact, are the numbers different than uh, this number crunching would suggest? Right. Uh, and needing to know more about them than their sheer numbers. How old are they? Uh, so that we can provide services that are age appropriate. Yep. Um, and how do we get the attention of people who statistically exist? Exactly. Separate of those who we know how to, how to reach them. So many people who are legally blind are blind as a result of aging. Yep. Um, and they're not part of the blindness system. Right. And the system that they are part of does not report their existence particularly well. Uh, the medical system has always been more about the eye disease than the social aspects of being on the other side of those right. eyes that aren't functioning in a way that people would otherwise expect. So having AFB's support in gathering data, in, in being an opinion leader in these kinds of things could be really be a real asset to all the rest of yeah. us working in the field. So I think that's the direction we're headed. Now, you had mentioned some of your earliest experiences with AFB were toys and things that your parents bought on your behalf. Right. And, of course, that's another area that AFB has gotten out of over the years. Correct. The devices, sale of products and watches. devices, those kinds of things. Right. Partially because so many other entities now took up that responsibility right. and are doing that distribution of these and creation of these devices. Though I have to say that some of the best devices I've ever owned in my life had the AFB logo on them. The most durable toys, the most well thought out devices right. uh, had AFB about them. So I'm hoping that as we move forward, AFB will continue to be involved in those kind of things. There's one other area I'd like to ask you about before I let you sure. go and resume your, your seat. AFB is New York based for the most part. It also has a Washington DC office yes. and a Dallas office. Correct? Correct. Okay. And, and do you anticipate oh a small, and a small presence office? in Atlanta. In Atlanta, right? And in Huntington, West Virginia. Oh, don't forget Huntington. <laughs> I don't anticipate that the Huntington connection's going to be going away anytime soon because of the nature of the funding of Correct. that through former uh, coal stock. Right. I w you can tell I was involved at yeah. AFB at the time that exactly. we divested directly from that. Right. But we did take on some responsibilities in accepting that bequest Correct. that requires we, we AFB, continue to work uh, in and through West Virginia. Right. But how about the other offices? Are we going to see in the strategic plan any discussion of relocating AFB's central hub? Is that, could it extend to that it sure can. radical of it, a change? It, it sure can. And um, whether or not we remain in New York um, uh, is a question, but I think it's, it's more of a question of where should our focus be to have the interactions with the um, organizations that we must have strong key relationships with. And as we recently did a, uh, a brainstorm of our most important relationships, um, myself and my direct reports, and we came up with about a list of 50 government agencies, nonprofits, and corporations 
and you know a quarter of them were in the Washington DC area um, a, a good big handful were in California mostly tech companies uh, there was one in the Seattle Washington area called Microsoft um, some in Dallas one in Atlanta um, but the preponderance were in, in Washington DC where we do have an office so um, as we walk down our strategic planning path that that will definitely be a consideration as geographically where should staff be and then really do do we need a lot of offices should we be more of a virtual organization if we're if we're here just is American Foundation for the Blind which means the whole country uh, do we have a better chance at attracting retaining uh, top talent especially people who are blind if people can work virtually um, do people really need to come into an office every day? Um, uh, those are the types of questions we'll, we'll be wrestling with. Well, again, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. Back to the program. And welcome back. This is session eight. If you could please take your seats, we will get started so that we can adjourn promptly at six o'clock for the other meetings. Welcome to Session 8. My name is Mark Riccobono, President of the National Federation of the Blind, and uh, I'm honored to be chairing uh, this session of the meeting. I have just a couple of announcements. Uh, before we get underway, I'll make this announcement again, but if you have not exchanged your invitation to the gala on Wednesday night for an actual ticket, Please visit the welcome desk just outside of this room, across the hall. Visit the welcome desk and exchange your invitation. If you plan to be at the gala dinner, you'll need to exchange your invitation for an actual ticket. You can do that immediately after this meeting at 6 o'clock. The desk will be open for an hour or so after this meeting. I would encourage you strongly to exchange your invitation to the gala for a ticket, and please do so today. The first item of business for this afternoon is an announcement of the results of the election. So to make this presentation, I welcome to the microphone Mr. Everson, Chair of the Elections Committee. Thank you, Mark. I, um, I don't even see the two candidates, but uh, maybe they are not bothered about the results, uh, <laughs> which is not very encouraging. But anyway, let me... Uh, one is here. Oh, yes, Mr. Mittal. Sorry, I didn't see you there in the corner. Anyway, we had elections for uh, the position of Secretary General. We had uh, two candidates. One was A.J. Kumar Mittal, also known as A.K. Mittal, and Mr. David Okon from Nigeria. There was one change from the, from the committee dealing with the number of votes. So the number of voters, votes present was 215, and the number of eligible proxies were 85. So the total 
maximum number of eligible votes was 300. We received 257 votes. None of the votes were spoiled, so the total number of eligible votes were 257. So everybody managed to get only one card in, inside the envelope and everything went okay. Except that some people, about two people came about one hour after we had closed uh, voting. So maybe tomorrow everybody will come on time. Now to the result. Anybody excited? No. <laughs> Um, the candidate David Okon from Nigeria collected 79 votes. The candidate from India, A.K. Mittal, collected 178 votes. The decision from the election committee is therefore that A.K. Mittel should be elected Secretary General of WBU. So everybody agrees. It sounds like uh, I heard a lot of clapping here that that is approved. Thank you very much and congr congratulations to A.K. Mittel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Everson. The uh, state of Florida in the United States is uh, known for voting. Uh, I'm glad that the World Blind Union has done it better than the state of Florida in the United States. <laughs> this afternoon, we have a, a very important topic to take up as the final session, and that's to talk about public perception campaigns. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. And every day we raise expectations of the blind because we know that low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want, and blindness is not what holds you back. This is what we call our one-minute message. It's the way that we describe the work that we do in the National Federation of the Blind to anybody we meet. It's meant to quickly and powerfully deliver the one message that we want every person we meet to know about the National Federation of the Blind, about our aspirations for the future. The NFB has been working on many aspects of discrimination as we've talked about uh, throughout this meeting. But the one that has been the longest, most persistent, and most consistent are the public attitudes about blindness, the low expectations that blind people face in all aspects of society. And in fact, we believe that that's the most significant barrier that we face, and it has many dimensions. It's a difficult problem to tackle because the society around us continues to change. We have new generations coming up. Uh, there are new images of blindness to contend with. But we believe 
that we've been making great progress in raising expectations in the public regarding the blind, and I think the presentations we're going to hear from this afternoon should spark some very powerful conversation about how we collectively continue to change what it means to be blind around the world. Now, in 1965, Dr. Kenneth Jernigan gave a speech in Washington, D.C. at the 25th anniversary convention of the National Federation of the Blind. That speech was entitled Blindness, Concepts, and Misconceptions. And I want to give you a quote from that speech because I think it reflects what we're here to talk about today. Dr. Jernigan said, The real problem of blindness is not the loss of eyesight, but the misconceptions and misunderstandings which exist. The public, whether it be the general public, the agencies, or the blind themselves, has created the problem and must accept the responsibility for solving it. The statement is important for many reasons, but the one I want to lift up to you is that changing perceptions in society begins with us. It begins with blind people and how we raise expectations for ourselves. You heard during the opening yesterday that in the National Federation of the Blind, we continue, continually evaluate our actions against our philosophy about blindness, against our expectations for ourselves, that blindness is merely a characteristic, that it is not the thing that defines us. We do not benchmark our progress against what the public thinks about blindness, because we'd pretty much be done. We'd go out of business. (laughs) It's a low bar to jump over. So we, every day, work to evaluate what we do as blind people. The question that we face this afternoon is how do we get the rest of society to think about blindness in this way and to work on it every day as well? One way we know that starts is with blind people, and especially with newly blind people who have not yet come to know the truth about blindness, to have the understanding that we have, to have the training and opportunities to know that the image of blindness that we've come to know through decades, centuries of misunderstanding is not the truth about blindness. So that's the challenge that we have in front of us today to talk about that. Now, in the National Federation of the Blind, we use many methods to do that. And knowing that it's late in the day, we've just come off a tea break. People might be getting a little tired. I thought I'd offer a little levity in terms of how we approach the problem. We've published extensively about what it means to be blind and what it doesn't mean. I told you that yesterday. In the area of social media, new media, we've tried to get creative about how we present our perspective on blindness, especially to appeal to those who don't yet, who haven't yet had the opportunity to meet a blind person to know the truth about blindness. In the United States, we 
uh, have April 1st, which is considered April Fool's Day. It's kind of a day to flip the script. Um, Do the unexpected. Um, Help people look at the world in new ways. Sometimes people do this to play practical jokes on folks. Uh, But we thought two years ago that we would start using April Fool's Day as a new and fun way to present our understanding of blindness. So two years ago, we launched a new program to put blind people out in the community to help the sighted. So, Will, let's roll the video. National Federation of the Blind. Live the life you want. In the National Federation of the Blind, we understand that having equal rights in society also entails exercising the responsibilities that go with those rights. A cornerstone of our philosophy has always been giving back. So this month, we're launching a new program in which blind people will give back to the sighted members of our community. Every day, as we travel the streets, living the lives we want, we are often offered unsolicited assistance. Well-meaning sighted members of our communities grab us, ask us if we know where we are going, and offer to help us cross the street, sometimes even dragging us across. It is only fitting that we begin giving back to the well-meaning members of our communities. Careful! Ma'am, I just want to let you know there's a pole there, okay? Go this way. All right, there you go. All right. Good job. Oh, excuse me, sir. Do you uh, know where you're going? Uh, yes, I believe so. Do you need directions anywhere? Um, no, thank you. No? Oh, I'm going to Wayne Hall. You are? Do you need somebody to take you there? No, but some directions <laughs> would be I'd be glad to give you directions. If you'll take the 64 northbound, and you'll get the Oh, good morning, sir. Hi. Hi, are you waiting across the street? Well, let me take you across the street, sir. Let me take you across the street. Um, no. No, no, come on. Let me take you across the street. I'll make sure it's safe. Let's listen for our parallel traffic. There's none. Let's go. That's right, friends. Coming soon to a community near you, blind people giving back. Before you even know you need help, a well-meaning blind person will grab you and make your day uncomfortable by offering unsolicited assistance. Your walk through town will never be the same again. April Fools! Happy April Fools Day from the National Federation of the Blind. You know, as blind people, uh, we're out living, participating fully in the community, and our desire is to have the highest level of independence possible. It gets very frustrating when we're out on the street and uh, someone runs up and grabs us or pushes and pulls us, gives us directions, even though we're not in need of help. And then in the times when we may be in need of help um, and we ask for help, um, people uh, grab us and pull us across streets without really a degree of dignity. Our April Fool's Day video is meant to uh, make that point and to teach you that as blind people, we face low expectations all the time and that low expectations are really the barrier we face between blind people and our dreams. If you come across a blind person on the street, uh, please don't just push, pull, or grab them. Uh, Say hello. Start up a conversation. If you think someone needs help, 
um, they'll let you know if they need help. If you want to learn more about the National Federation of the Blind and our empowering philosophy, I invite you to visit nfb.org or call one of our local chapters. Come to a local chapter meeting of the Federation. Learn about the work that blind people are doing to live the lives we want and to change the understanding of blindness across our society. You can be part of that. You don't have to be an April Fool. For more information about the National Federation of the Blind, visit www.nfb.org or call 410-659-9314. Incidentally, our uh, April Fool's Day video this year was about voting, so uh, you can go watch that on our Nation's Blind YouTube channel. Today we're going to hear a variety of perspectives on this topic and about a variety of techniques being used around the globe to combat the misconceptions and misunderstandings about blindness and hopefully spark some conversation and questions uh, that will help us continue to formulate these campaigns within the World Blind Union. We have three presenters on the panel. Our first is here to talk about a blind new world, a social change campaign. Here to present this item is Corin Grosbeck, who is chair of the board at the Perkins School for the Blind. Uh, Corin has been inspired by her own son, who is blind, to make the world better. She has been deeply involved in uh, helping charities uplift the children that they serve, to use her talents uh, during her career, her experience in advertising, to formulate messaging, and to help the organization she's worked with raise money. She has been involved with the Perkins School and has recently become chair of the board. I know from uh, meeting with her earlier today that she's got a passion and an energy to change what it means to be blind all over the world. And she figures that she should start by uh, changing the corner of the world she's in to make it a blind new world. So I uh, welcome to the podium Corinne Grosbrek. Thank you for inviting me to come here and speak today to our host, um, the National Federation of the Blind, and greetings to members of the General Assembly. I am so honored to speak to you today about something that I consider to be my life's work. As you've heard, I am chair of the Board of Trustees at Perkins School for the Blind. I am not blind. That's the first time I've actually ever had to point that out, so it's wonderful to see a room full of people. <laughs> um, I'm here, however, speaking with a different hat on today. I'm here speaking as a mom. You see, I have two beautiful children, Kelsey, who is 25, 26, and recently earned an MBA in nonprofit management, and Campbell, who's here today with me. He's 23 and attends Leslie University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When Campbell was three months old, he was diagnosed with labor's congenital amaurosis. By the time he was two, he was completely blind. 
Realizing education was going to be critical to his success in life, we moved our family from California, cross-country, to Boston to access what we believed was the finest education in the world. Campbell attended and graduated from Perkins in 2014. So while this speech isn't all about Campbell, it actually has everything to do with Campbell. You see, in the 23 years I've been his mother, I have borne witness to every form of misperception, bias, pity, and misjudgment society has toward the blind. When Campbell was young, I could easily disarm it. I would force a smile when somebody blessed him. I would defend his ability to respond to questions asked of me, and I would always answer, let him show you, when asked the somewhat rude question, what can he do? Some days I didn't have the fortitude to deal with the way people stared at him. I can be a bit of a mama bear when I have to. I convinced myself as Campbell got older, things would get easier for him. He would be equipped to advocate for himself like I had taught him and like Perkins had taught him to do. His charming social skills would open doors and his O&M skills would enable him to walk through them. But that hasn't been the case. Over the years and through my involvement with Perkins students, these societal slights became a fact of life. And it's unfair. I started to wonder what could be done to change the way society perceives people like Campbell. How can we show sighted people that not only do blind people have so much to offer the world, but ever-changing technology enables them to compete on a level playing field? With my background in advertising and marketing, I know the power of awareness and education to change perceptions. I was convinced there needed to be a social change campaign that would demystify blindness, show society what blind people are capable of, and promote inclusion. I grew increasingly impatient and frustrated watching Campbell take brave steps to transition into the real world, only to stumble over barriers put into his path. Instead of waiting around for society to tackle this issue, I realized I had to take some action. So with all the social change that has and is occurring in the United States, LGBT rights, Black Lives Matter, even the first female presidential candidate, the time is right for people who are blind and visually impaired to also be heard. The hallmark of movements is that they have a focused mission and are able to join forces and mobilize supporters onto one single platform. While many blindness organizations and individuals are out there, we're all saying the same thing, their efforts are scattered. Instead of one disruptive voice, there are many. We need to create a powerful campaign that would touch people's hearts and open their minds to what society is missing by not including the blind. We have to link arms with peer organizations and individuals to create a voice loud enough to be heard. In other words, we need to create our own movement. I pitched this idea to my friend and founder of a strategic marketing agency, Jane Cavalier. She was touched by Campbell and motivated to change his reality. Jane put us together with famed director Tom DeSerchio, who wrote and directed two videos that would serve as the foundation of our effort. We got busy. We vetted the scripts, recruited two actors who were blind, and filmed in LA. 
Tom delivered two beautiful films that everyone agreed hit all the right emotional notes. We created an ad hoc committee at Perkins to strategize how to best use these videos to shape attitudes. But first, we needed more information about those attitudes. So we sponsored a study to dig into society's perception of the blind. And the results were startling even to me. We learned that 80% of people surveyed feel sorry for blind people. Over half said they're uncomfortable around the blind. Only one-third of respondents feel someone who's blind could do their job. While a majority said they would consider hiring the blind, only 30% said their, 30 said their workplace couldn't accommodate them. And I think this is the most startling. 74% of respondents said they themselves could not be happy if they lost their vision. Those statistics were disheartening. To me, pity is the most disempowering emotion there is. Nobody has a real friendship with someone or hires someone to do a meaningful job because they feel sorry for them. We had a big task in front of us to overcome the barriers of stigma, fear, discomfort, and pity that the sighted in our society feel toward the blind. In order to take on this challenge, we decided the videos would be used as an emotional hook to create empathy and awareness. We plan to target society's change agents, millennials, through social media where they live because millennials hate injustice. We created a dedicated website, blindnewworld.org, to educate the sighted, providing tips, tools, and interactive elements to engage and influence the audience. We hired a PR agency, a social media agency, and enlisted as many peer organizations as we could get our hands on. By the way, those who joined the effort told us you had us at hello. Such is the appetite for a broad macro campaign such as this. In May, we launched Blind New World at our annual Perkins Gala among 500 of our top corporate and social supporters. So before I go further, let me show you the videos. The first one is called The Drive and is focused on independence and job skills. Hey, may I take your bag? Thanks. On a sidewalk. Do you need help getting into the car? No, thanks. I got it. A man wearing a suit folds up a cane and gets into the backseat of the car. The driver gets in and they head off. So how's your day going so far? Busy. I'm getting ready for a meeting in New York tomorrow. So you're blind? The passenger smiles. I am. Must be tough sometimes. It has its challenges. What do you do? The man hands the driver a business card. Software engineer. Vice president. They made me VP six months ago. Congratulations. Thanks. The driver looks at the man in his rearview mirror. You know, I've got to say something. When I pulled up to get you, I saw your cane, and I felt sorry for you. But I don't feel sorry for you anymore. I'm actually a little jealous. <laughs> the car arrives at an airport. The man gets out of the back seat and unfolds his cane. The driver retrieves his bag from the trunk and hands it to him. You know, at the end of every ride, I always wish my passengers good luck. But I'm not going to do that with you, because I don't think you need it. It's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. The driver pats the man on the arm. Go get him. On screen, 
blindnewworld.org. Sponsored by Perkins School for the Blind. I was going to forget something. All right. Um, the second video is um, called The Get Together, and its message is around social inclusion. A cocktail party. Hey, girl. Hey, you. Thanks for coming. Who's that cute nerd in the blazer? Oh, that's James. James. And is James single? Okay. <laughs> tell me all about James. Okay, James, he's an assistant professor of astrophysics. Oh, so he's got like a big brain. Sonoma's darling. Ah! <laughs> I'm gonna go introduce myself. Oh, uh, Carrie? What? I think I should tell you this before you walk over there. Uh-oh, here it comes. <laughs> it's just that James is blind. You mean like blind blind? Yeah. Oh. Carrie hesitates, then takes a deep breath and smiles. That's good. I just came from yoga and I'm not wearing any makeup. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Later, Carrie and James on a balcony, laughing and chatting. But by the way, I think you look amazing without makeup. On screen, blindnewworld.org. Sponsored by Perkins School for the Blind. Thank you. We're very proud of those spots. The production value is outstanding, and um, they really do what we wanted them to do, which was just show typical situations that occur with blind people every day and um, what blind people are capable of doing. So um, I feel like they're, they're being very well received. So what has happened since the launch? In three short months, the Blind New World campaign has created 326 million online impressions. The, yeah, <laughs> thank you. The campaign video, The Drive, the first one you saw, has been viewed more than 400,000 times. Our social media accounts are expanding at exceptional rates as well. In those three months, we've gained 30,000 Facebook followers and 4,000 Twitter followers. And we're also in Instagram. Um, I'm told, actually, for a grassroots effort, these are pretty strong numbers. Uh, we did not pay for you know, posting this. We've, we used Google Analytics and some other things to um, you know, get preferential uh, um, whatever, listings on the Google. Um, but most, for the most part, this was all very much grassroots, viral, and PR-driven. But far more important than any quantitative measure, measures we can provide are the anecdotal stories of support and adoption. There's sort of an audible sense of relief among the blind community that something is being done out there to address the daily issue of inclusion. So to be successful... A social change campaign must authentically represent individuals and their experiences. Blind New World does that. We've vetted the campaign and have won universal support among members of the blind community. Blind New World doesn't speak on anyone's behalf, but rather it serves as a platform where personal stories can be shared. In order to keep content new, we recently created the blog, hashtag MyBlindStory where individuals with a connection to blindness can show the world what they're capable of. And we replace those blogs weekly. One blogger, William Budding, 
a blind man who attended University College London, shared his experiences in domestic and international travel. Recalling many instances where he was approached by strangers while traveling, Williams said, I think people assume we who are blind live near home, need constant assistance, and are afraid to leave our places of comfort. In fact, out on the streets of Boston, I've been accosted several times with the inquiry, Sir, do you know where you're going? And I usually reply, Yes, I'm walking to work. Do you know where you're going? The blind community does not need Blind New World in order to prosper. What this campaign does is offer a stage for the blind to demonstrate that they do and how more individuals will when society stops being an impediment to their success. The website is a unique source of information for the sighted to learn about the vast capabilities of the blind, a sort of how-to for the sighted to make society more inclusive. The magnitude and importance of each individual's story are what will change attitudes and end stigma. Connecting, leaning into the conversation, sharing, and educating will give this effort longevity. I envision a day that when Campbell is asked, what can you do? He simply replies, go to blindnewworld.org and see for yourself. So now for what isn't working. Our most difficult challenge is engaging society in this cause. Shockingly, we have a credibility issue. Sighted people simply don't believe there is a problem. They don't believe they are the problem behind lack of inclusion. Even though vocal members of blind social media jumped on board with their own stories, editors didn't deem the campaign newsworthy. While a majority of society claims to have never met a blind person, they don't believe that the blind are marginalized or that they themselves could be the cause. There are over 7 million blind people in the U.S. Then why aren't they being seen? Maybe it's because 40% of job eligible are at home, unemployed, or because sighted people's workplaces, organizations, schools, and communities don't include them, or because blindness is so stigmatized that many blind people don't self-identify as such. The fact that real barriers aren't perceived as existing goes against every result from our survey. What the sighted say and how they act are disconnected. I know the blind can do amazing things. Hmm, okay, then why aren't you hiring them? Let me tell you something you probably already know. As the mother of a blind son, I see that every day Campbell goes out into the world. He is stared at, he is underestimated, he is talked down to, and he is misjudged. And that is something he has to overcome day after day. And he's tired. He's really tired of answering the same questions. Are you really blind? Were you born that way? And his experience is universal of every blind person I have spoken with. There's only so much tenacity you can have. At some point, something needs to be done to educate sighted people. I'm sure many of you can relate. To suggest that this isn't a problem is akin to a man saying sexism isn't an issue. And trust me, it is. Just because you don't personally experience it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we created Blind New World with the most benevolent and altruistic intent possible. This isn't a fundraiser for Perkins. 
This isn't to shine light on our brand. Our single purpose is to make this a kinder and more inclusive world for everyone. So why did Perkins have to sponsor it? Well, because year after year, we watch our graduates go out into the world only to have the door of opportunity slam shut. We can't fulfill our own mission of educating our students to realize their potential if society doesn't allow them to demonstrate it. So we tackled it. We didn't ask for money. We didn't ask for help. We have a limited budget that forces us to rely on organic social growth. We're trying to grab people's attention on a subject that isn't even on their radar screen. We're trying to find a news hook around awareness and diversity when most of the world isn't aware that they're not aware. Trying to keep our content fresh, innovative, informative, and motivating. Our success to date has been hard won. But I fear without greater support and partnership, the opportunity to achieve critical mass and traction will slip away, discouraging others from trying. And then nothing will change. We know our message is on target, and we know we're engaging the people we reach. We need to reach more people. We've exhausted our circle. Perkins never intended, nor can we, carry the social campaign of this magnitude on our own. We need your help. If we're going to succeed in this effort, we need to show the world we are here and these issues are real. Members of the General Assembly, I pose these questions to you. Are you prepared to help make it a blind new world? Are you willing to join this movement to help push forth your own missions and better serve your constituents? Can you find a way to leverage Blind New World to ensure it has lasting potential to break down barriers and create meaningful change? If your answer is yes, then here's what you can do to join us and many of your peer organizations who have already signed up. Submit your own stories to hashtag MyBlindStory. Post, tweet, and retweet using the hashtag BlindNewWorld. Go to the website and contact us. We will work together with you and your organization to join forces and determine how to make a greater impact. You're also invited to come learn more at our hospitality suite Tuesday night and connect with our CMO, Kate Margulies. So you've heard me outline a very ambitious mission, one indeed that has been on the forefront of peer organizations' minds for something like the last 60 years. I want you to know that I'm not naive and I'm not idealistic, but I am a mom. And as such, I have to believe that together we can create a kinder and more inclusive society. You see, I was given the gift of Campbell for a reason, so I can help make a difference for him and people like him to have the same opportunities to live beautiful, meaningful lives as the rest of society. I will not lose hope that the world can be a better place for people like Campbell. And I will not stop until it is. Thank you. Thank you, Corin. I know I'm certain there'll be some questions. So I want to move along so we can get to the questions. We've now seen what is potentially a forward-looking platform 
We now have a couple presentations about some things that have been done across the world. Our next presenter is Bian Kota, president of the Liberian Christian Association of the Blind. Uh, Mr. Kota has an extensive resume of experience in management, leadership, and advocacy. He has been uh, responsible for organizing blind people, planning and executing projects, leading awareness campaigns, and uh, leading a number of successful advocacy efforts that have raised expectations for the blind of Liberia and beyond. Here to present public perception campaigns for positive image building, full social equality and economic participation of the blind in Liberia. Here is Mr. Kota. Thank you very much. Uh, first, let me say thanks to the organizer of this General Assembly. Uh, thanks to the NFB for hosting us. Uh, I'm particularly grateful to Dr. Penny Harden for giving us uh, this challenge to speak to, to you. Uh, distinguished delegates from all over the world. I have been involved in uh, campaign activities uh, with a team in Liberia for over 20 years. Our recent success is, uh, is evidenced by the enactment of the White King Law. It's actually titled an act uh, to an act on the use of the white cane to safeguard the rights of the blind, to access public facilities in Liberia. The government, we struggle with the government to get the white cane law enacted. As a matter of fact, Liberia's legislature had to split in the middle on whether or not the white cane law should be enacted. So we want to say thanks. But let me begin by first saying distinguish the president we see in Liberia, president-elect, because we have a formality when the president is elected, there is a tradition when, whereby the president is installed or inaugurated into office, office before he or she becomes the president. So, Dr. Strada, we want to say congratulations for your ascendancy to the highest office of uh, the World Blind Union. You can count on our support, on Africa's support. I'm sure I can speak on behalf of uh, our able president from Africa, of the African Union of the Blind. Uh, members of the high table. So, let me go to business. Prior to 1985... The blind in Liberia experience exclusion from the mainstream of society and faced many hurdles in accessing fundamental social, economic, and political rights. The exclusion suffered by blind people at the time 
was the result of political inaction and economic inequalities, which rendered the blind dependent and in need of care. The development of the blind up to 1990 was unfortunately regarded in Liberia as a health and welfare issue, leaving the responsibility of caring for its blind citizens largely on humanitarian organizations and civil society. This lack of political commitment was further exacerbated by a total disregard of our human rights, thus prompted the inception of the organized blindness movement in Liberia. Sorry, I'm reading from Braille. Yes. Legal status. The right of the blind to organize gained momentum in May of 1993 when the national legislature of the Republic of Liberia rightfully acted to legally register the Liberia Christian Association of the Blind Cab as a corporate advocacy organization. The achievement of this legislation preceded several years of public awareness raising campaigns that took the form of peaceful rallies and marches of hundreds and sometimes thousands of blind and partially sighted persons through the streets of Monrovia, the capital city. We constructively engaged the general public and welcomed the ideas of and welcomed the exchange of ideas through symposiums and seminars on matters of direct concerns to the blind in Liberia. Our public engagement was extended to institutional, to educational institutions present, presented and pre, which presented us an, an impeccable platform that stimulated public discussions and debates on a wide range of issues surrounding the status of the blind in the Liberian society. Our public engagement with students and school authorities created for us the opportunity to present the situation of the prevailing degenerating perception about the blind and blindness itself by ordinary citizens. This engagement 
further strengthened our resolve to change public attitudes and we soon gain a national consensus towards respect for the blind. The guarantee of equality in opportunities and inclusion in development to a considerable extent. Utilization of intellectual centers for positive image building. Liberia has a culture of setting up public infrastructure through or where members of the community usually meet to discuss matters of importance. These local intellectual centers known as the marketplace for the exchange, the exchange of ideas have regularly witnessed the attendance of blind people who took responsibility to advocate to advance the cause of the blind in the public spheres. The regular, the regular attendance of the blind to those social gatherings enhance our intellectual knowledge of human interest and we generated public support towards the rights of the blind and the in enjoyment of all fundamental human rights in Liberia. Surviving the civil war in Liberia. The campaign for social acceptance for the blind was seriously challenged by 14 years of protracted civil war which destroyed 300,000 lives and put to, fl to, to flight a large population of Liberians who turned out as refugees in several countries within the West African region and in other parts of the world. Concluded, um, uh, included among those refugees were members of our association. In the heat of the war, our advocacy strategy to secure the release of 160 blind and partially sighted persons entrapped, in, entrapped with family members in rebel control territories became a challenging conundrum. We seemingly, we seemingly risk the threat of being liberal as rebel collaborators while working from government control territories and negotiating the release of blind and partially sighted refugees from rebel control. We ultimately managed to get through successfully when the embattled government agreed 
to seize fire and order all of its frontline commanders to order all of its frontline commanders to create a safe passage and bring and and bring to to a safe haven the blind and partially sighted refugees. Thanks, thanks to the sorry. Thanks to the to the leadership of the World Blind Union in assisting us secure the release of blind and partially sighted refugees from the battlefront. The blind and the Ebola fight. Not fully recovered from 14 years of a devastating civil crisis, Liberia was suddenly hit by the outbreak of the deadly Ebola epidemic in early March 2014, which spilled over from neighboring Guinea into the northern part. By July 2014, Ebola had Ebola had spread throughout the country. The negative impact of the Ebola epidemic on the population was catastrophic and many who contracted the the virus were left to die due to the lack of treatment and very limited access to care. Ebola's various and swift attack on the population disrupted economic and and social activities across the country affecting the livelihood of hundreds and thousands of people, especially the poor and vulnerable. In an effort to combat the disease, the leadership of our association embarked on an anti-Ebola community response initiative, having researched the history of the Ebola epidemic, its transmission characteristics, and impact on human existence. As an association, we took, we took responsibility to combat the Ebola virus, which resulted into the disinfestation of communities and physical infrastructure with preventive and treatment materials. The development of the Ebola jingle by the leadership of our association in wake of the Ebola pandemic renew hope amongst the blind and sensitize the general public on the plight of the blind 
elucidating the fundamental message from our inception that the needs and concerns of the blind must not be forgotten by authorities and state actors in the period of national calamity. Let me close by extending our profound thanks and appreciation to the World Brill Foundation, the Danish Association of the Blind, DAB, and the European Blind Union for supporting us in the fight against the Ebola epidemic. And let me play this. Uh, the Ebola jingle. Task name, media player. Title track 101191. Liberia at war against the deadly Ebola virus disease. Continuing the fight to conquer this deadly disease, the blind and partially sighted in solidarity with the government and people of Liberia and supporting the common cause to rout the nation's enemy, develop a nation that commits to a vibrant infrastructure to produce trained medical practitioners for effective Ebola response mechanism, an environment that addresses the medical needs of the needy, provide care for the sick and treatment for Ebola victims, be conscientious, help save the lives of the blind and that of your loved ones, identify and sensitize all blind and visually impaired, enable them access all health centers, receive social support and medical treatment, defeat Ebola and make Liberia a better place for all. This is an initiative of the Liberia Christian Association of the Blind, CAP. Title track one zero. Thank you very much. All right. So. Thank, thank you, Mr. Kota. I appreciate the presentation and uh, raising the issue of how we continue to message, even in very difficult times uh, faced in our country. So thank you for that. The final presenter this afternoon is... No stranger, because he's the incoming first vice president of the World Blind Union. He serves as, yeah, give him a round of applause. <laughs> he's the director of communications and marketing for ONSE. Uh, he has an extensive uh, resume also in business and legal matters, and his perspective on um, working in mainstream companies and uh, combating the misconceptions that employers and others have about blind people is a true asset to uh, his work at ONSE and to the World Blind Union. So here is our incoming first vice president, Fernando Riano. Well, uh, hello, hello everyone. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I would like to say thank you. Um, thank you for many reasons. 
Um, it's a great pleasure, a great honor to be here and speak about the public perception campaigns in terms of opportunities and in terms of uh, employment, in terms of training. And, um, well, uh, what have uh, been we doing in ONCE in Spain about uh, public campaigns? I'll speak about our ideas, our story, our stories, too, and about a great ideal. I'll try to do, speak about um, how we how we get change um, about the term of uh, disability in terms of ability is more important for us. Well, I think um, the great projects are built not only on a big objective or idea, but also on a big ideal. For ONCE and ONCE Foundation to normalization and inclusion in social and working environments. And, well, uh, the question could be <clears throat> how, how do you build a big ideal? Um, we think that a big ideal is built by establishing a relationship between something essential and relevant in the brand and the trend, a problem or a cultural tension in society. These concepts for us are very, very important, has been very important. Cultural tension, big ideal, brand's best self. And um, I think part of our story, our stories and part of our history too, has been uh, this point, building a big ideal um, from cultural tension, a trend, a problem or cultural tension in society, plus brand's best self, brand X thinks the world could be a better place if, and the conclusion, the result uh, must be the big ideal. And brand's X thinks the world would be, would be a better place if. That's, that's the, a, way, a good question for us. And well, other question, another question could be, what's a big ideal for? For establishing a reference to inspire the organization's conduct in terms of communication. And um, the big ideal is not used as such in the communication. It merely sets its course in order to overpower and awareness, modify attitudes in terms of disabilities, the change from disability to ability, or how is more important the ability than disability, raise mindfulness, or overcome hurdles, or inspire. Well, I, I, I use um, part of our campaigns in Spain, part of our campaigns that um, we think that have been very, very important in terms of change um, this perception. Um, our work, uh, our, this, it could be a, a summary of more than 25 years, the last 25 years of advertising, communication, steward by our big ideal in terms of normalization in social and work environments and getting our ultimate objective, that is a society for everyone. It's a concept that um, I have listened uh, sometimes in this General Assembly. 
and this is part of our main objective in terms of training, in terms of employment, in terms of accessibility, and in terms of how society perceives these ideas or these concepts. Well, for, for us, for ONCE and its foundation, this big ideal is uh, a society for everyone. Express a commitment to society, addresses a social demand, and mobilizes people towards a common objective, and produces a great collective benefit for all, a great benefit for society. The main three points, the main, the, 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 the three axes supporting these are or could be uh, commitment, information, and complaint, complaint. In the middle, social work normalization. First of all could be commitment or um, how commitment on the onthest part to society or on the onthest part to the blind. Um, it has the first time, uh, or for the first time, the person with the disability is the star, is part of the story. For the first time, the person with the disability is presented as an active subject with a right to equal opportunities. And perhaps, too, for the first time, the person with the disability claims that right expressly before society in the mass media. The first campaign I would like to share is uh, one campaign of 1989, baby campaign, and uh, it's a pleasure sharing with you. Este niño irá a la escuela y si quiere podrá ir a la universidad para deporte y tendrá un trabajo and will have a wonderful job aunque sea ciego even if he is blind ONCE National Organization for the Blind in 1989 in terms of complaint to our main objective in terms of employment because employment um, as a goal and the prime objective of the social action of the ONCE and the ONCE Foundation, and uh, the reasons could be uh, its benefits and advantages are collective. They transcend the personal scope. And another reason is that uh, the disabled worker becomes a contributor, previously relying on a state, on, uh, a state pension. In terms of complaint too, more reasons, this boosts their self-esteem, implicit reiteration of the message to play down the drama too, and I would like to share um, another campaign in 90, uh, about 1996. The title of that campaign is Ready, Set, Go, um, and this is I am Carmen. We're looking for work. I am a radio announcer. Me too. I've been working and studying. It was difficult. Oh, yeah. I speak English and French, Italian, Italiano, Chavarri, Reverderci. 
Sometimes we do footing, always together. Well, we're looking for a job, but one of us is going to be more difficult because one of us is blind. It's her? Uh-uh, it's her. Nah. It doesn't matter who is blonde. It's two people who have the adequate training, ready to become part of a work team. And they are ready, on your marks, ready, go. En el mismo año... And in terms of employment, in terms of training, in terms of promoting change, too, uh, that year, 1996, another small campaign, and the title was For a World Without, Without Limits. Juan, 28 años. Luis, 28 años. Luis, 28 years old. Juan studied economy. Luis studied economy. Juan speaks French. Luis speaks French, English, and German. Also has a degree in IT. Which of you two would you hire for the same position? Luis is blind. And now? It's not difficult to be, it's not easy to be blind. Let's not make it more difficult. Let's eliminate barrier for a world without limits. Well, um, continuing about information and how, um, thanks to information, we are getting there by all pulling together. Any person is capable. That's the motto. That's the message. Message of equality and cooperation because we are all equal. Inclusive message in terms of it speaks to us all just the same. And motivation message, of course, for change. Change of attitudes. Another, the last one, another video. Uh, eight, uh, sorry, seven years ago, Freud campaign that este hombre es Sigmund Freud. This man is Sigmund Freud, one of the most intellectual men of the 20th century. In summer 1939, a journalist asked him, what is a mature and healthy person? The journalist expected a long discourse and was shocked by the brevity of the answer. Any person who is capable of loving and working and to realize himself and to feel active and to become better and to relate to others. At ONCE Foundation, we work so that any person can feel capable. ONCE Foundation. Well, um, I think uh, um, it has, um, we, we, we have get a great effect in terms of communication, thanks to the, um, the public campaigns. And um, the effect has been uh, normalizing function in acknowledging and perceiving people with disabilities. And how is the opinion, the public opinion and private opinion about uh, disability and people with disabilities? Modification of the symbolic image of people with disabilities, too. And at the end, we have get the change, change in both individual and collective attitudes, attitudes to disability. 
Um, we think um, in terms of uh, our experience and from, from humility that only by following line of communication faithful to the big ideal will we be able to meet our objective, which is in actual fact the objective of the whole of society. And um, of course in these days, I think that the big brands build not, not just on an idea, but on a big ideal, our big ideal original from the beginning. And um, perhaps the difference between an idea and an ideal is that ideals express the brand's commitment to society, a brand for all. They are demanded by society because we need to have ideals and yearn for a better society, a society for all. They mobilize people given their utopian vocation and um, they signal a change towards a better situation in life. In the case of uh, ONCE, to build, and in the case of Spain, to build our brand on a big ideal is even more pertinent and more important and more critical, of course, than in the case of more commercial brands because of our social mission and our values, our origin, our, um, our big ideal from the beginning. Um, that's our story, part of our history. That's our experience, and it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you very much. Thank you, Fernando, for talking to us about the big ideal and uh, striving to include everybody in our messaging. We uh, have time for questions, and I'm sure that there are some questions for our panelists. Uh, a reminder to, if you want to ask a question, to raise your country sign, and we will note you and get a microphone to you when you're called upon. Please introduce yourself. Uh, please keep your questions short. We have about 15 minutes to take questions. Um, let's make sure our panelists have time to answer the questions as well. Um, so if you have a question, please uh, raise your sign and we'll start to call on folks. Okay, first up we have Saudi Arabia. And if you're directing your question to a particular panelist, please be sure to note that. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, good, morning, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I would like to thank all uh, our presenters and our speakers for very informative uh, presentations. And my question will be addressed to our speaker from Perkins School for the Blind. Uh, first of all, I would like really to thank you for a very wonderful presentation, wonderful presentation. And I'd like to also uh, salute you and commend you for the excellent work that you are doing on behalf of the blind. And let me tell you that we are very proud of you. You are a wonderful mom. And that uh, we will do everything possible to cooperate with you. My question to you is this. Why did you choose to educate your son in Perkins School for the Blind, which is a residential school? Why didn't you educate him 
in a mainstreaming program in a public school. I'm saying this because I believe that mainstreaming is the best way to improve public attitudes towards blind individuals. Thank you. Thank you for your kind remarks about me and about the campaign. Um, I want to keep this brief uh, because it's a little off topic, but um, to your question, uh, we followed the child when it came to educating our child. Uh, We didn't uh, consider any particular program that worked for someone else, something that would work for him. Um, In Campbell's case, he needed to be fully immersed in the expanded core curriculum, which is something that Perkins offered. We lived close enough to the school that he was actually a day student. Um, The only time he became residential was to learn his daily living skills, like making his bed and doing his laundry, because I couldn't stop doing those things for him. So he had to go. Um, but that was, he really followed an in and out strategy, but I would say that his um, skill set would not be where it is today had he not been fully immersed in attending the Perkins campus for their programs. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Corin. And uh, just a reminder that our panelists will be here uh, afterward. I'm sure there are a number of exciting topics to uh, delve into them with. Uh, uh, to the, for the next question, uh, it's going to go to Chad. My name is Dieudonné. I'm from Chad. First of all, I would like to thank every person who uh, made a presentation. I really like the testimony of a mom from the Perkins School and also the uh, testimony from the foundation, ANSE. What I will uh, say, I have a comment, not a question. In Chad, my country, it's a very isolated country in the world. And I'm convinced that in this, in this room, most people do not know where my, pay, my country is. Really, even if uh, the association or Perkins School has done so much for the world to, in order to change the situation of the blind in the world, a lot of blinds have seen their situation change uh, today, but a lot of work still is to be done in my country, the child. It's no blind people at home even has a white cane. I have it because of the uh, Mr. Polisano, who's the president of the Francophone um, Union for the Blind. No one can, we we do not have access to superior education. We only have one blind who had a grant to go study in France. When you talk about technology for, for the blind, I lose my Latin because no one in my country use a, a, a PC and or a phone, a specialized phone. We only have two schools for blind, but the government does not provide support and a lot of them become uh, beggars and nothing has changed. So by coming in this General Assembly, I wanted to be able to present this situation in my country to try to advocate with the uh, organization who are 
which are present here uh, to tell them that there are places, in, especially in Central Africa, who, places who need help. I have a document myself uh, with information about Chad, a document about our culture, something I'd like to share with you. Uh, I need to meet people and share the information, but I don't know where to go to share this information. If those, some people want information about my country, they can come and see us. But I really uh, um, like the testimonies I just heard, but we live in a, a situation that is quite difficult. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. You know, we should not forget, and it goes back to the point we made at the beginning, that in changing public perceptions, it starts with blind people. And we should not forget or lose sight of the fact that uh, there are many places in the world still where we need to get to blind people and give them the basic understanding, the basic tools that blind people need to be successful. And even as we pursue big ideals, we should not forget the core work that we still have to do in many parts of the world. Uh, the next question, we have time for probably two more questions. The next question goes to Israel. Hello. <coughs> I'm Nati from the Center for the Blind in Israel. And I mainly want to share with you what we do all the year. Because we have uh, decided that the main effort we're going to do is through the social networks, because this is where the young people are, and this is who we want to influence to make a difference. Um, but uh, six years ago, a few students from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, blind students who studied uh, media, marketing, and uh, journalism, uh, came with the idea to make a special day for the blind in Israel. We call it Blind Day and we choose the 6th of June as the, as the date to do it because uh, uh, in America when you want to say uh, that uh, somebody has perfect sight, you say uh, 2020. In Israel we say 6-6 and I think in a few other uh, places in the world. So this is the date we choose. On that date we promote a lot of events and even the uh, parliament uh, of Israel stops its day-to-day -day job and uh, all the committees are dealing with matters that uh, uh, concerns blind uh, people in Israel. Um, we we uh, offer the public a lot of open events to do with uh, people with blindness we concentrate on things that connect people, like music, art, and uh, sports. Uh, for instance, we invite a lot of uh, celebrities to uh, have a jam session in complete darkness, and uh, we film it with special camera that uh, uh, the public can uh, see. We uh, invite the public to see audio description uh, film in uh, a lot of uh, cinemas in uh, Israel at the same day. What I wanted to say is that when you make all uh, year a lot of efforts, and we do, when you give a highlight in one day and push it uh, to the limit, you can uh, take those things and uh, all the media uh, is dealing with that uh, things every day. 
uh, and in this day particularly. So what I suggest and what I or, or maybe ask, why not make it worldwide? We do have the uh, International Day for uh, Disabilities that we mention every year, but as, uh, as uh, people with blindness, we know that we're a little bit different from other disabilities, and we want to make a stand for our own. So will the uh, WBU take this challenge and make it worldwide? Thank you. Change what it means to be blind day, I think is what I heard. <laughs> I'm sure uh, how we coordinate our activities across the world is a, is a good idea that we can bring worldwide uh, attention to the opportunities, the abilities of blind people all on the same day across the world is a good <laughs> idea. In the United States, we uh, have often celebrated uh, White Cane Day, and in the National Federation of the Blind, we've expanded that to meet the blind month, but a uh, change, changing what it means to be blind day across the world could be a good program to pursue. Uh, the next question goes to Guatemala. Muchas gracias. Muy buenas thank you. Thank you to all, and good afternoon. Thank you to the panelists for your three interventions and congratulations to our friend from Africa for that bright uh, presentation on uh, legal uh, matters. My question is for the director of the Perkins School for the Blind and for the new vice president for ONCE. In Guatemala, I personally, aside from being director for the National Association for Blind of Guatemala, I'm also part of the movement for the University Students of San Carlos in Guatemala. This is the public university, a state university, which has a, a higher population that over a hundred thousand students in in our institution, and in this movement, we currently are having a campaign or an awareness campaign for the population with handicaps in general, which finds itself in this university, and for the entire population of the structure of such university. When I speak about the population of the college, I'm talking about the authorities, I'm talking about the administrative personnel, and also faculty and students. Specifically... My question is, if this kind of, uh, of material which was presented, or, or if you have any material that could be applied or directed towards the population of this university, considering that we, as a movement of students with... Uh, of the University of San Carlos, what we're looking for is to generate that um, that impact, that necessary impact, so that there is a real inclusion and the implementation of policies for handicaps, which recently was approved and published by the authorities of this university. This one? Okay, thank you for your comments. Um, I would say that the materials that we've created for the Blind New World campaign, because it's pretty early stage, we have not translated into um, any other languages yet, um, but we have plans to. 
Um, but certainly everything on our website is adaptable. And um, I would just have to go back and regroup with our people and see how quickly. There have been other requests from some of our partner countries, like in South America, um, who have wanted to get the uh, materials available in, in Spanish. Um, but certainly that is, um, it's up, it's on the web, it's free to use and, and share as you see fit, as can help you in your own country and your own programs. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your question and thank, uh, congratulations for your work um, in your country and, and, and in your work, in, your work um, in the university. Es, es un placer escuchar en español una pregunta en esta Asamblea General. It's a pleasure uh, listen to the Spanish language in this general assembly. Well, uh, according to our experience in terms of um, education, in terms of training and linking with um, Communication. I think um, communication about um, this, this, these matters are, is, um, is essential, it's a critical point. And um, in terms of uh, how information on how you can change the behavior or the, change the, um, the opinion too, in, in the, um, not only in the business community, in the university community, in the, in the, uh, in the persons who are studying in the, in the university, not only. Uh, uh, people with disabilities that are a student in the university, all the community. Um, we have um, created a new, a new campaign in Spain recently. Um, the title has been Never Give Up, and uh, the objective was um, the young people, uh, the university, the business schools, um, promoting change in terms of behavior, in terms of um, how, one more time, the ability is more important than disability. And in education, in training, too. Um, we have the materials and we, um, we, we can share the, the information and, and, these, and these materials about the, about the campaign. Thank you. Thank you. We have uh, many, many others that wanted to ask questions, but we are at 6 o'clock, so I'd like to thank our panelists. They will be here afterward if you want to ask them questions. So let's give them a round of applause. Uh, I think it's exciting to think about how we develop new ways to communicate our message, our brand, and to raise expectations for blind people. So thank you to each of our panelists. Just one final reminder that um, you should, if you want to come to the uh, gala on Wednesday, please turn in your invitation for a ticket to the gala. You can do that now at our welcome desk just across the hall It'll be open for another hour or so. I encourage you to do that now. The morning session begins at 7 o'clock. I know there are a number of meetings this evening, so we will stand adjourn until tomorrow. <laughs>